of the Atlantic World podcast. We're a proud member of Big Heads Media. In an earlier episode, Song of the Taino, I compared the Spanish Empire to an octopus. And if I were to anthropomorphize other great empires of history, like Rome or China, maybe in a similar way that some people see the U.S. as a bald eagle or Russia as a bear, well, maybe Rome might be a lion or a wolf. China might be a, a tiger or a dragon. In contrast, then, my decision to anthropomorphize Spain as an octopus is maybe a little bit odd-sounding to some people. But no other empire in history before Spain was to do anything quite like what Spain could do, not in so many directions at once. Spanish power could strike in many directions at once from range. And so this episode is a lot like that episode, The Song of the Taino, in that uh, the information that we're talking about is going to display the power of what I call the Spanish octopus. We're going to cover Spanish conquests that occurred after the fall of Tenochtitlan in Mexico. That's a broad subject. It includes places like Panuco, Michoacan, the Yucatan, broad sections of North Mexico, and other parts of Central America, which were still unconquered after the conquests of Balboa and Pedrarius, which I talked about in Part 3 of Conquest of the Americas, The Dogs of War. Besides talking about the physical conquest of Mexico, though, which was largely, but not solely, directed by Hernan Cortes and his captains, we're also going to talk about the so-called spiritual conquest of Mexico, which includes the coming of the Inquisition to Mexico. Yikes. Finally, our tale will finish with the creation of New Galicia and the Mixtan War, the Great War for Mexico's Northwest. Now, interspersed between, uh, we're basically going to be talking about activities of some of Cortez's chief rivals uh, that uh, who are active in the region after the fall of Tenochtitlan, like Nuno de Guzman, Francisco de Godoy, Antonio de Mendoza, and Cristobal de Tapia. At the end of this episode, the conquest will be, with that said, incomplete. The Itza, for example, are the last Maya kingdom who submit to a Spanish authority. Well, they aren't going to do that until 1697. And even halfway through the 19th century, there will be many Maya people who consider themselves unconquered, and in fact, they will wage a war of liberation in Yucatan called the Caste War. Uh, we're going to be moving on long before that, uh, you know, on the timeline. And we won't be coming back in this direction for a very long time, really, in all honesty. Uh, with that said, I've got three more episodes planned 
with the Conquest of the Americas series, and none of them involve Mexico a whole lot. Some of the same characters will be the same. With that said, between the end of this show and now, we've got a few things to discuss first. Now, for starters, uh, you know, folks, I uh, I think the cat is out of the bag as uh, as far as Big Heads Media goes, and I I don't know how else to say this. I think it's just best if I tell you this before you find out on your own. So uh, and then later, you know, you might come to me and you say, ah, Jesse, what's going on? Why are you associated with uh, these uh, people who are, uh, uh, well, let me just, let me just tell you folks about a show in the Big Heads lineup called the Dig on America podcast uh, by Voice from the Underground. It's a great show with three hosts, Dutch, Big Haas, and Mikey, otherwise known uh, collectively as the voice from the underground. They do interviews and present the, uh, present the Get the Dig on U.S. History podcast. Um, you can get honest socio-political opinion, news, analysis, um, for, really from progressive and libertarian perspectives, and all that's great, actually. But here's why I think it's really important that you hear about it from me. Because I just want to clear this up. This is actually on their website. Quote, apparent mouthpiece and propaganda arm of the deep state, probably financed in some way by George Soros, the Clinton Foundation, and of course Monty Burns, unquote. Now, folks, I don't know that you'd be surprised. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, that potentially... Someone like me might be involved in some way with a media organization that probably has ties to George Soros and the Clinton Foundation. But, you know, Monty Burns from The Simpsons. Folks, I mean, I I think that implies that they have contacts with other dimensions. And if that's true, I'm starting to wonder if these voice from the underground guys might not be uh, connected in some way to the interdimensional demons that, uh, you know, Alex Jones talks about sometimes. I don't know. Anyway, maybe we better check out this promo and you can listen for yourselves. Hey, guys, this is Venice, and I've got a message from a friend of mine about my favorite podcast. It's your boy, Flavor, Flavor, and Full Effect. Check this out, everybody. I want y'all to go check out TJ. What's good, everybody? TJ Johnson here from Voice from the Underground. I am the most handsome. Big ass. And I'm smoking from my cigar, of course. You know what I'm saying? The judge. You pick me up in an Uber and a PT Cruiser, I'm calling Lyft. Because <laughs> <laughs> they be fighting the power, talking about social issues, politics, you know what I'm saying? And we're not even that good. Right, we're terrible. Terrible. <laughs> Tangents <Tantus, laughs> all over the place. And not only that, but they be keeping the fun with sports, music, comics, and movies too. Am I allowed to I talk? Think, I think, no, not right now. <laughs> Shut up, just... colonizer! <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm saying? He on Twitter at VFU Podcast. So you can find him. You can find him. So check one, two. This is Flavor Flav. Yeah, boy. Okay. What Flav was trying to say is check out Voice from the Underground on your favorite podcast network. Voice from the Underground. All right. Well, thank you, folks. And all kidding aside, 
Uh, I like to think that uh, there's a few reasons why I do this show, and uh, all of them are pretty important to me. Obviously, very personal. One, I enjoy the show, especially episodes like this specifically, where I get to highlight uh, parts of history which haven't traditionally been giving as much illumination as I feel they maybe deserve. Uh, And I think that's where the show shines. But in addition... I like the idea of creating something of a community around the show, and sometimes I think, I'll be honest, I I don't know if I want to say that I fail at that, but uh, I could definitely do better. For example, I'm not on social media a lot. I do post sometimes on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, You can find me there, and I really appreciate all the likes, shares, and comments uh, uh, I get through that and and the way that uh, I learn more about what you enjoy or don't enjoy about the show from messages I get. Um, by all means, take the time to message me at Atlantic1492 on Twitter is a, is a good way to get a hold of me or, or through Facebook Messenger or email, whatever. Um, it really means the world to me when somebody takes the time to do that. Um, or if you, uh, especially if somebody took the time to write a written review on iTunes uh, or whatever podcast uh, app you listen to, um, all that helps in, in helping grow the community of the show. But uh, frankly, a, a community should be more than just social media anyway. Um, it's great that uh, I post things to help grow the show, I guess. Yeah, that is great. And, I, and I, it is. I want to expose this show to as many people as possible. Um, but uh, with that said, uh, and, and maybe I've said this before in an episode, I'm not sure, but if I haven't, um, just so you know, once I tore my ACL and meniscus in my left knee, uh, I did not have insurance at the time. I was in college. I was 25 or 26, and uh, uh, this was a, probably a year or two before Obamacare uh, to... Uh, why I was really unable to afford or get insurance. It was about $25,000 in debt, uh, though, maybe $30,000 after the the surgery and the physical therapy. Uh, I was out of a job, and it was a very difficult time for me. Um, I mention that today just because I want to understand, I want you to understand how deeply empathetic I am for people who are in similar straits uh, uh, because of a medical issue. Uh, And if you'd indulge me this uh, episode, uh, my advertisement is going to be about someone who I just happen to know because we went to high school together. His name is Liam Wilkins, and to be clear, I don't know Liam very well. Uh, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, though. It's a small enough town that what I do know of Liam is that he is a hero. Uh, He has worked for the past 12 or 13 years in the medical field, uh, in ambulances, um, in emergency room at Memorial uh, Medical Center as an EMS. Um, you can learn more about Liam, Liam, in fact, and his condition. I've got a link in the show notes uh, I've left to his GoFundMe called uh, Liam's Warrior Brigade. The short version, though, is that Liam was diagnosed with a, like a lump or a, I guess a tumor uh, on his spine. Uh, not much of a doctor. What I do know is he required a lengthy hospital stay and recovery, uh, about a month um, in the hospital uh, and much longer recovery after that. Uh, I think he's doing a lot better, but uh, this is means he's a hero who needs heroes. Um, he's basically uh, been treated at the same hospital he worked for, uh, and he has substantial bills. 
so folks, if anybody was out there able to help, uh, even just a few bucks to help Liam and his family, I think it would mean an awful, awful lot. Uh, if you can, donate. And for more information, or if you want more information, please follow the link in the show notes to Liam's Warrior Brigade. Uh, even if all you could say was, I, I, I heard about you and I, uh, some appreciation, I think he'd, uh, really, anything. Uh, now, I, there may be people, I think, out there who are shocked to hear this maybe a little bit. I would regret, I regret to inform you that uh, uh, in the United States, um, sometimes families are bankrupted over medical bills, and that's just the way it is. Uh, anyway, so with all of that said and done, let's get down to the brass tacks. First things first, let's talk about sources. Now, a list of full primary and secondary sources I used would be included in the show notes as always, but I think for this episode, um, I'd like to talk uh, specifically about a few texts and where some of the information we have about this episode comes from. Uh, the scope of the episode is very grand. I did a lot of research, and in doing that, I learned about uh, countless uh, Spanish entradas to various towns in Mexico and Central America. Sometimes uh, a place might be conquered again and again, in fact, because the people who lived there decided they didn't want to be vassals to Spain and re rebelled or um, stuff like that. Now, in addition, not all the entradas were recorded. Uh, some And in some of them that were recorded, those records have been lost time. Uh, our understanding of some of the events that happened in the conquests of New Spain this episode are a little murky. Uh, we don't know as much about Cristobal de, de Olid's conquest of Honduras as we do some of the other conquests, or Francisco de Garay's entrada into Panuco. Uh, Francisco Cortez, even, a relative of Hernán Cortez, for example, though we don't know how they were related, because the report he wrote on his conquests north of Mishawakan is lost to history, and we don't really know about what happened there uh, very well. Um, in other parts of Mesoamerica, like the Yucatan, where there was far less wealth to be had in gold and silver, uh, that just meant that fewer Spaniards were interested in writing about the conquest. Um, so, with that said... Um, we do have a lot more indigenous sources, I think, after the fall of Tenochtitlan, uh, at least that caught my eye. Or surviving, perhaps, is actually the problem, perhaps the difference, uh, given what happened to some of the native records. Um, a lot of the records of what happened, a lot of our understanding of what happens after the fall of Tenochtitlan, just you know, we know that from indigenous historians. Uh, both writing in their own languages or in Spanish later on. Uh, sometimes indigenous historians often also created visual representations of battles, armies, and other political events. And in some cases, we only really understand what an army, what a uniform in an army, what these people looked like, what weapons they were using uh, because of, mainly because of these depictions. Um, regardless, um, one such historian that I think I just want to point out was Diego Munoz Carmago. He was born in uh, 1529, was a, um, of mestizo ancestry, I guess you could say, a Spanish father and a Tlaxcalteca mother. He wrote the history of Tlaxcala. 
Uh, other important indigenous uh, writers are Fernando de Alva Cortez Ixalzotl. Um, he was uh, mixed Spanish and Aztec royalty. And he also wrote histories of Mexico. Uh, so too did Fernando Alvarado Tezazomac, and uh, the official, the historian of the city of Chalco, who went by the name of Chimalpahin. Uh, at any rate, these indigenous and mestizo records of the conquest of New Spain, which is an era that I would say, I don't know if there's an official date to it, but I would say it begins just after the fall of Tenochtitlan on May 26, 1521. Well, they painted a very different picture, sometimes quite literally, with paint and artistic expressions of the conquest than those portrayed by, excuse me, by Cortez. His fourth and fifth letters especially are important uh, to understanding post, the post-Tenochtitlan era. And uh, Cortez minimized the efforts of his allies whenever possible in an attempt to secure the coveted post of the viceroyship of New Spain. Bernal Diaz's account is also especially valuable. Just so you know, volume two is uh, what you need to know, uh, is what you would need to read to learn more about what he has to say about the conquest. And that's not available in print in English as far as I know, but you can find it online. And of course, like everything else, it's in the show notes. Uh, Diaz wrote his history from the perspective of an encomendero who was afraid he might lose his encomienda. So, and Cortez was from the perspective of a man who needed to convince the king of Spain that he was in total control of the situation in Mexico and that he alone was for the man for the job. Um, besides that, we have Spanish records like court proceedings, the Spanish audiencia came to New Spain, and many of the actions of various uh, conquistadors were examined, uh, reports were drawn up, witnesses were questioned. All of that's excellent information in many regards. But we have to remember that the witnesses questioned often had a very distinct reason to lay any blame for uh, anything that had gone wrong or any atrocities committed, obviously, on somewhere other than themselves. And I, I guess my point is, uh, well, obviously, every source is a bias, um, but, uh, it's very tricky. It was this episode, I guess, I guess I just want to say it was very tricky to, to pull apart some of those biases. Um, that's why I loved rereading, re uh, James Krippner Martinez's book, Rereading the Conquest, Power, Politics, and the History of Early Colonial Mishawakan. It's a book about Mishawakan, obviously, specifically from 1521 to 1565, but it's also a book about historiography in Mexico. And so it's infinitely more interesting to me on account of that. And I, I know that historiography isn't really a topic that everyone is going to be falling in love with, and that's why I'm wedging it in here at the beginning of the episode, frankly. You've got to eat a salad before you get the steak. I don't know. My brother loves salads, so that said. Anyway, Krippner Martinez analyzes how just a few authors shaped the discourse on all subsequent literature about the Spanish conquest of Michoacan. So it's the perfect sort of book if you want to understand the limits of our historical knowledge. Anyway, with that said, the historiography of the conquest of New Spain basically comes in four parts. First, there's the writers who wrote about the history of the great man. Cortez, and that begins with Cortez himself. 
and it continues to this day, of course. The second trend is that of the spiritual conquest. This trend began shortly after the first, when the religious orders came to Mexico, and they began their own spiritual conquest. The religious orders are basically argued that it was the good works of the church which affected the true conquest, though just most FYI, just FYI, most writers continued probably right, I would say, writing about the great man of history all the way until the 20th century, except for the uh, religious themselves. Uh, that's when Robert Ricard published The Spiritual Conquest of Mexico, and we're going to get to that topic later on in the episode as well. The spiritual conquest and the great man theory, though different, both have something in common. They basically both take the conquest for granted. There wasn't a way that the conquest couldn't have happened. And also, the conquest was the most important thing to have ever happened. Well, the third trend of the historiography of the conquest is that of the conquest as a non-event. This might sound crazy to you, but that's how a lot of the indigenous people of Mexico seem to view the events of 1521. A fact in fact, you know, most of the indigenous histories of Mesoamerica didn't include the conquest of Tenochtitlan at all. It just wasn't important enough in the Yucatan or, the, or in Michoacan or in other places. Uh, smallpox was recorded. That was important. And Spaniards are mentioned. But in a lot of these accounts, the Spaniards are never really mentioned as a foreign conquering force, uh, they're not really talked about like the Aztecs talked about them. As a... They're mentioned in a way that other ethnic groups in Mesoamerica are mentioned, like they were just part of the local scenery, not outside conquerors. Perhaps the most interesting thing to me about this idea of the conquest as a trivial event in history is uh, something about language. The word conquista or conquest, does not appear in the Nahuatl language. And you'd think it would, because Nahuatl does grow as a language, and it incorporates a lot of Spanish words after 1521. And to take this idea just a little further, though, the argument that the conquest of Mexico was the most important event in the world is based solely upon written records by authors who were losers of the conquest of Mexico. Yeah, even Cortes. Cortes never did become viceroy. Bernal Diaz never even got a good encomienda in central Mexico like he wanted. He was in Guatemala. It was really hot. And he had to fight to keep that encomienda. That's a big part of why he wrote his history. Both of them were arguing that what they accomplished was real fucking important, so they needed rewards. The Spanish mendicant orders who wrote histories ultimately lost to the secular orders. And they wrote about how fucking important it was that they established so many monasteries and baptized so many souls. The Nahua and Mestizo writers of the conquest, well, yeah, they're losers in the conquest too. Because ultimately, in the social order created after the conquest, just like Cortes and Diaz, they had to fight to keep their privileges. And let me tell you, it was a lot harder for the Nahua and Mestizo writers of the conquest to keep their privileges than it was for Cortes and Diaz. 
At any rate, what all of these people have in common is they have a lot of motivation to trump up the conquest of the Mex of of Mex of uh, Mexico is really a big deal. It's something they took part in, and they deserve better treatment now because of that. So, with that said, the conquest as a non-event or a trivial event can be basically summed up with the idea uh, that Spanish conquistadors just kind of overtook the very tip-top ruling class in Mesoamerican societies, and they did so by constructing very Mesoamerican-style alliances. And since the rest of that society underneath them basically stayed the same, well, what was the conquest? Well, what indeed was the conquest? If the third trend in Mesoamerican history asked that question? Well, the fourth trend in the historiography of the conquest of Mexico tries to answer that question. With this, well, the Indians were conquerors. And you might be interested to know, since I told you that conquista did not become a loan word in Nahuatl, that conquistador did become a word in the Nahuatl language. I have a book called Indian Conquistadors, and it is maybe the most important text of all of them, which I've gotten information for from this episode in that regard. The book is edited by uh, Laura E. Matthew and Michael R. Ojik, if I'm pronouncing that name uh, correctly. And it's a series of essays, uh, so they're not the sole authors, about the topic of Indian Conquistadors. Now, there's a number of reasons why indigenous people became conquistadors. Some were forced, sometimes in chains, to accompany Spaniards on entradas. And an enslaved conquistador might not be the conquistador you've got in mind when you think of one. Well, 16th century Mexico, though, would not be the first time or place in history in the world where a person who was a slave was also a person who was an important warrior. But many Indian conquistadors went quite willingly. King Zucotencatl of the Tlaxcala city of uh, Tlatzan had more than 500 wives and concubines, for example, and many, many, many children. Only one of the hundreds of aspiring noble sons and sons-in-law could become Zucotencatl's heir. So what possibilities for greatness did the others have? if they were ambitious. Well, warfare certainly was one of them. Besides the glory of victory, association with the Spaniards brought a lot of prestige. As early as 1522, Cortes started giving, uh, allowing some Indian allies to take the title of Don, the Spanish title of Don. The indigenous the, excuse me, the indigenous nobility allied with the conquistadors could thus achieve the Castilian rank of captain. Some rode horses and dressed like Castilians. Cuatemoc, the final uh, emperor of the Mexica, gave 15,000 troops to support the campaigns of Cortes of New Spain. One of the emperor's cousins apparently commanded this massive force, and quoting Hugh Thomas, quote, they were more than the sepoys of a new empire, for in two or three generations, their descendants became in habits and speech 
indistinguishable from the grandchildren of conquistadors, unquote. Many Indian conquistadors consisted of powerful nobles and their followers who allied with Spaniards, but another category would have been the commoners, or naborias, they would have been called in the time. Uh, people who basically just left to go along with the Spaniards because they lived in places like, say, Tenochtitlan, where by the end of the war, their homes might just have been destroyed. So some people might sign up on an entrada just to see what the future might hold elsewhere. On a number of entradas, Indian armies stayed to colonize the new land which had been conquered. Not all colonists had that choice. For example, when Pedro de Alvarado took Indians from his encomiendas to Guatemala, they probably had no choice in whether or not they were going to go there. Now, the Spanish conquest always, on a related note, kind of as colonists, these always involved women and children generally anonymous women. Some, though, were like Lama Lynche and entered the historic record. But these women, who, in addition, acted as servants and cooks and consorts, obviously they are the key to the formation of the new communities that I'm going to talk about in this episode. And any time I mention in this episode that some Spanish captain founded town such and such a place, or founded town such and such and such and such a place, I... I just want you to realize that once the battles are over, the land was settled by indigenous women and their children, who were the founding generation of New Spain. The Tlaxcala people, specifically, were able to, of course, to obtain a lot of benefits. They were famously exempted from the encomienda system, but the Tlaxcalas weren't alone. Quecholan uh, was a town which was subject to Tenochtitlan previous to the Spanish conquest, but they reportedly never fought against the Spaniards. Rather, the Quecholteca—I <laughs> apologize for my pronunciation. This is a tough one. Quecholteca—they immediately allied with the Spaniards, and this led to a lasting alliance. The, Quacolcholteca uh, thought of themselves as conquistadors as well. They were prominently featured in campaigns against uh, the Chichimecs of the north, as well as in the campaign in, in uh, Guatemala, Guatemala. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I'm going to go with Guatemala. Um, Mixtec and Zapotec conquistadors from the Valley of Oaxaca fought alongside Spaniards as well in the Chiapas, Honduras, and the Yucatan where specifically many Spaniards commented that the conquest of the Yucatan would have been impossible without them. Now, maybe most telling about the impact that Indian conquistadors had during the Spanish conquest is that during the most serious threat to the new social order of New Spain, the Mixtan War, at least 10,000 Indians from central Mexico and Michoacan accompanied the Viceroy Mendoza's army to New Galicia. And all of that adds up to another very important question, one asked most succinctly by Laura E. Matthew, which is simply this. Whose conquest? Well, that's a simple question with maybe a somewhat more complicated answer. I guess I... I might answer that at the end of the show. If we truly consider, though, the impact 
that literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Indian conquistadors had on the conquest, though, then to me, at least, the conquest does begin to look at least a lot less than, say, a purely Spanish conquest and more like a, quote, political reshuffling in central Mexico to fill the power vacuum after the fall of Tenochtitlan. In this view, Tlaxcalteca appear not as traitors or enigmas, but as the examples par excellence of a political and military scramble for preeminence, unquote. So, who were the winners and losers of the so-called Spanish conquest? Well, I guess ultimately, as we shall see, the Spanish crown. And many conquistadors do pretty well, though by no means all. And since some conquistadors did well, that also means some indigenous communities won the conquestas, like Tlaxcala. And in case you're wondering, that is why I called the conquest of New Spain. Emphasis on the new. Now, before we get carried away, talking about the various directions that uh, Cortez and his captains turned their attention to, let's talk about Mexico City. Cortez decided to build the new capital atop the ruins of Tenochtitlan. This was not a move that was done without controversy. Now, to Cortez, the spot seemed logical. After all, if the Mexica had kept him from Tenochtitlan for so long, why couldn't he defend such a place? Further, he believed if he left the ruins of the old city in place, they might stand as a reminder of Mexican grandeur. And finally, he believed that creating the capital there would prevent the very large population of Nahua Indians around the lake from rebelling. Later, critics would claim that Cortes planned on defying royal authorities, uh, you know, from the, from the site, basically being so far away from the coast. And at the end of the 1520s, uh, this would be uh, a big avenue for uh, critics to levy attacks against Cortes. But at the time, in 1522, the chief complaint came from some of the conquistadors who served under him who believed that a new capital should be built in a place near the mountains with fresh water, that this would be healthier and safer in their opinion, high on dry land, not low in the marshes. Well, Cortes was unswayed by that argument, and he directed the construction of a cathedral to St. Cat- uh, Francis. It was constructed on the site of the Temple of Huichtalapochtli, where the House of Birds once stood, a few years after the conquest, was a Franciscan covenant. The opposite side of the cathedral, um, on the opposite side of the, uh, of the square where the cathedral was, was where C- Cortes constructed his own palace. It was built of hewn stone and 7,000 cedar beams. The homes of the Spaniards under him were likewise made of stone, built from the ruins of the previous city of Tenochtitlan. Most of the native population resided from that point on in buildings of quote-unquote inferior quality. Cortes had a great fortress constructed as well. It overlooked the dockyard where the, uh, and where the brigantines were, which had served during the conquest of the Tenochtitlan. He oversaw the construction of a foundry. Uh, there was an ample copper in the Valley of Mexico, um, and so Cortes began to cast his own cannons. For ammunition, in the time being, he used stone balls. And he even made his own gunpowder, uh, the ingredients discovered via an expedition to a volcano by some particularly brave conquistadors. 
Afterwards, uh, three weeks after the conquest, Cortes began employing a conquistador named Francisco de Mesa as a gunsmith. He worked 80 miles southwest of Mexico City. Uh, de Mesa had worked as a gunsmith in Seville prior to the conquest, and uh, Cortes put him to work near the copper and tin deposits at Taxco, which allowed for the construction of more artillery pieces. Cortes granted his followers land and houses in the city, and in a few years, the Spanish population was about 2,000 families in Mexico City. Cortes even ordered that men must bring their wives over from New Spain, and for single men, they were required to obtain wives in that same period of time, 18 months. Cortes reserved the center of the city for these men, uh, the Spaniards. Uh, the naturales, as he called them, lived on the outskirts of, uh, of uh, Mexico City. As for the remaining uh, native population, there were only about 30,000 natives left um, in the ruins by the fall of the city. Most of those survivors also were uh, technically lived in Tlatelolco before the conquest. And, and regardless, uh, Cortes uh, uh, divided the uh, survivors after the conquest into several barrios, um, the largest barrio was uh, then Santiago Tlatelolco. The market there was reopened. And as such, quote, trade resumed, the canals were covered with barges, and the city swarmed, unquote. Cortes planned uh, also a new slaughterhouse, a granary, fountains, bridges, causeways, sewers, water conduits, and minor squares. The city was built in a classical style. Now, when I say Cortes, I really probably should say his chief architect, a man by the name of Garcia Bravo. Bravo must have had some sort of experience back in Castile with building a grid plan uh, before he arrived in Mexico. Either that or he was you know, some sort of architectural prodigy. At any rate, the city was as ambitious as Cortes himself. It was a verifiable new Rome, at least in design. In addition to providing land and houses for his uh, Spanish followers, Cortes distributed Indians amongst them via repartimientos, bringing the quote-unquote vicious system of, of encomienda uh, from the Caribbean to Mexico. He explained himself by stating that he didn't want to condemn the Indians to servitude, but he didn't really see how the Spaniards could be rich in Mexico without strict enforcement of native labor. The Tlaxcalteca and the Coaquelteca were exempted from the, quote, doom of slavery, unquote, but few other peoples in the orbit of New Spain were likewise free from the encomienda system. Now, Spanish control in Mexico didn't really alter the economy, though, very much at the formation of New Spain. The Spaniards essentially took the role of the Mexica as top tribute collectors. And this transition was made easy in part due to the extensive records which the Mexica collected regarding what regions of the empire produced what goods for tribute. Excuse me. At first, only native products were uh, collected, but this quickly changed. The encomenderos who received said tribute began to diversify as new opportunities for wealth creation arose, primarily with sugar, where it would grow, and cattle, where encomenderos who had the land and wealth to do so could. 
For example, Cortez raised cattle on his ranches at Tehuantepec. He also, I should say, began importing silkworms and mulberry trees. Uh, the encomenderos who obtained land and Indians close to mineral deposits generally used their Indians to mine. This was illegal, but most of the great underground wealth would be found later anyway, not in the Valley of Mexico. Um, so most of these early mining attempts were unsuccessful at any rate. Generally speaking, the encomenderos themselves didn't really involve themselves much with the day-to-day -day operations of their holdings, however. There were more than enough subordinate Spaniards, later arriving immigrants, family members, and African slaves that the encomenderos were free, basically, from managing the businesses they owned. And Africans were pretty well represented within the early Atlantic world before the conquest of Mexico, since Spaniards in the Caribbean often used a Africans on sugar estates and in gold mines. African slaves uh, participated in these same activities from the uh, outset of the conquest. And um, one conquistador with Cortez, as I think we've mentioned it before, Juan Garrido, was a Spanish-African who became an encomendero in New Spain. He was the first to grow wheat in uh, Mexico. Um, now, at any rate, but most Africans uh, in Mexico were slaves, and they allowed the Spaniards a lot of advantages. Um, now, Africans developed relationships with Portuguese and Spanish slave traders in the 15th century. So there were Africans uh, who knew the Spanish language and culture who lived in Mexico. Um, and Africans also shared a lot of the immunities and resistances to diseases that Africans had but which proved lethal to many of the indigenous Americans. Now, all of this worked to offset the fact that African slaves were pretty expensive, compared to especially the free labor that you could especially have if you were an encomendero. Um, and a lot of Africans who were in Mexico were therefore tasked with overseeing encomiendas. And by, uh, this is sometime in the future, but by 1640, there would be about 100,000 African slaves living in Mexico. At any rate, as far as the Nahua people collectively, the Aztec Empire, just so you know, was in many ways a Nahua confederation. Uh, yeah, life sucked for them pretty big time after the conquest for most of them. Many of them were enslaved within the encomienda system. That's also a little bit of a simplification. Uh, to just sum everything that happens to Nahua people after the conquest of simply saying, you know, they were subjected to the encomienda is true, but that's not universally true, uh, and it's not solely true. A lot of things did not, in fact, change between Tenochtitlan and Mexico City, uh, and, like, one of the main things was the main economic unit in Mexico, which is the altipetl. It's a word that literally means water and hill, but it refers in something more along the lines of a people and the territory which they lived on. It's a word that's not exactly like town or city. Uh, at any rate, both before and after the conquest, the Nahua people saw the Mexican landscape in terms of altipetls. The Spanish referred to the Altapeples as Pueblos. Now, a Pueblo in English translates to town or city, and you'd think it might not be a great translation, but Pueblo literally means people in Spanish. 
And so in that sense, the term is actually almost a nearly perfect translation. At any rate, after the conquest, the Altapetals were responsible for contributing men and logistical support to individual Spaniards who were rewarded in the conquest as encomenderos. The rulers of these Altapetals, or Pueblos as the Spaniards called them, were a and especially the especially the uh, especially the very important pueblos, these rulers were often rewarded in turn. That's why I'm getting to all of this. That's basically how vassalage works. So, with that said, long term, the Nahua nobility got squeezed in the decades after the conquest, and 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 uh, a lot of the uh, the the indigenous allies who did well um, over time um, were not just fighting with disease, uh, but also with uh, predation by nefarious Europeans. Um, And all this was in combination with the fact that the Indian nobility and the Spanish encomenderos are basically in competition with each other for labor from common people. And so in the decades following the conquest, uh, some social classes just start to disappear from Nahua society. First to go is basically war slaves and nobles made from war. These are two classes that simply disappear just almost immediately. Enough of the nobility essentially lost access to labor, though, too, that over time there's a flattening that happens within... uh, native society after the, the conquest, especially amongst uh, the uh, Nahua winners and, uh, the, uh, and the winners of the conquest. Um, anyway, now there's other changes that occur in indigenous society that include like uh, Christianity. Uh, as Christianity spreads, a lot of Indians begin to take Spanish names. Um, there's also an increase in land sales. Uh, since the one way that a noble or a, and a pueblo could make a buck was to sell land. Selling land was uncommon pre-conquest, but not completely unheard of in Mexico. And what with the massive depopulation uh, from smallpox and other diseases and war, uh, land was plentiful and cheap enough that it traded hands often after the conquest. And there's the trope of the conquistador stealing the Indian land, and that is true absolutely true as this episode will document extensively but it's also a little complicated in that there's a lot of records of indians who were eager to sell pieces of unused land to some european rancher or whoever and uh besides that money used from selling unused land could then use that money to buy metal tools or quote-unquote land iron as nahua people called it to better work the land which they were using and to, uh, you know, a a win-win situation. It wasn't completely uncommon, uh, or unheard of, I should say. Uh, Anyway, native wills increasingly start seeing, you start seeing the bequeathment of these pieces of land iron after the conquest. Also, horses, mules, and chickens become very popular purchases in indigenous communities in Mexico amongst those who could afford them. One of the coolest uh, things, I I think, though, about the ways that Mexico changed uh, after the conquest as far as the Nahuas was the language itself, though. And I'm not going to try to embarrass myself by trying to pronounce a host of Nahua words that I don't need to. 
But Mesoamerican peoples were confronted with a number of new things and ideas. And so they had to come up with words to identify them. So a firearm in Nahua was called a fire trumpet. Gunpowder was fire trumpet earth. And so to load a firearm was to fill a fire trumpet with earth. I just think that's cool. A horse is a giant deer. And so, of course, a, a stable was a deer house. Anyway, generally speaking, as time went on, the demographic result of the conquest of New Spain was that a great number of Spaniards gathered in the center, which featured a dense indigenous population, and was the capital, you know, Mexico City. It's the largest and most populous and wealthiest region in New Spain. And in fact, many places near Mexico City, like Toluca and Cuernavaca, had uh, social economic relationships with the new capital that basically were exactly the same almost as the relationship had been with Tenochtitlan. One place, though, that did change was Texcoco. Now, this was a city already somewhat on the decline after the emergence of Tenochtitlan. It was, it's about 15 miles away. It's on the other side of this lake. Texcoco was large and a great prize as an encomienda, but it didn't have much resources except people. And as the century went on, Texcoco began to decline. Even in the late 16th century, there were no lawyers, no doctors, no tailors, or specialized craftsmen lived in Texcoco. You went to Mexico City across the lake for many goods and services. Now, like Texcoco, Tlaxcala didn't have much mineral wealth either. Basically, the main product either place produced was food, so Tlaxcala attracted really only Europeans on the periphery of the Spanish power system. There were more Portuguese and Italians, for example, in Tlaxcala than in other places in Mesoamerica. There were no encomenderos, of course, since the region was exempt from the encomienda. And so the first to settle in Tlaxcala were a few ranchers and farmers, uh, men like Nicolas de Perla, who were able to buy little plots of land. Uh, Perla was a sheep rancher. He tried buying a few pieces of land in Tlaxcala. He was never able to connect them all. He was apparently poor enough that most of his land purchases were paid for in sheep. Shortly after the arrival of men like Nicholas de Perla, these farmers and ranches, there were a few merchants who went to Tlaxcala, to cities, to operate general stores there. During the 16th century, many of these merchants actually rented their shops from wealthy Tlaxcala Indians because the Tlaxcala benefited enough initially, of course, from the conquest that it had real power within New Spain's economy. Upwards of 40% of the principal Indians or uh, in Tlaxcala, they derived their income principally by renting urban real estate. The Portuguese merchant Perez de Rua was one such merchant. From his rented property, Rua sold mainly dyes and wine in Tlaxcala, as well as paper, ink, flour, bread, clothes, and other stock items. The Mesoamerican South had an economic motor that wasn't as strong as that of the center. Fewer Spaniards settled there as a result, according to James Lockhart. And this is true in pre-conquest times as well. Of course, it's also very, very hot, so that probably didn't help much. But the real reason that fewer Spaniards headed uh, south was that, ultimately, fewer deposits of silver were found there. Even parts of the Oaxaca 
which contained no mineral wealth, had very little uh, Spanish development during the 16th century, and that's pretty close to Central America. And likewise, by the 1540s, only a few Spaniards occupied the most important Indian centers uh, that existed in the Yucatan. Uh, almost all of them lived uh, along the coast. There was no silver in the Yucatan. But the con Spaniards did congregate on the coast principally because it was a sea route that connected the Caribbean and central Mexico. Uh, basically, central Mexico and the Caribbean were connected by a sea route that just went right by the, the Yucatan coast. Now, this is the opposite case in the north. North of the Valley of Mexico were where some of the largest silver deposits were found. And in the north, where there was a sparse indigenous population in comparison to the center in the south, uh, a large Spanish population developed relatively quickly after the conquest. Conquistadors wanted to get in on the silver mining industry, and silver was especially prominent in the Zacatecas. And after there, it was found farther north again and again, but all of that's going to take place uh, in the future. Uh, we've got a long way to go between then and there. Uh, at any rate. All right, well, anyway, all with all that in mind, um, Spanish navigation also allowed for uh, unprecedented expansion in multiple directions if Spanish men and money were willing to engage in said expansion. It's what I've called, like I said at the beginning of the episode, the Spanish octopus. And after the fall of the Aztecs, the conquest of Tenochtitlan, uh, with Cortes successfully, in essence, becoming the head of state for a new Mesoamerican alliance, well, the Spanish were able to expand in multiple directions. Um, and they do so across Mexico and Central America. And that's the main topic of our episode today. And if you're a curious listener who's got questions regarding this topic, don't worry. Our trusty conquistadoring chronicler, Bernal Diaz, has you covered. This is from the true conquest of New Spain. Quote, I will now answer a question which the curious reader will surely ask himself. Namely, why we, the con true conquistadors of New Spain and of the strong city of Mexico, did not settle down there, but selected other provinces, provinces by preference. The reason is... We had learned from Moctezuma's rent rolls where those districts lay, from which he derived the greatest quantity of gold, cacao, and cotton stuffs. All our thoughts and desires were bent upon these provinces, whence the monarch obtained the largest tribute in gold. And when we found that even Sandoval, one of our chief officers, and a particular friend of Cortez, likewise left Mexico for the provinces, we no longer hesitated to follow his example. The more so, as there were no gold mines in the neighborhood of Mexico, nor did it produce cotton or cacao, but merely maguey and maize, from the former of which the inhabitants prepared their wine. We therefore considered the country surrounding the metropolis very poor, and we consequently settled in other provinces, though we were greatly disappointed in our expectations. This Cortez had well foreseen, and I still remember that he said to me, when I requested his permission to accompany Sandoval, quote, Upon my conscience, Brother Bernal Diaz del Castillo, you are making a mistake. 
I should feel delighted if you would stay with me in Mexico, but you have made up your mind to accompany your friend Sandoval. I will not oppose your wishes, and may God be with you. You may rely upon it. I will take every opportunity to promote your welfare, but I am sure you will soon regret having left me." Unquote. Cortez was correct. In fact, that court Diaz, and indeed, nearly all the conquistadors, in the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda, would never be satisfied. As evidence, even before the conquest of Mexico was complete, Cortez began the process of sending expe expeditionary forces to various regions of the empire to explore it for wealth. Soon after the fall of Tenochtitlan, Cortez himself left for the coast near modern-day Veracruz, which would become known as the province of Panuco. And later Cortez would leave Mexico altogether. He went south for Honduras. Much of his time spent in Mexico was actually, just so you know, spent planning for a proposed conquest across the Pacific to China, for which he never received permission. At any rate, Bernal Diaz further explained that the last of the Mexica emperors, Cuauhtémoc, apparently ordered most of the gold and valuables of Tenochtitlan to be dumped into the lake to spite the Spaniards in the end days of the conquest of the city. The biggest result of this, other than the immediate torture of Cuauhtémoc and anyone else whom the Spaniards suspected might be hiding said treasure, was the fact that despite the conquest of Tenochtitlan was one of the greatest events in world history, and the successful conquerors knew it, well, like I said, they were not satisfied. In fact, none of the conquistadors obtained anything close to the wealth obtained, or nearly obtained, at Tenochtitlan. Marshal Eakin stated that Pedro de Alvarado was perhaps the luckiest of the latest of the later conquistadors, when he headed to the old Maya regions of Guatemala and southern Mexico. Another captain of Cortes, Francisco de Montejo, began the conquest of the Yucatan, but in those Maya regions, regions he found no great cities and very little gold. Beyond the reasoning that Bernal Diaz gave for the Spani uh, Spanish soldiers to leave Tenochtitlan, Cortes had related reasons for sending his men off. <clears throat> Quoting Diaz again, quote, Our general, becoming weary of the continued reproaches which were thrown out against him, and the everlasting petitions for loans and advance in pay, determined at once to get rid of the most troublesome fellows by forming settlements in those provinces which appeared most eligible for this purpose. He accordingly dispatched Sandoval to Tuspetepec. He was, first of all, to leave a settlement at Medellin, than to proceed to the river Guacasalco, I apologize, I massacred that, to form a settlement and a harbor there, and then subdue the province of Panuco. Rodrigo Rangel and Pedro de Ircio were ordered off to Veracruz. The younger, Juan Velasquez to Colima and Villa Fuerte, in the province of Zacatula. Cristobal Olid was sent to Michoacan. Francisco de Jarosco was commissioned with the colonization of Oaxa. So, unquote. Oh, I'm sorry, not unquote. The inhabitants of the provinces I have just mentioned would not at first credit that Mexico had fallen. 
But when they found it to be a fact, the kings and caciques of these distant provinces send ambassadors to congratulate Cortes on his victory, and to declare themselves vassals of our emperor, and also to convince themselves with their own eyes that we really have leveled that terrible city to the ground. Each of these ambassadors brought with them valuable presents in gold, and many had their young sons with them, to whom they pointed out the ruins of Mexico, just as we would show our children the spot where Troy once stood. Unquote. Okay. Now, with that said, Cortes first had to deal with a challenge to his authority. In Spain, before the king realized that Cortes had successfully defeated the Aztec Empire, but after Cortes had, in fact, completed said conquest of said Aztec Empire, the king decided to reign in the conquistador who had rebelled against his governor, Velasquez. He did so by sending Cristobal de Tapia, with the task of apprehending Cortes and bringing him to a trial in 1521. Tapia was the inspector of the gold foundries in Santo, in Santo Domingo, and in the words of William Prescott, quote, he was a feeble, vacillating man, unquote. So probably not the best choice to deal with Cortes. But the first challenge to Cortes, then, was thus dispatched very easily. As soon as he landed, Tapia received a very nice letter from Cortes, but when he started le leaving from the coast and heading to Mexico City, he quickly discovered that some of the other Spanish conquistadors not only did not respect any authority he wielded, but in fact did not, said they would not permit him to travel to the capital. So instead, Tapia ended up wisely taking a bribe from those Spanish conquistadors, and he went back to Cuba. Now you'd think the king might be super angry about that, but he wasn't, because what with the length of separation between communications, by the time Tapia returned to Spain to report what happened, the king had received significant gifts in gold and other treasure from Mexico, which had tilted his opinions toward uh, quite favorably towards Cortes. Now, Marshall Eakin, the author of the History of Latin America, provides an excellent synopsis of that situation. Quote, Cortes and his men quickly moved to divide the spoils of victory, gold, land, and Indians. Back in Spain, his phenomenal success had turned the legal battle to his favor, and in October 1522, Charles V named Hernán Cortes governor and captain general of New Spain. Three and one-half years after his insubordinate flight from Cuba, he was vindicated and rewarded. He had moved from a rebellious adventurer to an enormously wealthy governor over a vast new empire larger than Spain itself. He married Marina off to uh, La Malinche, off to another conquistador. She died soon after. Arguably, she was the most important woman in Mexican history. And Cortes remains the most fascinating figure of all the conquistadors. Cunning, ruthless, tenacious, and ambitious. No other conquistador would ever match him, unquote. He was just getting started. Now, that's because besides, like I said, building construction of the city of Mexico and dispatching Tapia, Cortes began sending out armies to conquer more. He dispatched, like a, uh, well, like Bernal Diaz said, Gonzalo San de Sandoval south to the Nahuatl city of Tuxtepec. 
It's halfway between Veracruz and Oaxaca. From there, Sandoval went on to Quetzalcoatlcos on the coast of the Caribbean. Both of those cities were quickly subdued. I don't have many details to share with you regardless. Sandoval apparently didn't encounter much resistance until he started constructing the city of Espirito Santo. The locals realized, oh fuck, he plans on staying here at that point, and Espirito Santo was named, well, it was, excuse me, it was laid about 12 miles south of the uh, river Quetzalcoatl. <laughs> Quetzalcoatlcos, excuse me. It was a perfect place, also, for subsequent invasions into a number of places uh, south of central Mexico, uh, like the Yucatan, uh, Guatemala, Oaxaca, uh, Chiapas, all of these places were threatened by a permanent Spanish presence so far south. Uh, regardless, Sandoval began to provide encomiendas to some of his supporters in the Entrada by the time he uh, began laying out the city. The region was rich in salt, pepper, cotton, sandals, jade, gold, amber, and green quetzal feathers. You know, Gonzalo de Sandoval was a very capable commander. He was only 19 when he first sailed with Cortez, and uh, just a few years later, uh, he had become extremely experienced. He was a big reason for the success uh, of Cortez, uh, and that's that he wasn't nearly as impetuous or unpredictable as some of Cortez's other commandos. Uh, commanders. Pedro de Alvarado or Cristobal de Olid might have been better soldiers, uh, but uh, Sandoval was more dependable. Now, Sandoval requested and received reinforcements in 1523 after founding the city of Espiritu Santo, and he obtained them, and then he continued on to the south, looking then to conquer what is now the state of Chiapas. Uh, he brought with him 27 horsemen, 15 crossbowmen, 8 musketeers, 1 cannon and artillery crew, which was led by a black gunner, and 70 foot soldiers. However, many more native allies Sandoval had with him is unknown at this point. Uh, certainly, the number was likely in the thousands. Uh, at any rate, the Chiantepec Indians uh, that he fought against... Um, fought with weaponry common in Mexico, obsidian swords. They also used uh, bows and arrows, long lances, lassos to attempt to catch horses, and perhaps most ingeniously, a burning pitch made with some sort of mixture of rosin, blood, water, and ashes. The largest battle in the campaign in Chiapas occurred at Ixtapa, near the future capital of Chiapas, which saw, and that battle saw the death of two Spanish soldiers and four horses. Uh, in the end, uh, the combination of Spanish and Indian allies were once again victorious, and the chiefs of the town of Chiapas paid tribute to Spain. Sandoval next went on to the nearby city of Chamula. It's a conquest that was apparently more difficult. Again, we don't have many more details. The Spaniards were apparently again victorious, and Sandoval once again divided land and Indians to his supporters, turning conquistadors into encomenderos. Now, meanwhile, Cortes sent another army south to the Valley of Oaxaca. Essentially, this is the site of the mother culture of Mesoamerica. In the 16th century, it was a place marked for its incredible diversity. Now, there's a, I have a lot of information on pre-colonial peoples of Oaxaca. I spoke a lot about them, especially the site of Monte Alban in the episode Blood Oath. 
The the Mexica had two outposts there in the valley and held some political power in the region. But Zapotecs, Mixtecs, Mazatecas, Cuicatecas, and Mixes were all other ethnic groups with substantial populations in this uh, this very diverse and interesting uh, part of the world. In the two most the, the two most important power players in the Oaxaca were probably the Zapotecs and the Mixtecs. Um, to be honest, the Aztec influence was mainly just based on making sure the Aztecs had some access to the resources of the region as, as much as anything else. But uh, Montezuma first told Cortes that some of the empire's gold came from Oaxaca, and so the valley was a top priority, both before and after the fall of the city. Diego de Ordaz, Rodrigo Rangel, and Juan Velasquez de, de, de Leon were sent as agents by Cortes before the fall of Tenochtitlan to establish relationships with, uh, with the people of the region. They managed to uh, establish a very good relationship with the powerful lord of one city, Tehuantepec, who essentially uh, abdicated his throne. He went off as a conquistador himself. He gathered an army and took it to Mexico to ally himself with Cortes against the Tenochtitlan. So I'm guessing that the Mexica weren't exactly super popular in the Valley of Oaxaca. Anyway, the first attempt into Oaxaca by Spanish conquistadors was made by Sandoval. He had sent a hundred men under the captain under the command of Captain Briones into Zapotec country to try and get them to surrender. That mission was an utter failure, and, and, and really all that was accomplished was that the Spaniards started to realize that a lot of the Oaxaca was completely unsuitable for fighting on horseback. Uh, a lot of the terrain was very mountainous. The Zapotec kingdom of Tiltepec defeated uh, Sandoval and his army uh, seriously enough that uh, Sandoval actually, that's what made him give up and settle for the Zapotec kingdom of Zaltepec, which is how he ended up trying to conquer the Chiapas instead of Oaxaca, just so you know, uh, founding, and that's where he founded the Via de Espiritu Santo, like I said. Now, at any rate, that left the Spaniards in want of revenge against the uh, kingdom of Tiltepec. Cortes sent Rodrigo Rangel to the region with 150 foot soldiers in the summer of 1523. But two months later, Rangel returned when he found out the muddy mountain trails were impassable in the rainy, in the rainy season. He tried again in February of the next year, but this time was only partially successful, apparently. Uh, apparently, Rangel was able to quote-unquote pacify the valley, but in the Mixe and Zapotec communities in the highlands, where warriors who were using 15-foot lances and enjoying higher ground from the mountaintops were trying to fight the Spaniards, Rangel's attacks failed, and he didn't get... Uh, uh, he had to retreat from the highlands. And regardless, Rodrigo Rangel did not get to enjoy any of his success. He died of syphilis shortly after that attempted conquest. Now, at any rate, after Rangel's attempts, two expeditions were sent out basically at once. Louis de Barrios de led 100 men from the north and Diego de Figuero with another 100 men from the south. Now, Barrio... Barrios, excuse me, had no success at Tiltepec, just like his predecessors, and he had worse luck too, because he died in the battle where he tried to take the city. Figueroa 
was the first conquistador to have any success against the Zapotecs. In 1526, he founded the first Spanish settlement of the region, Via Alta de San Ildefonso, a place which, from 1529 to 1531, was uh, then later ruled by a very brutal uh, mayor, uh, alcalde, that is what the Spanish called him, the mayor of Via Alta named uh, Luis de Berrio. Um, not to be confused with Luis de Barrios, or maybe it was. No, Luis de Barrio. Now, regardless, uh, Berrio uh, waged unremitting, quote, unremitting carnage and brutality um, against the Indian population of the region, unquote, during a period of extreme terrorism. He's one of many Spanish conquistadors whose crimes have been nearly forgotten by history, but Louis de Berrio was a real asshole. He attacked the Mixe towns of Tonaguia and Totontepec without provocation. Hundreds were killed. Hundreds more were branded and carried off as slaves. Whenever nobles or principals failed to obey Berrio's orders, they were hanged burned and thrown to dogs. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Berrio used heavy-handed tactics in an attempt to provide sufficient labor for mining operations that began in Oaxaca under his command. In at least one occasion, uh, Berrio actually also illegally imported slaves from elsewhere because his conquests weren't getting enough labor. And that doesn't mean Berrio had no Indian allies, though. On the contrary, he had plenty of Nahuatl-speaking allies from central Mexico, especially Tlaxcala and Coacholteca. I don't have the numbers of uh, Berrio's uh, forces, but the Indian conquistadors with him formed the colonial town of Analco, and the inhabitants of that town joined with Spaniards uh, to install the colonial order and put down rebellions in the, in the Oaxaca. Now, with that said, uh, Berrio wasn't particularly popular even amongst his fellow Spaniards. In 1531, an audiencia was undertaken against him, and most of the vecinos of Villa Alta testified against Berrio, even some were who were supposedly his supporters. The most controversial of his crimes was the charge that he'd stripped 16 men who'd obtained encomiendas under the previous administration of their property and given it to his supporters. He was banished from New Spain, ultimately. Half his property was also confiscated. Now, while Luis de Berrio might have been an especially rotten son of a bitch, the author of The Conquest of the Sierra, John Chance, makes it clear that other conquistadors used similar tactics in the Sierra. Um, the Spaniards used war dogs to a large extent, uh, especially in the Oaxaca, both as a means of defense and as an instrument of terror. It was even claimed uh, that most Indians feared the dogs more than the Spaniards. The uh, alcalde, uh, uh, or mayor, before Berrio, his name was Gaspar Pacheco, he was said to have used greyhounds to kill and devour Mixe Indians. And those greyhounds kept a continuous watch over the town of Villa Alta. Another Spaniard who incurred the wrath of the audiencia was Francisco Lopez Tenorio. He lived in the Sierra, and every 80 days, as was customary in the region, he exacted tribute from the towns of Yagavia, Zuguchi, and Lo 
bani in the term of gold, cacao, cotton, cloth, corn, turkeys, and honey. Now, of course, his collection of tribute from his encomiendas had nothing to do with why the audiencia was after him. Rather, Tenorio got in trouble in 1537 on account of the extreme punishments he meted out to his Indians. Reportedly, Tenorio cut the ears off one man. He would sometimes burn cotton cloth produced by his uh, Indians just for the sole purpose that they would have to weave extra. Um, His house servants were kept in chains so that they couldn't escape. Uh, The principal Indians in his encomiendas were especially vulnerable. If Tenorio's anger turns toward them, they would often be killed. The cacique of Yagavia was killed by Tenorio's dogs and then hanged. Another principal was hanged in the village for not fully cooperating with Tenorio's demands. Uh, The the, the, uh, residencia of 1537 ultimately jailed Tenorio for a time and banished him permanently from Oaxaca. Just so you know, though, in the 1540s, he surfaced again as a regidor in the city of Antiquera. The conquistadors may never have been satisfied, but rarely did they see justice. At any rate, transportation was difficult at Via Alta, just like it was almost impossible to fight on horseback in the Sierras. Um, the Spaniards who lived there um, complained that their horses and mules kept falling off carts and cliffs. Uh, excuse me, not carts. They fell off cliffs, and as such, they received permission to use Indian porters to transport goods uh, more often than anywhere else in Mexico, basically. Um, elsewhere in Mexico, animals basically supplanted humans as porters, but uh, uh, the natives of the region did the heavy lifting in the Oaxaca, maybe more so than anywhere else in New Spain. And that might have had something to do with the numerous local uprisings that started to take place in Oaxaca. Now, while these were generally local, in the 1530s, many quote-unquote incidents took place. In 1531, the Zapotec city of Tiltepec engaged in a rebellion so severe that Luis de Berrio called them, quote, the worst Indians of the land, unquote, during that rebellion, Seven Spaniards lost their lives, and ultimately the Spaniards at Tiltepec required aid from their neighbors to subdue the rebellion. And in total, from 1526 to 1533, about a dozen Spaniards lost their lives in the Oaxaca, which paled, of course, in comparison to the casualties inflicted on the natives. Diego de Figueroa, who first parceled out encomiendas in the region to his men in 1526, um, and all of these were only in the territory he'd conquered, included the towns of Cuesmaltepec, Hoyatepec, La Chechina, Totolinga, and Zultepec. In 1528, Gaspar Pacheco, uh, after Figueroa departed, Gaspar Pacheco took over. He redistributed those towns to his followers, and he added uh, several more towns, Cacaltepec, Ixquantepec, Teolzalco, Tiltepec and Yabago. Later, Pacheco distributed more conquests. Um, all of these places were conquered by Pacheco and put under the encomienda of the expanding Empire of New Spain. Uh, the, ultimately, the entire valley fell under the control of the new empire. Records from the 1540s indicate that the most valuable encomiendas were in the Valley of Oaxaca, 
the encomenderos in the, in the highlands of the Sierra did not collect as much tribute, which consisted generally of turkeys, corn, cacao, honey, chili, beans, cotton cloth, and a few villages uh, gave gold dust. Now, the Spanish conquest would hardly be an apt metaphor if Cortes only went south. He also sent an army to the west, to the Tarascan state, or what the Aztecs called Michoacan. I talk quite a bit about the Tarascans in Blood Oath, and I'm pretty sure, though, I didn't realize until I was doing the research for this episode that the name which the Tarascans called themselves was the Purapucha. And so the Purapucha is the correct name for these people. Uh, my apologies if I think I got that wrong. Incidentally, they spoke a language that isn't related to any other Mesoamerican language. It's believed that the Purapucha people at some point originated elsewhere. Probably uh, they were... Pacific seafarers from South America who made their way to Western Mexico. Um, at any rate, interesting. Uh, more on them in Blood Oath if you want. But at any rate, the Purapucha were in conflict with the Mexica. Like Tlaxcala. But unlike Tlaxcala, the Purapucha were free because they whipped the, Sp- the Aztecs' asses. Um, Montezuma's father, Axacayatl, led a Mexica army into the lands of the Purapucha to conquer them in 1478. But the next year, they were soundly defeated in Purapucha lands. 20,000 Mexica warriors were killed and captured out of the 24,000 involved. These were defeated, mind you, by an army of 10,000. The survivors of the Mexican army were hounded all the way back to the border by the Tlatoani of uh, Tsinsunsan, uh, the capital of the Purapucha. Uh, the Tlatoani at that time was... Uh, uh, Tsitsis Pandacuare, I apologize if I got that wrong. Anyway, the Mexica never attempt another invasion of the Purapocha again. And in fact, Axacayatl, who was wounded in the thigh in the battle, would die months later from the infection. Now, the Purapocha, therefore, had d- developed something of a reputation for invincibility because of this. But that didn't stop Cortes from sending an army there under the command of Cristobal de Olid in the summer of 1522. Uh, Olid and his forces made their way to the capital of Tsinsunsin, the, pal- the place of the hummingbirds, uh, is what that uh, means, uh, where they were reportedly frightened by a massive army amassed there, quite possibly just like the Mexica had been frightened several generations earlier. This time the army was amassed by the son of uh, Tsitsis Pandacuare, his name was uh, Tanga Zawan, much easier to pronounce. Uh, the Spaniards, though, weren't the only ones who were frightened. Hugh Thomas writes that Tanga Zawan fled in the face of Olid and his army, that he then, after fleeing, went around spreading rumors that he had drowned, and it wasn't until after that uh, Tanga Zawan had gone into hiding and Olid, as a result, decided that he could just sack the undefended royal palace that Tangazawan returned. And so after that, basically, instead of a conquest, Tangazawan seems to have been basically able to make peace with Olid by playing off the Spaniards' love of gold to simply leave 
with the assurances that the Purapucha were definitely super loyal vassals to Cortes and Spain. Now, this didn't mean things worked out great for Tangazoan. This put him in a position that wasn't entirely different than that of Montezuma earlier, because Tangazoan and a few other nobles from Tintinsin were forced to go now to Mexico City. Whew, scary for him, but since he arrived in Mexico City with several loads of gold and silver and promised again to be an excellent vassal to Cortes and the King of Spain, Tangazoan was treated as a visitor, not a prisoner. The Kazansi returned to Tintunzan, essentially a willing vassal of Cortes, and this worked great in the short term, as long as Cortes was in control. Unfortunately, though, for Cortes, Olid, and the other Spaniards who were eager for some of the treasure, the Purapucha mixed all of their gold with copper, so it turned out it wasn't nearly as valuable to the Spaniards upon close inspection as they thought it had been, but regardless, as far as the Spaniards were concerned, Mishawakan was conquered, or at least conquered enough, that Cortes wrote back to Spain to report exactly that. Almost as valuable as the treasure obtained by Olid's conquest was the peace between New Spain and Tinsunsan. But really, after Olid's encounter, Cortes was able to send another agent, Francisco Montano, who was then able to just reconnoiter and in his travelings um, through the entire uh, province of what the Spaniards called Michoacan, and that revealed a few things. First, Montano discovered that there was another kingdom west of uh, that also lay west of Tenochtitlan, uh, the kingdom of Colima. The people of Colima were. Um, who were known as the Tecos, spoke a language that was related to Nahuatl, and they were the enemies of the Purapucha. More on Colima soon, but let's stick to Michoacan for now. Now, Cortes spent another small expedition to survey the other various towns of Michoacan. This was under the command of Antonio de Caraval, um, that expedition did miss a couple of the small towns of the region, but basically that gave Cortes a catalog for um, essentially the entire province. Um, and so he was able to just start doling out encomiendas to his followers. So if you didn't get the idea from Cortes's conquests at Oaxaca, his conquest of Michoacan is basically proof that New Spain was a lot more powerful than uh, the Aztec Empire had been. Uh, the Purpucha were free, um, had been free despite numerous attempts by the Aztecs to subjugate them, but in a very short amount of time, uh, Cortes reduced what has become known to history as the Tarascan Empire to just a tributary state of New Spain. The new economy of Michoacan was dominated by the encomiendas, uh, the mining industry, and the introduction of wheat and grapes for wine. However, the fact that Michoacan was dominated by encomiendas does not mean it was dominated by the encomenderos who owned said encomiendas. That's because of a law passed in Mexico City in 1524 that was designed to keep Mexico City from ever being defenseless. And the law stated that no encomendero was 
allowed to essentially to go search for gold or to go live in his encomienda. Instead, he had to send employees or agents or what have you to accomplish these goals. So the men who became encomenderos, who owned the land and Indians, were not the same men who were the miners, the herdsmen, and the overseers who were the main residents of Michoacan in those early years. Uh, to quote Benedict Warren, quote, they are generally faceless men whose names appear occasionally on contracts and lawsuits, but who left little imprint on history. Yet they were the managers, the local administrators, who saw to it that the encomiendas functioned as they were expected to, unquote. Uh, these, of course, then, were the men that would incur the wrath of the Purapucha because they were the men who saw the collection of tribute and other daily impositions put upon the native population by the encomenderos. Now, with that said, if the lives of most of the miners, herdsmen, and middle managers are obscured, well, that means we know almost nothing of the lives of enslaved Africans in Michoacan. There is insufficient documentation to allow, really, for much understanding, except to note that occasional records of sales and deaths make it clear that African slaves played a significant part in the history of Michoacan. Uh, other than to say that they were often the overseers for Indian workers on encomiendas, though, there's not a lot I know. Um, anyway, most of the towns of Michoacan, though, were not in mineral-producing areas. They instead produced tribute in the form of corn, beans, chili, fish, salt, and other local products, blankets, footgear, pottery. Um, the towns that did produce uh, minerals, though, were, were, there were a few of those. Cortez took control of much of the silver-producing parts of Michoacan, incidentally. The towns of Samalula, Zapotlan, Tuxpan, those all became his encomiendas. Uh, incidentally, the crown took Cortez's encomiendas in Michoacan from him as soon as possible. But even with Cortez's oversized prospects, he was not, uh, not by any means, the only Spaniard engaged in the business of silver mining in the region. Uh, and in 1524, when Cortez left Michoacan and went to Honduras, he alleged that he had trouble finding troops because soldiers who'd heard about the silver in Michoacan had settled in the region. Uh, one man in particular, Francisco Morcillo, uh, discovered quote unquote, a silver mine in Michoacan in 1525, which was considered to be the richest discovered in New Spain to that date. Incidentally, officials in New Spain claimed this for the crown as quickly as they could as well. In turn, that mine mysteriously went dry. It was late as 1587, the Franciscan commissary general visited the region and mined 500 marks of silver in five days from that same mine. Huh. I mean, really, it's just some sort of mystery. Anyway, I tell you that to give you the idea of the sort of shenanigans going on. By the end of 1525, in fact, Spanish officials feared irregularities of the silver mining industry in Michoacan, that these, they feared that these irregularities were so severe that they asked the king for permission to build a smelter in Michoacan so that the silver ore could be processed locally and then taken to Mexico City for refining. The reasoning for this request was that local Indians, enslaved Africans, and Spaniards alike were all just taking the ore themselves to smelt and refine in their own houses. And as you might imagine, Spain, like all governments, didn't really take kindly to, producing, to people producing their own currency. 
And also, not surprisingly, not nobody engaged in this activity in Mishawakan was engaging in the paying the king's fifth or even a tenth for their illegal silver. Some of these people from Mishawakan were even bold enough to go to the port to bribe port officials to let them pass, just making a fortune in silver from Mishawakan and immigrating back to Spain, tax-free. Now, records don't really allow for a complete look at silver mining in Mishawakan in those early years. For example, we have no idea of how many slaves Cortes employed in obtaining the silver, and he was by far the largest silver miner. Benedict Warren believed that uh, records do exist, um, that the records that do exist reveal only the tip of the iceberg. So we don't know the size of the silver rush, but we do know that by 1527, the silver rush in Mishawakan was already pretty much over. Records of that time indicate numerous conquistadors recalling their slaves from Mishawakan, presumably because of disappointing profits. Juan de Najera and Juan Perez de Herrera reclaimed 67 slaves from the mines of San Cristobal in June 1527. In August, via Pedro de Villanueva went to court to recover 56 slaves and their tools from a mine in Michoacan, and in September, Juan Rodrigo's Cerezo made a similar request to recover his 22 slaves. Given the amount of homemade silver money, though, we really don't, of course, have any idea how much wealth was extracted during those few years, though by Cortez's own admission, his, his wealth, at least, was considerable from his Michoacan encomiendas. He was getting about 4,500 pesos of gold uh, per year, uh, or at least that's what was recorded in 1525. Uh, anyway, the most brutal of the encomenderos in Michoacan was uh, a real son of a bitch named Alonso de Mada who, in quote, was the kind of sociopath upon whose actions the black legend was built, unquote, in the words of Benedict Warren. Uh, Mata is the only encomendero of Michoacan who was removed from his encomienda for bad behavior, uh, which was very, very bad. But his uh, example also shows the extraordinary leniency which Spaniards basically had over their indigenous subjects. Mata ran the encomienda Akuma, which is now known by the Nahuatl name Tuzantla. And Mata had a habit of stealing free Indians who worked as messengers and porters. And of the 200 uh, Purapucha who worked to carry supplies between Okuma and the nearby mines, Mata basically stole 20 of them, 10%, and branded them as his personal slaves. That's just for starters. Because when one principal and a commoner once refused to bring Mata a few Indian girls, which he requested, he beat the two men in their testicles so badly that they died a few days later. For that same reason, in another circumstance, Mata set dogs on two commoners, killing them for not bringing him pretty girls. When some of his slaves escaped and the principal refused to tell Mata where they were hiding, Mata subjected them to the water torture and kept him tied upside down for 12 straight hours. That principal died 20 days later. When Mata could recapture a runaway slave, he cut off their noses, and another slave was beaten to death for having lost a hoe. 
One of the witnesses in the 1531 trial against Mata testified that he was imprisoned and chained to a post by the Encomendero for 80 days because he did not take corn, beans, and other supplies to the mines quickly enough. After an investigation and trial, Mata was removed as Encomendero of Okuna, and, but besides a fine of 32 pesos and banishment from the town, Mata faced no further punishment. As an old man, he felt confident enough in his service to Spain that he wrote a letter of appeal to the king, asking for a larger pension as a conqueror, because all his encomiendas had been taken away, of course. At any rate, before we finally move on from Mishawakan, I think it's worth diving into the thoughts of Benedict Warren one last time. Warren states it would be an oversimplification to interpret the Purapucha submission to Spanish rule as cowardice. Uh, we should remember there was no love lost between the Mexica and Purapucha before the arrival of the Spaniards. And so the Kazansi of Tsinsunsan had reasons not to ally against the Spanish, um, or excuse, excuse me, had reasons to ally against excuse me, had reasons to ally with the Spanish. I'm sorry. Further, um, when the Kazansi met the Spaniards, he was a young king. Kangazoan killed three of his brothers when he took the throne for alleged disloyalty. And from the account of uh, one Purapucha, uh, Don Pedro, that a serious struggle took place. Uh, between the various factions of the Purapucha before and after Spanish contact. Uh, the Kazansi Tangazoan realized that Spanish firearms and horses would enable a young king like himself to gather more power. Uh, so he had a lot of reason to ally with Cortes. But anyway, in many ways, his strategy was successful, obviously in implementation, um, almost flawless. But in practice, it didn't really um, didn't really work. Um, that's because Cortez' rule in New Spain was far more insecure than uh, the Purapucha could have realized at the time. Cortez was the authority in New Spain only as long as Cortez held royal favor back with the king. And uh, well, more on that soon. Now, lest you think the Purapucha were invincible. Tangazoan was preceded by the Tlatoani Zawanga. Uh, and Zawanga died in 1520 by smallpox. Uh, uh, or I see, I call them the Tlatoani, the Kazansi Zawanga. Anyway, Zawanga managed to conquer part of the Mixteca Empire, which is based out of Monte Albion, uh, part of the Oaxaca. But mainly, uh, Zawanga was known... Uh, well, also, I guess I suppose he's known for dying of smallpox. He's mainly known for having lost a substantial chunk of the Purapucha Empire in a war earlier against rebelling Tacos. It's known as the Saltpeter War in English. Um, anyway, it's a conflict that lasted from 1480 to 1510, wherein the Tacos managed to wrest away fully a quarter of the Purapucha Empire in this war. It included the loss of very profitable salt-producing regions of the empire, as well as the cities of Colima and Jalisco. Basically, the kingdom of Colima basically sprang up from that rebellion. Well, regardless, Zoanga wasn't necessarily a very popular ruler after that. 
And when he died in 1520, the new emperor of the Puraputra, Tengazoan, had a lot of motivation, um, like I said already, to ally with the new power player in Mexico, the Spaniards. I mean, hell, if the Spaniards were powerful enough to defeat the Aztecs, well, maybe not only could I use them to stay in power myself, maybe I could use them to help defeat Colima and return Michoacan uh, to its former glory. So Tangazoan was very eager to discuss a possible invasion of Colima with Cristobal de Olid and later with Cortes. Of course, the Spaniards agreed when Tangazoan informed them just how wealthy the province of Colima was. Uh, technically, though, Cortes was beaten to the punch by one of his own captains. Uh, taking a page out of Cortes' own playbook, uh, Juan Rodriguez de Villafuerte went to Colima on his own with the force to conquer it in a very rebellious fashion. Unfortunately for Juan Rodriguez de Villafuerte, he was soundly defeated by the army of the Tlatoani of Colima. And who was that? Well, it's the same guy who was in charge during the Saltpeter War, Kalimado. The Tlatoani Kalimado is one of the least known, but who deserves to be well-known generals in history. And I want to be clear. Kalimado might very well be one of the worst people in all of history. He might be as bad as any of the conquistadors we talk about, for all I know. And from what I can tell, the reason the Saltpeter War started was that Kalimado and maybe some other powerful nobles in Colima just didn't want to be vassals of the Purapucha anymore. They wanted to be in charge, or specifically, he wanted to be in charge of the Colima Empire. Whatever. And coming from a culture related to the Mexica, I mean, it's possible that, I mean, it's very possible that Colimato personally sacrificed God knows however many people in taking control of that empire or the kingdom or what have you. Well, what I'm saying there, though, is if there's something to be respected in the conquistadors, at least the successful ones like Cortes, well, then Colimato deserves a tip of the cap, I suppose, because he didn't just defeat Juan Rodriguez de Villafuerte, he defeated him twice. Though Villafuerte would ultimately get an become an encomendero in the region. Now, Villafuerte's defeat was great news, I guess, from uh, Cortez's perspective, I suppose. Um, he was able to essentially uh, send uh, his own force then to defeat Calimato and the Tecos. Uh, this army was under the command of a certain Francisco Alvarez Chico. And Chico was soundly defeated by the army of Calimato. Cortes next sent Cristobal de Olid to the region again. He was defeated by Colimato. And finally, Cortes, uh, with, uh, by sending Gonzalo de Sandoval with a force uh, of combined Spanish and Purapucha warriors, um, they were able to succeed. Colimato uh, was killed, and the kingdom surrendered. Cortes wondered, uh, excuse me, Cortes wrote that the Spaniards inflicted severe punishment on the natives of Kalimato probably indicated that a lot of them were enslaved. He also ordered Sandoval to found a town which would take the name Colimán. And then in 1521, excuse me, another settlement on the Pacific with a harbor and shipbuilding yard. From the perspective of the Spanish Empire, a, a giant achievement. And Cortés knew it. His ambition grew, if you can believe it. In his next letter, he explained to Charles V that his plans for the Southern Sea were, quote, greater than anything else in the Indies, unquote, since it, he planned on conquering China next. 
with the help of this new shipbuilding yard in the Pacific. Well, after the initial entradas into the north, Cortez put one of his relatives in charge as lieutenant governor of the region, Francisco Cortez. We don't know much about this other Cortez. We don't even know how he and Hernando Cortez were related. But Francisco Cortez left Mexico City in early 1524. He was accompanied by vecinos of Colima and other men recruited at Mexico City. He led a smaller entrada than many of the other captains, and, but he did go about sallying forth and getting into conflict with various peoples who lived north of Colima, including Coras, Texuejes, Tequales, and Cascanes, all people who had a lot in common with other Mesoamericans, but all who spoke their own distinct languages. And, um, anyway, other than leaving a trail of destruction, uh, the other Cortes... Um, didn't really accomplish a whole lot. Uh, he did almost completely destroy one pueblo called uh, Zalapanga uh, in the Espuchimilco Valley. I hope I said that right. The people living there became so fearful of the Spaniards after uh, Cortez and his entrada went by that they would no longer plant crops in the ground. They were too fearful that uh, Spaniards would steal them. After uh, Cortez and his entrada passed through the valley of Ayutla, only 23 houses apparently remained in the valley that hadn't been burned. The ruler of that pueblo told inspectors later um, that, quote, they killed the people of the pueblo when they conquered it, unquote. And other than devastation, like I said, Cortez, he didn't really seem to leave a lot of impact in the region, but he did manage to just royally piss off everyone in, in, in the north and basically just set the whole region into war. The only ally he managed to make was the city of Tepic. It formed an alliance with Francisco Cortez to attack their enemy, Jalisco, which is a relatively unimportant place in, this, in North Mexico at the time. It was a town without any subject communities. But Jalisco just, you know, it does become the name for the whole province later, so it's got that going for it. At any rate, the people of Jalisco surrendered to Francisco Cortez and the Tepecs, and that would have a big impact later when another Spaniard, Nuno de Guzman, would come to the region also seeking tribute. At any rate, like I said, there's no account of Francisco Cortez's expedition, not one that survives to today. Uh, uh, he did write a letter, apparently, to Hernando Cortez, but it's lost to history, and so we just don't know a whole lot about the uh, about what the situation north of Colima was uh, at that time. Uh, the social situation is a little bit of a mystery, too. Apparently, most of the communities were peopled by Otomis. There were also a lot of uh, Nahuatl-speaking people there. Um, but the Spaniards called the Nahua-speaking people north of Colima Nahuatatos. That's a word that specifically means in Nahuatl, someone who could speak clearly, an interpreter, or someone who was a... An interpreter was someone who was a Nahuatato, say, in Mexico City. So it, it's a sort of... Very simplified, you know, very simplified thing that uh, it makes it very difficult in some ways to understand what's going on with the uh, people of Northwest Mexico. Um, anyway, likewise, uh, we don't have documents from the indigenous perspective 
uh, of people in the Northwest. What I can tell you, though, is it's likely that those people's lives began to change before the Spaniards arrived, like lives began to change in many places in the Americas before the Spaniards arrived. Disease probably spread there before the Spaniards did, like it did in many other parts of America. I can tell you for certain that the region simmered on the edge of rebellion. Um, after the other Cortes headed back south um, towards Colima, he made, war, quote, making war and conquering, unquote, on the way back, by the way, uh, because uh, later on, well, we'll see. Uh, the entrada he made north of Colima allegedly lasted about nine months. Now, anyway, uh, Cortez was interested in Oaxaca and Michoacan and, and beyond in the north because Montezuma informed him that there was gold in those parts of Mexico. In contrast, Cortez was interested in Panuco because he needed to keep his rivals out of Mexico. Panuco is north of Veracruz, on the Gulf Coast, and just like Michoacan and the Oaxaca, it was independent of the Aztecs, simply too far from central Mexico for them to effectively control. Though, just so you know, the Aztecs did love going to war against the Huastecs to live there to obtain slaves. Now, the Huastecs spoke a language related to Maya, and they didn't live governed by a single political unit larger than the city-state except to come together under uh, a single leader during times of war, either with Spain uh, or before that against the Mexica. Now, the region's main source of wealth before the conquest was food production. Panuco produced little mineral wealth. Now, Cortez's problem was that Francisco de Garay, the governor of Jamaica, saw Panuco as a way for him to increase his fortunes and to burst onto the Mexican scene. Gray sent an entrada to the coast, commanded by Alonso Alvarez de Pineda. Pineda. Pineda set off with four ships in 1519, about the same time that Cortez and his expedition was laying out the city of Veracruz. Now, Pineda was the first European to sail along the entire length from Florida to Veracruz and made a subsequent voyage which went up the mouth of the Panuco River a few months after that. But on neither of these expeditions was he successful in doing what Garay wanted, planting a colony in Panuco. Cortez met with Pineda's expedition head-on, in fact, and asked basically, hey, you know, so what are you doing here in Mexico? You heard this is mine, right? Well, basically, that conversation let Cortez on to the fact that he was going to have a major challenge with Garay and Panuco. And by conversation, I mean Cortez kidnapped eight of Pineda's men when they came ashore near Veracruz. And at any rate, a big part of why Pineda's attempt at colonizing the Panuco River failed was because the Huastecs fought with tactics that the Spaniards just had never encountered in the New World, and which just so happened to work extremely well against cavalry. Huastec armies were fond of constructing constructing defensive fortifications that consisted of a circle of pikes, and then they would fight from behind those defensive circle of pikes by shooting arrows. Now, the other reason the colony failed was that a revolt occurred shortly after it was founded. I don't know why. 
This was right about the same time that Garay sent a ship with supplies and reinforcements under the command of Diego Camargo. Now, Camargo ended up bringing about 60 survivors who were sick, yellow, and bloated with disease from Panuco to Veracruz. Like I said, we don't know exactly what happened. Maybe the reason we don't know what happened, too, is also because Camargo died from the illness. Who knows? The, anyway, the, the report might be lost. We, we don't know. But those survivors ended up joining with Cortez. Goray, meanwhile, continued to send ships to his now defunct colony. And if you remember last episode, uh, there's a point where Cortez just keeps getting resupplied with mysterious supply ships. Um, well, it was quite some time before Goray finally realized he was just throwing buckets of money out the window. Uh, at any rate, Pineda's colony only lasted for about 40 days. Now, this was great news, I guess, for Cortez. Those reinforcements really helped him out a lot, conquering the Aztecs, as we discussed last episode. But even after the conquest, he was worried about Panuco and Garay. Despite the failure of Garay's colony, Cortez knew he was dealing with a rival who could bring to bear a lot of financial resources in any attempt at conquest. And in fact, his failure to start up a successful colony notwithstanding Garay nevertheless received the title of Adelantado of Panuco on June 4th, 1521. Now, with that said, Cortes wasn't about to be scared off by the fact that Garay was supposedly the Adelantado of Panuco. In 1522, he made his own substantial expedition into Panuco. He led an army of 400 Spaniards and 4,000 Indian allies into Panuco. <clears throat> Now, you'd think we would know more about this Entrada, but we have surprisingly few details. Cortes wrote about the Entrada in both his second and fourth letters, but he didn't really elaborate much. In his second, he claims that, uh, excuse me, he, he wrote about Panuco in his second and fourth letters. In his second, he claims that he sent seven survivors from Garay's intended colony to back to Panuco to speak with the quote-unquote ruler of the Huastecs. Unquote. Said ruler, apparently, according to Cortes, promptly offered to become a vassal of Spain and Cortes, which seems uh, very convenient and extremely dubious, especially considering, uh, as we discussed, the Hustec people didn't really have a single ruler. Cortes was probably just writing that, making that up whole cloth to convince the king that he, not Garay, should be running Panuco, goddammit. At any rate, in the fourth letter, Cortez mentions this entrada, and he doesn't really add much detail, so there's a lot of unknowns about what exactly happened there. At any rate, Cortez's army did seem to have made its way down the Moctezuma River without encountering resistance until it arrived about 25 leagues from what is modern-day Tampico. That's where a Huastec army met and blocked them. Cortez called them to submit peacefully, uh, to which the reply was an attack by the Huastec army. The battle was on flat ground, ideal for the cavalry. The Huastecs were ultimately routed, and in fact, all subsequent engagements against Cortez's uh, army. Uh, reportedly, Don Fernando Ixotzitzil, the uh, trusted Nahuatl ally, was given command of, an in, of the Indian forces, um, and, and he played a, a substantial role uh, in the conquest, apparently, of Panuco. Nearly a month later, Cortez and his men made uh, a ghastly discovery 
for them when they found the skinned remains of some of the uh, Pineda expedition of 1520. The survivors, who apparently had been turned into leather and preserved by the Huastecs, uh, with such skill that their beards and their hair were intact. And in fact, uh, a few of the conquistadors in Cortez's army could actually recognize some of their old neighbors from Hispaniola. Hey, look, that's Pedro. At any rate, the final campaign against the Huastecs took about two weeks and apparently uh, consisted of several pitched battles. The uh, Huastecs eventually were forced to retreat to a small island. Cortes constructed a fleet of canoes and started to negotiate the capitulation of the Huastecs to himself in Spain. Uh, this surrender apparently didn't come fast enough, and so Cortes ordered a large Huastec town sacked and its inhabitants put to the sword, and so the uh, army did surrender after that. Now, with all that said, the Huastecs were amongst the poorest people in terms of gold in all of Mexico. So, basically, none of the conquistadors who participated in this entrada were very happy about it. Cortes even spent years unsuccessfully lobbying, lobbying to be repaid for what he spent in conquering the province. Uh, of course, that didn't stop him from making claims to the king about the great success he had achieved. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the Gulf is safe for Spanish shipping, he assured King Charles. And to further solidify his claims to the region, he founded the Villa of uh, San Esteban del Puerto. Now, that did not stop Francisco de Garay from trying again. He set out for, in 1523 for Panuco himself in 11 ships with 600 men, a quarter of whom were mounted. The expedition, though, quickly became disgruntled after uh, arriving, uh, perhaps by Garay's leadership, perhaps by the lack of gold in Panuco, regardless in short order. The army was soon trampsing about the countryside, robbing and pillaging while Garay... Uh, essentially pleaded with them to stop. I mean, he wanted a giant Indian army like Cortez had. And uh, he, Garay intended to make a show of force against Cortez's Villa of San Esteban, but after 90 miles of tramping through marshy lowlands, the army was low on supplies, seriously weakened by all of the skirmishes it had engaged in, and by the time they arrived, instead of threatening to conquer San Esteban, Garay's army was begging Saint Esteban for food. In a short period of time, many of Garay's soldiers, the large portion of his army, were effectively disarmed. They had sold their weapons for food. Now, Garay wasn't very happy. The crown wasn't very happy about that either, to be sure. Spain wanted to reign in Cortes, but the crown definitely, absolutely fucking did not want a civil war between conquistadors. They changed tact again and sent orders forbidding Garay from interfering in Panuco further. Garay's authority in Mexico was thus ended, his expedition disintegrating at the same time. Cortes had kind of won again. By default, Panuco was his, at least for now. It was possible that Garay could have continued to be a rival of Cortes anyway, but he died just before 1524, after falling ill, or maybe poisoned by Cortes, it's hard to say. Shortly before falling ill, I will say the fact is that Garay was eating breakfast like a day or two before at the home of Cortes, 
And uh, just see, Gortez is linked with a number of mysterious deaths, just so you know. Uh, including, I think, even his wife. Um, this isn't a Cortez biography, but it's, it's hard to say, unless we were to find and dig up Gray and study his remains, uh, how he died precisely. But like the Oaxaca, Michoacan, and Colima, Panuco was not previously a subject of the Mexica. And now I think you're really starting to understand just how much greater New Spain was than even the Aztec Empire. Well, just so you know, we're not even close to finished. But on the other hand, despite all that's happening until uh, we are finished, you could also make it an argument that Panuco was not conquered yet. Because pretty much at the same time that Garay left Panuco and he went to Mexico City and made peace with Cortez and uh, died or was poisoned, a rebellion in Panuco began. In October 1523, Huastec warriors surrounded every Spanish settlement in Panuco isolating uh, each settlement, and began a siege that lasted until the Spaniards capitulated or starved at the town of Tamaquil, more than 100 encomenderos and other Spaniards died. 30 or 40 more died at Tacatuco. Now, Cortez was nursing a wound which he'd received in his arm, which was bothering him during this time, and so in his stead to quell the rebellion, he sent Gonzalo de Sandoval with 50 horsemen, 100 foot, and 8,000 Mexica and Tlaxcala conquistadors back to the Huastec. By this time, Santa Esteban had been under siege for more than 50 days, and many of them, people there had already starved to death. Details are short, but Sandoval lifted the siege, turning the tide. Three months later, the province was quote-unquote pacified. But by that point, the Huastec rebellion had succeeded in killing perhaps three or four hundred Spaniards. Ultimately, it failed, but the death total makes it literally one of the worst defeats that Spain ever suffers during the entire colonial period. Sandoval oversaw a brutal retaliation for the revolt with the help of, quote, one of the most unscrupulous and mendacious persons in all of New Spain, unquote. Garcia del Pilar. Don't mind the barking dog. Garcia del Pilar worked as Sandoval's interpreter. Through Pilar, Sandoval convinced between three and four hundred uh, Huastec caciques to congregate at the town of Chachapala for a meeting with Sandoval. As soon as the principal Huastec chiefs appeared, they were betrayed, taken captive, and questioned. A few managed to bribe their way to freedom. Almost all of the Huastec nobles who appeared at Chachapala, though, were burned to death at the stake. Reportedly, one after the other, throughout the entire day, in retribution for killed Spaniards. The fact that the uprising ended after this was probably due to the loss of leadership. Leadership. Donald Chipman wrote that the incident put the Huastecs, quote, in a state of stuporous inactivity, unquote. Panuco was, after that, under Cortez's orbit, but he was on thinner ice than ever as far as the crown went from, that, uh, from what happened with Garay. And the crown was really beginning to worry about his ambition. And, you know, he probably really shot himself in the foot, too, by writing to, Chris, to Charles, Oh, and by the way, uh, I've got a port on the Pacific. I'm going to make a fleet and conquer China next. 
Now, legally, Cortez' power in Mexico was still very insecure. He was only the de facto ruler in New Spain. What he wanted was to become viceroy, and Cortez knew that the one way to stay in the good graces of his majesty, though, was more conquests. So Cortez prepared another expedition. He departed in the autumn of 1524 to Honduras. That wound up being the most costly mistake of his life. Why Cortez went there, though, and what went wrong, we're going to have to get into that in a little bit. Because if we're going to talk about that, well, we have to talk about the other southern conquests of New Spain first, probably. So we have to rewind from 1524 back to 1521 and first talk about, uh, I apologize, Guatemala, Guatemala. I kind of switch on, on accident almost between the two pronunciations. Well, let's talk about what Pedro de Alvarado was getting up to. Now, Pedro de Alvarado probably wasn't quite as competent as someone like Gonzalo de Sandoval, who's too impetuous, too hot-headed. But he was undisputedly, perhaps because he was too impetuous and too hot-headed, the busiest of Cortez's captains. Cortez had Alvarado deal with Andres de Tapia. Later, he dealt with Francisco de Garay, before finally uh, Al Alvarado was given his own theater of war, after Cortez began receiving reports that the Mexica colony of Soconusco was being attacked by Maya peoples to the south. Soconusco was near important agricultural lands for chocolate and cotton, which was why the Mexica created the colony. The Quiche and Cachiquel Maya kingdoms nearby, in what is now Guatemala, both fought against Soconusco for access to the lucrative products. Cortez learned about Guatemala in 1521, shortly after his victory over Tenochtitlan. It was part of the, quote, rich and strange lands with many different peoples, unquote, maybe two million of them, which he learned about which were south of the Valley of Mexico. Shortly afterwards, Cortez sent two agents to meet with the Quiches and the Cachacos. Those were the two most powerful nations in Guatemala, and there were two Mayan kingdoms, which then sent emissaries back to Mexico to confirm that the Aztec Empire was indeed destroyed. According to Cortez, he ended up receiving an, a, a, upwards of 100 emissaries from those two Maya kingdoms, which offered up vassalage to Spain. And that might have been, the offer of vassalage might have been purposeful rhetoric on the part of the Maya to avoid being invaded or slow the Spanish advance, but uh, also a number of historians have questioned uh, this, this, this claim that Cortez makes, in the, uh, I should say. No Maya document backs up the claim, and uh, the Quiche and Cachecos were enemies. It seems unlikely that the nations would engage in some sort of group diplomacy. Um, anyway, if the historians are right and Cortez is lying, uh, it's likely he used the story of the offer of vassalage uh, just as an excuse uh, to call any resistance he might encounter subsequently to uh, allow him to call it a rebellion and to go ahead and tell King Charles that Guatemala, well, they are vassals. They're under the orbit of New Spain. If one of the two groups did visit, it was probably the Cachacos. Alvarado received, uh, anyway, a second recorded friendly overture from the lords of Cachaco while he was in Soconusco. Uh, which he took control of before moving on towards Guatemala. 
Now, according to Cortes, Alvarado left Mexico with 120 horsemen and spare mounts for to a total of 160 horses, 300 foot soldiers, four pieces of artillery, and, quote, chieftains from this city and from other cities in this vicinity and with them some of their people, unquote. Cortes was actually uncharacteristically vague about the size of Alvarado's native forces, but men from Tenochtitlan, Cholola, Quaquel, Cholon, Texcoco, Tlaxcala, and Xochimilco all accompanied the army. Thousands of Indian conquistadors went to Guatemala. Now, Alvarado had learned from Cortes well. He was just under 40 years of age. He had brought with him as his captains three of his brothers, Gomez, Gonzalo, and George de Alvarado. His cousins, Hernando and Diego de Alvarado, were also there. Another cousin, Gonzalo de Alvarado y Chavez, and his best friend, the Don Pedro Portocarrero. All were amongst his crew. Alvarado sent messengers ahead of his army, telling the lords of the land that they should submit to Spain or he would make war on them. And since Nahuatl was spoken by many people in the region, it was relatively easy to communicate. At the start of the Entrada, most towns were willing to feed Alvarado's force, probably to help them get going along to the next town. But when Alvarado left for Sonoconusco and made his way to the Cachicel capital of Iximche, the Mayan rulers of that city gave Alvarado more than food. They also gave him clothing, cacao, and 20,000 pesos worth of gold, not to mention 5,000 Cachicel Maya conquistadors, so that Alvarado would help them conquer their enemies. Now, historians have questioned why the Cachicel gave so much aid to Alvarado, given the fact that Guatemala was being decimated by smallpox, um, in, from 1523 and 1524, 5,000 men is a significant loss of manpower, but I, I don't really see what's so mysterious about why they wanted to ally with Alvarado. The Mayan kingdoms had been wracked by warfare for centuries, and besides Soconusco, the Cachicel were enemies with the Quiche, as well as another Maya kingdom, the Tutuchils. The Alvarado and the Cachicels became allies very quickly. And of course, the result of the gift of gold well, that just made Alvarado a lot more interested in what else Guatemala had to offer. Now, Alvarado traveled with his now 5,000-man stronger army to the highlands of Guatemala, where the principal Quiche settlements were to be found, including, including Utatlan and the court of the Quiche kings. The trail was very difficult for the horses, who could barely make it up the trail, but on February 20th, 1524, Alvarado arrived in Quiche territory, where he was issued a challenge in the traditional Maya form, the discovery of a sacrificed dog and woman on the road. Isn't that lovely? The Quiche then attacked in what is called the Battle of Il Pinar. About 4,000 warriors were stationed in a fortified encampment in the highlands, and Alvarado's army was forced to retreat. But Alvarado had knew a lot of tricks by this point, however, and while he, when he was initially forced to retreat, he uh, succeeded in getting the Quiche soldiers to follow him, uh, where Alvarado, quote, thanked God that there we found some plains, unquote. A number of skirmishes followed. On those plains, the Quiche had never before fought Spanish horses, and after Alvarado rallied with the horsemen, quote, turned on them, a very severe pursuit and punishment was made, unquote, according to Alvarado's letter back to Cortes. One of the important Quiche leaders was killed in the Battle of El Pinar. We don't know who, 
But uh, according to uh, Bernal Diaz, quote, from that victory on, those people very much feared Alvarado, unquote. Altunataya, the son, as Alvarado was called by the Nahuas, continued on with his army. He went on to the capital of the Quiche, Kumarkaj in Maya, Utatlan in Nahua. Alvarado and his force were let into the capital without a fight, which offered to surrender. He was suspicious that this was a trap, having and wrote to Cortez that the city, quote, more resembles a robber's stronghold than a city, unquote. Surely it takes one to know one. He believed the Quiche let him inside so that at night they could set fire to the town and burn his army inside it. And in fact, part of the wooden causeway leading in and out of the city had been undermined before he arrived. Alvarado discovered, uh, quote, so that at night they could might finish cutting it, he, unquote, which would have kept any Spaniard or horse from leaving. Uh, Alvarado ordered his men instead, then, to make camp outside of town at ground level. They only took control of the town gates, and uh, he ordered them to stay prepared. Uh, somehow, we don't know how, probably because I guess he controlled the gates, perhaps, but Alvarado pulled the rug out from his would-be captors, he managed to entice the Quiche leaders to his encampment out of the city where he promptly had them taken captive. All Alvarado mentioned of the incident, though, is was that many of his Indian allies died, uh, and one Spaniard as well, but it was accomplished. What happened next is more clear. Alvarado concluded that, quote, to strike fear in the land, unquote, was what he must do. And after torturing confessions out of two of the captive rulers, burning them at the stake, he ordered Kumarkaj, the capital city of the Quiche, burned to the ground. Next, Alvarado decided to test the loyalty of his Cachicel allies. He ordered them to raise another army of 4,000, which he would use to punish the Quiches further. The Cachicels promptly gathered this army of 4,000 from their capital, um, and a bloody campaign against various Quiche towns followed. For eight days, Settlements were laid to waste. Quiche people were enslaved, branded, and redistributed amongst the victors. How many died? That's just a matter of pure conjecture. But the campaign has been was described as a quote-unquote slaughter. Alvarado spent much of that spring near Utatlan, and besides killing, he also became a father to one of the first mestizas in New Spain, a daughter named Leonor, uh, af named after Le Alvarado's mother. Leonor's mother was Doña Luisa Zicontecato, Alvarado's Tlaxcala escort, and I mention this for a couple of reasons. One of them, I guess, is that proof that all the monsters of this world are human beings. On May 11th, Alvarado left Utatlan to head back to Iximchi, the Cachical capital. In contrast to his experience with the Quiche, Alvarado felt comfortable enough in Guatemala that he slept in the ceremonial center of the city in a place which translates into English that means Skullrack Palace. The next day he met with the rulers of the Kekchekels and warned them, for starters, that if they ever double-crossed him, they would be sorry. In addition, Alvarado asked the Kekchekels, who else besides the Quiche were their enemies? They basically replied, well, the two Tujils. Oh, and the Pipils! These were two rival Maya kingdoms who the Cachicles disliked, apparently, almost as much as the Quiche, and Alvarado sent messengers to the Tutuchils and demanded their capitulation, 
those messengers were promptly killed. Alvarado therefore attacked. He brought 60 cavalry, 150 foot soldiers, and, quote, chieftains and people of this land, unquote, to Tiquanaha, Tiquinaha, excuse me, the capital of the Tutigils, who fought Alvarado's army in a upon a fortified outcrop which overlooked the lake. Alvarado and his men stormed the fortress when the battle ultimately turned against the Tutugils. Uh Many of them ended up throwing themselves into the water of the lake, uh, and actually a lot of them escaped to another island. Alvarado blamed this escape on his native allies, uh, essentially claiming they did not paddle fast enough to have caught them. Uh, regardless, a short time afterwards, the leaders of uh, Tsiquinaha appeared before Alvarado, bearing gifts, and afterwards Alvarado described them, quote, as the most pacific that are in the land, unquote, of course not meaning oriented with the ocean, uh, rather being peaceful. Uh, Alvarado was not finished with conquering. 25 days after returning from his campaign against the Tutuchils, he was on the march again off to punish the Pipils, who uh, lived in what is now modern-day El Salvador. With that said, between El Tonataya and the Pipils was the territory of the Zinca people, who, by the way, were not happy about a giant army trumpsing about their land uh, on their way somewhere else, uh, and they engaged in very successful resistance against Alvarado by well, basically engaging in the same sort of two-faced behavior which the Spaniards so often employed. Alvarado and his army approached the city of Atiquipeque. Atiquipeque. Oh, that's a tough one. Atiquipeque. Wow. Antiquapaque, where the inhabitants, I apologize for saying that like four times in a row, the inhabitants of that town received him kindly, and then fled shortly after that, perhaps in a way to avoid having to feed the hordes of hungry soldiers who just arrived, quote, more than 6,000 men in total, unquote, according to Alvarado. At any rate, El Tonataya then decided to continue on and, you know, he'd come back to Atiquapeque on his return to punish them later. He was off to the city of Taquilula, where the people of that city gave Alvarado and his army a great welcome and then fled. He experienced the same at Taxisco, another Zinca city, before continuing to move his army on to another city, Nankintla. Um, when his army was about two or three leagues from Nankintla, the Zinca attacked. Apparently, they'd been using their, their time hiding in the wilderness from the Spaniards to come up with a pretty good plan for a counterattack to punish Alvarado for traveling through their land and taking all the food from other cities. In the ensuing battle, many of the Mexican allies were killed, according to Alvarado. Important supplies were raided and lost, including the strings for crossbows and a large quantity of iron. Alvarado dispatched his brother George, with 40 or 50 cavalry to catch up with the stolen goods. But although George claimed to have caught them and routed those responsible, he was unable to recover anything. In fact, the only thing he even actually managed to find was clothing that had been stolen. And by finding stolen clothing, I mean George saw Zinka warriors wearing the shredded remains of the reappropriated clothing as loincloths. Regardless, 
Alvarado's army continued through Zinca territory, and at the next town of Pasaco, uh, the last town they would be at before leaving Zinca territory, the gate of the town was blocked and arrows were stuck in the ground. And if it wasn't self-evident of the Zinca's attentions, two men were also quartering a dog, part of that, you know, the local ritual sacrifice designed as a sign of war for the uh, Amaya. Alvarado fought a battle against the people of pa- Pasaco, chasing them out of the city, and then uh, continued on his march. Not a long time afterwards, the army entered the lands of the Pipalmaya. They passed through several more towns, and uh, then on the Pacific coast, a fierce battle took place as the army neared the city of Akajutla, which, uh, about a half-league from that town, Alvarado reported plumed, well-armed warriors awaiting his arrival. His army continued within bowshot, then advanced again to within half a bowshot. The Pipples did not retreat as they stood on the edge of a forest where they could seek protection, and apparently fought hard against Alvarado's army. Alvarado succeeded, though, thanks to the same tactic he'd used earlier, wherein he feigned treat, and this feint lured uh, the Pipple army after him, and once they gave chase, he turned the horses and unleashed, quote, destruction that was so great that in a short time none were left alive, unquote. Alvarado wrote glowingly of his victory. But that victory was expensive. A number of Spaniards were wounded, Indian allies were killed, and Alvarado himself took an arrow in the leg. It went right through his thigh and was lodged in his horse's saddle, and the complications from that injury left him crippled for life. One leg was left a full four finger widths shorter than the other. The army rested for five days before continuing on, and when they did resume, Alvarado was fast forced to pass command to his three brothers. He overlooked the next battle against the Pipples from a safe distance. By the second battle, the Pipple army was forced to completely change tactics. They understood the Spaniards were at their best on open terrain, and so the Pipples, like the Zinca before them, started to abandon their towns, hiding in the hills. Ultimately, that left Alvarado and his army encamped within the city of Kutzatlan, where all the inhabitants had fled, awaiting for the Pipple elite to meet him and pledge their vassalage. But the only response he got was that they would not obey him, and in fact they would not come out of their secret hiding places in the highlands. This made Alvarado furious, as you would imagine. He ordered expeditions into the mountains, with a, and the result being a number of casualties amongst Alvarado's army as the chief result of those expeditions. Alvarado spent 17 days in Kutzatlan with basically nothing to show for it. He was furious. He ordered that all Pipples captured and any who might be subsequently captured were to be immediately enslaved and branded to cover the cost of, quote, 11 horses that had been killed in conquering them, unquote. The expedition was at a low point and at a stalemate against the Pipples. Alvarado's conquest, his first since setting out, had gone six months with uh, relatively good results, I guess, high hopes. But now, quote, they suffered untold hardship, hunger, and calamity, unquote, wrote the Texcoco author Fernando de Alva Ixal Zochotl. In addition, they found little gold. And so Alvarado was forced to return to Iximchi. Now, perhaps it was the months of near starvation during the Entrada that had followed the alliance. Perhaps it was the thought that the Cachicels 
we're going to have to feed this massive army in their city for God knows how long. Perhaps it was the fact that Alvarado kidnapped Sinecon, the king, and his wife Suchil and held them for ransom. Well, whatever it was. The six-month alliance with the Cachiquels and Alvarado, which had started so promisingly, evaporated into years of rebellion. Probably didn't also help that in addition, when the ransom was paid for the king and queen, Alvarado refused to release Suchil on the reasoning that he wanted to teach the Cachiquel leadership a lesson. There is little doubt that Alvarado's, quote, impetuous and vengeful behavior, unquote, is the reason why the alliance failed, and that jeopardized everything which Alvarado and basically all the conquistadors under him were working towards. And I'm not even sure anybody should have been surprised by this. Alvarado was, after all, the architect of the slaughter in Tenochtitlan at the Temple of Huitzilopochtli, wherein hundreds of Mexica nobles were massacred, that led to the Night of Sorrows, where hundreds of Spaniards lost their lives, and the entire conquest of Cortes was nearly lost. So, too, Guatemala was nearly lost from Alvarado's toxic combination of avarice and imitation. That's from the authors of Strike Fear in the Land. I think that's a great quote. Excuse me. Quote, toxic combination of avarice and intimidation. Quote. The situation continued to deteriorate. By 1526, the long-standing enemy Cachicles and Quiches actually allied with each other against the Spanish, taking advantage perhaps of the absence of Alvarado. Uh, shortly after the alliance began, he left for Spain uh, to make his case that he should be the governor of Guatemala. Uh, and so ultimately, he didn't have anything to do with what followed. It might have been, you could say it was Alvarado's brother George who saved Spanish interests in Guatemala. In March of 1527, he led a massive army, including 6,000 central Mexican conquistadors, and embarked on a three-year campaign which uh, did not entirely end resistance against Spanish rule, but uh, included the founding of Santiago, Santiago de Guatemala, the future capital. And uh, George also uh, distributed encomiendas, um, in 1528. Uh, and ultimately, he, Alvarado, through in part his brother George, uh, Pedro de Alvarado um, as well, uh, at any rate, um, Alvarado was able, through this conquest, to return with from Spain with something that Cortes never got, and that's a viceroyship. Now, albeit the viceroyship of Guatemala was peanuts in comparison to what the viceroy of New Spain would get, and and Cortez at the time did have uh, he was the, the like the captain of New Spain. That's not exactly the same title, um, but in, anyway, incidentally, since I'm doling out credit for the conquest of Guatemala, no small amount of credit. Uh, you know, you know, strike what I said about George de Alvarado should get the credit. The real hero of the con conquest uh, of Guatemala was the aforementioned Doña Luisa, a Tlaxcalan noblewoman who was Alvarado's mistress. And let me tell you, she didn't just have the title Doña for fun. She was extremely important amongst the Tlaxcala. Bernal Diaz wrote that, quote, all of the larger part of Tlaxcala obeyed her and gave her gifts, and they had her for her their mistress, unquote. 
Doña Luisa was a key part of the conquest of Guatemala. She gave birth to Alvarado's daughter, as I mentioned, uh, Doña Leonor de Alvarado. She did that in an armed Spanish camp in hostile territory. And like La Malinche, not a lot has been written about Doña Luisa, but her influence and power amongst the Tlaxcala probably made her a lot more important than she than has been traditionally realized. And I, I tell you, um, you know, just to remind you, you know, women play a very important part in this conquest. Uh, just not a lot of that has been written down, so I can't tell you about it. Doña Luisa was one of five noble women, though, who were given to Spanish conquistadors from the Tlaxcalas, the traditional way in which alliances were cemented in both Mesoamerican and European culture. Now, with that said, far more common were the commoners, men and women who aided the Spanish. After Alvarado took over the rulership of the Cachicos, for instance, 800 men and 800 women were supplied to the encomenderos of Guatemala to work in some gold mines as part of that tribute relationship established. And with that said, even after becoming viceroy of Guatemala, Alvarado remained unhappy. He uh, didn't even spend a lot of time in Guatemala, and the time he spent there, he mostly spent fighting against other Spaniards. Well, that's because our old friend, Pedrarius de Villa, the executioner of Balboa, the governor of Panama. Well, he also sent armies to conquer El Salvador from Alvarado. Alvarado found it impossible to settle down. Restlessness would find him engaged, in fact, all the way uh, up to the end of this episode in the Mixton War. Now, there's going to be more on Pedrarius and Alvarado and the Mixton War in the bit, though. First things first. We need to talk about another of Cortez captains, Cristobal de Olide. Olide, having completed his conquest of Michoacan, if you'll recall, was sent to Honduras by Cortez in order to plant a colony on the northern coast, and in addition, to look for any possible strait that might connect the Atlantic and Pacific. This meant that Cortez had to give Olide control of a few vessels so that they could reconnoiter the coast. And when a detachment of Olid's squadron returned to Olid with a report that the country of Honduras was so full of gold that, quote, fishermen used gold weights for their nets, unquote, well, Olid promptly came up with a new plan that did not, well, it didn't have Cortez as a part of it anymore. Instead, he took a ship to Cuba, and made a deal with Velazquez, Cortez's old enemy. He obtained reinforcements in the form of more men and supplies, and then he went about uh, to conquer Honduras in the name of himself, mainly. Not so much for Cortez at all. And boy, let me tell you, that made Cortez furious. Cortez sent uh, Francisco de las Casas to Honduras to arrest Olid, not to be confused with Bartolome de las Casas, mind you. And in addition to capture Gil Gonzalez de Villa, more on him in a bit, uh, Francisco de las Casas' shipwrecked, uh, excuse me, Francisco de las Casas, though, ended up being shipwrecked on the coast along the way. He was captured by Olid. Well, and then uh, there went that. And Gil Gonzalez de Villa, the other person he is supposed to capture. Well, just so you know, 
Davila, or Davila, I'm not 100% sure, I think that's Davila actually, was leading an entrada north from Panama. Well, Olid captured him as well. Olid, that basically left him pleased as pie for a short time, in charge of Honduras, having capturing enemies left and right. He wrote to Velazquez in Cuba about how awesome everything is turning out, but Velazquez died before the letter arrived. So no reinforcements um, would be coming from a vengeful governor, uh, governor vengeful against Cortez, though, anytime soon, though, however. Now, when Cortez learned of the shipwreck uh, of uh, Las Casas, he said to himself something along the lines of, you know, if you want to handle something right, you got to handle it yourself, and promptly organized a gigantic expedition south, with himself at the lead. He was going to punish Olid, since he figured if he didn't punish rebellion, it was going to set a really bad example. And at this rate, at any rate, Cortez left for Honduras with a huge force. And I want you to keep that in mind, that when he does that, he has no idea that Olid is letting his prisoners walk around freely like guests, not prisoners. And as a result, Francisco de las Casas escapes prison, begins an insurrection against Olid uh, in Honduras, captures Olid, and beheads him in the marketplace of the city of Naco. And I, I just want to tell you all of that now, in advance, because I specifically want you to understand just how pointless this entire expedition Cortez is making is going to be. It is absolutely his greatest failure. It's the worst decision he'll ever make, and it occur it ha began on the 12th of October in 1524. Cortez, armed with a compass, a map furnished by Indian allies from Tabasco, and a few guides, as well as 100 cavalry, 50 infantry, and about 3,000 Indian conquistadors headed south. Amongst the Spaniards was his captain, Francisco de Montejo, the future con conqueror of Yucatan, but at any rate, the march began in, in low marshlands, which numerous streams intersected. Uh, the smaller could be afforded, but as they continued going south, the larger streams and rivers required bridges, and at one point Cortez and his army was slowed by the fact that they had to construct 50 bridges in a span of 50 miles. Uh, Cortez said that he, his army had to cut a thousand trees down for that. So the going went slowly, to say the least. At another point, the ground was, quote, so soft and saturated with water that the horses floundered and sometimes plunged into quagmires, nearly buried in the mud. It was with the greatest difficulty that they could be extricated, unquote. The expedition saw little sign of settled life on the voyage. They were instead forced to, quote, appease the cravings of appetite by such roots as they dug out of the earth, or by the nuts and berries that grew wild in the woods. Numbers fell ill, and many of the Indians sank by the way and died of absolute starvation, unquote. All the while, this also left Cortez completely out of touch with Mexico City. And maybe if you want to be generous, the stress of all that situ of this situation uh, contributed to what happened next. And surely it did contribute. But uh, 
What follows is one of the most shameful events in Cortez's career, because according to Bernal Diaz, two Indian porters in the uh, army who had converted to Christianity, named Tapia and Juan Velazquez, informed Cortez that Guatemaxan and the other native lords were planning an insurrection. An insurrection? On the march? Well, Cortez, paranoid, questioned and tortured the nobles, including Guatemoxen, last emperor of the uh, Aztecs, until they admitted that the plot was true, but they were in no way responsible. Um, or in any way, the nobles who were not Guatemoxen said it was uh, Guatemoxen's fault. Now, Guatemoxen denied it, but Cortez would not listen to uh, a no defense. And so the line of Mexica rulers ended that day. Guatemoxen uh, reportedly, quote, when brought to the fatal tree, displayed the intrepid spirit worthy of his better days. I knew what it was to trust your false promises, Malinche. I knew that you had destined me to this fate, since I did not fall by my own hand when you entered my city of Tenochtitlan. Why do you slay me so unjustly? God will demand it of you. Those were the last words of Guatemoxen. He was slain alongside the lords of Texcoco and Tlacopong. They were hung from the branches of a huge ceiba tree, and I'm not alone in questioning Cortez. Bernal Diaz wrote that the executions were unjust. William Prescott wrote, quote, in reviewing the circumstances of Guatemoxen's death, one cannot attain so much weight to the charge of conspiracy brought against him that the Indians, brooding over their wrongs and present sufferings, should have sometimes talked of revenge would not be surprising. But that any chimerical scheme of insurrection like that above mentioned should have been set on foot or even sanctioned by Guatemoxen is altogether improbable, unquote. Perhaps the truth, then, might be found uh, in, by reading the writings of Fernando de Alva Cortez Ixalzochitl the grandson of the executed lord of Texcoco. Fernando Ixozotl wrote an account based on Texcoco oral tradition. According to the warriors from that city who were along the Entrada to Antores on that day, the three executed lords had heard a rumor that Cortez was going to turn back to Mexico. They were laughing and joking about that, since they were having such a shit-fucked time. Cortez saw them, became paranoid, and invented the story of insurrection in his mind. Well, like I said, whatever the truth of that was, the whole entrada was unnecessary anyway. Olid's prisoners, Las Casas and Davila, were not chained up or confined anywhere. The two of them basically came up with a scheme to get rid of Olid. They found some knives, and while Davila distracted and talked to Olid, Las Casas snuck up behind him, grabbed his beard, and stabbed the rubble in the throat. Olid was an impressive warrior. Bernal Diaz compared him in his writings to Hector, the ferocious warrior of semi-mythical status from the Trojan War. Apparently, he was big and strong enough that despite having been stabbed in the throat, he broke away and ran off to hide. That did not help him much. When Las Casas asked the men who served under Olid to help him, quote, for the king and Cortez against the tyrant Olid, no one rose against Las Casas. Olid was found shortly afterwards, was sentenced to death, and he was beheaded in the square of the city of Naco. On the other hand, this did mean, despite all the, the misfortune which Cortez was suffering, he had retained power south of Mexico in a significant way. 
On the other hand, the significant length of his absence, combined with his inability for a long time to communicate back to Mexico City, meant that his grip on power evaporated in Mexico in his absence. When Cortes left for Honduras, he put a royal treasury official named Alonso de Estrada in charge. Estrada had a lot of trouble governing the various factions that formed, though, and ultimately lost control. Cortes was out of touch with Mexico for so long, others took advantage, encomiendas and other privileges were stripped from some of Cortes's supporters, handed over to the supporters of instead the corrupt treasury officials who were doing that, and incidentally, funerals were even held for Cortes and his men. Permission was granted for the widows to remarry, and when one of the wives in question, a certain Juana Ruiz de Marcia, criticized this and said, hey, what if my husband isn't dead? Officials in charge of Mexico City at the time, who came up with this policy, promptly sentenced her to 100 lashes in public. When Cortes finally did manage to return, the situation did manage to calm in some ways in Mexico City. Cortes, though, for all his ambitions aside, was finally beginning to see something maybe that maybe his, some of his captains had noticed before he did. Mexico was far too large, far too populous. It was just too much for one ruler, even someone as capable as Cortes. After Honduras, Cortes started being sidelined from the management of his own conquests. Physically, the toll Honduras took on him was enormous. He never fully recovered, but far more damaging. Just to let you know, when he returned, he did so by sea, much easier that way. The captain, he could not get past rumors that he'd been taking a lot of the treasure of Mexico for himself. And this has never been proven, and wouldn't be surprised either way. It does seem that most of the treasure was simply hidden or sunk into the lake by the Mexica themselves after the Night of Sorrows and before the ultimate fall of the city. <clears throat> but Cortes was never able to get rid of that cloud of suspicion that followed him. The king started sending an endless supply of royal officials to New Spain, all of whom worked basically to supplant Cortes' authority. Finally, in 1527, Cortes decided that what he needed to do was go lay his case before the king in person. He arrived in 1528 with exotic plants, animals, and a grand retinue of Indian nobles and gifts for Charles V. But the king did not grant Cortes the governorship of New Spain. He was rewarded, amply so. He was given 22 towns as encomiendas, and Cortes chose some of the richest settlements in New Spain out as his 22. He was also granted 23,000 Indians as his vassals, he was awarded the grant title of the Marquis de Val de Oaxaca, an impressive title. After these concessions, this made Cortes one of the very wealthiest men in all of Spain. Still, Cortes took this as a slight. He wanted to be governor. He would never be satisfied. Well, Perhaps it would be a good time to briefly catch up on the aforementioned colony of Panama. If you'll remember, we last spoke of Panama way back in episode three of, or part three of the Conquest of the Americas, uh, Dogs of War. Uh, Pedrarius de Villa ruled Panama after executing Vasco Nunez del Baboa. 
and despite the fact that he was a real dickhead, had managed to engender some loyalty after that amongst the colonists of Panama, chiefly because he distributed 10,000 Indians amongst the 83 Spanish encomenderos of the colony, and that made them all very, very happy. Pedrarius gave himself 500 Indians, and to remind you of the kind of dickhead Pedrarius was, he was over 70 years old by the time Cortes conquered Mexico, and when the Council of Indies sent an agent named Hernando de Celaya to arbitrate the division of that 10,000 Indians which Pedrarius had made, and Celaya reduced Pedrarius' share to 378 Indians, well, Celaya, Celaya promptly and suddenly died in a very mysterious way after that. You know, that tended to happen a lot to people around Cortez, too. At any rate, those were the sorts of tactics which Pedrarius used to stay in power. But much like the Crown continued to send more agents with legal authority against Cortez, the Crown did the same thing in Panama. The goal of the Spanish government was basically to forbid any conquistadors from obtaining enough power that they might be able to break away. Okay, so... That's why the aforementioned future prisoner executioner of Cristobal Olid named Gil Gonzalez Davila came to Panama in the first place. The king, Charles, essentially gave Davila license to steal the Pacific fleet from Pedrarius, which he had at his disposal, to explore 3,000 miles of South Sea coastline. Now, Pedrarius was not happy about that, but his own legal claims to the fleet basically came from his having stolen it from Balboa after executing him. So he didn't really have a great legal case to make, frankly. Ultimately, the two reached an agreement, however. Pedrarius gave Davila the fleet in exchange for a financial share in the expedition. Now, Technically, Davila wasn't offered the license alone either. He shared it with one Perilonzo Nino, just so you know, whom we haven't talked about. What was in way back, I think, at the start of the series. Uh, Perilonzo Nino being the same ship owner who was involved with the Columbus expeditions. And if you're wondering, wow, how the fuck old is Perilonzo Nino at this point? I don't know. It was a relative of his, Andres Nino, just so you know, who went to Panama and... Uh, 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 and worked on under Perilonzo Nino's uh, contract. Uh, anyway, so Andres Nino, Gil Gonzalez de Villa, and a hundred other men tromped about north of Panama. Uh, and during this same time, there's actually a lot more activity in Panama for people headed south looking for Peru, or Biru as the Spaniards call it this time. But in, in January 1523, de Villa and Nino are convinced that wealth lays to the north. They set off in four vessels on the Pacific. They do not find one thing they're looking for, a straight to the Atlantic, but what they do discover about 300 miles farther up the Central American coast from Panama was a wealthy Maya kingdom adjacent to Guatemala ruled by a Maya lord named Nicoyano, or, Nico, or Nicoyo, uh, hence the name of the city of Nico. At any rate, Nicoyano apparently accepted baptism and gave Davila six figures of gold, uh, six figures of, uh, of, of, of uh, the gods um, which uh, he worshipped, which were made of gold. Each of these figures were a, over a foot tall. Along with other presents, uh, Davila obtained wealth worth about 100,000 pesos worth of gold. Nicoiano informed Davila also of another ruler 
to the region who was named Nicaragua, and from there, Davila obtained a whole shitload of gold necklaces. By the time Davila returned, he had 112,000 pesos worth of gold and claimed to have baptized 82,000 Indians. And just so you know, Davila did not go back to Panama with his 112,000 pesos worth of gold. Instead, he went straight to Santo Domingo with all that treasure without so much as a howdy-doody to Pedrarius or anyone else back at Tierra Firm in Panama. He went to Spain instead, sent presents to Bishop Fonseca and the Council of the Indies, he asked for governorship of Nicaragua, independent of Pedrarius, of course, and fuck that, said Pedrarius, writing a letter to the crown as soon as he realized what happened. Pedrarius was also quick to send another army to Nicaragua to bolster his claim to the region. This time he sent Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba in 1524 to found several towns. These became Puente Arenas, Brusales, Granada, uh, Segovia, and Leon de Vieja, the future capital. Now, what this means for the people who lived in those four towns, uh, constructed there by Pedrarias, was basically that they all knew a big battle was going to come. They just didn't know with who. In 1524, as they were building their towns, they thought, well, are we going to have to deal with Gil Gonzalez de Vila if he uses this money to come back and return and make good on his, uh, you know, does he come back with the viceroyship? Does Olid in Honduras make a move? He seems kind of fucking nuts. Or maybe Alvarado in Guatemala, also fucking nuts. And both those places bordered Nicaragua, Guatemala and Honduras, by the way. Perhaps even Cortes himself might be who they had to fight. Word had spread in 1524 that the great captain of Mexico City was headed south with a massive army. Davila did end up coming back, and that is where the battle occurred. Unfortunately for Davila and Nino, their forces were defeated. The two Spanish armies fought in pitched, two pitched battles uh, that ended up with eight Spaniards and 30 horses killed. Things got a little more complicated from there. But Hernandez de Cordoba didn't exactly win out. He started pressing the vicinos of the towns he'd founded to recognize him as governor, also independent of Pedrarius, and de Villa, you know, me, Cordoba. Pedrarius, aged but brutal, rode out on an entrada from Panama, the old and wily, and I mean, he's just old and wily, he's crazy. Ultimately, Cordoba was beheaded. Pedrarius, for what it's worth, practically intractable, eventually he was replaced as the governor of Panama, and he just then retired to his encomiendas in Nicaragua, uh, at any rate. Basically, Pedrarias prevented any further expansion by New Spain to the south. Um, that doesn't mean no expansion by New Spain was possible, though, because between Mexico and Pedrarias were a number of unconquered Mayan kingdoms of the Yucatan, and these all beckoned Spanish conquistadors to try their luck there. Specifically, Francisco de Montejo, who was one of Cortes' captains, previously uh, to that had been a captain of the voyage of Grijalva as well. Now, the Spaniards were well aware of the Yucatan before they learned about Tenochtitlan and the Aztecs, so it's a little surprising, maybe, to find that Montejo did not begin the conquest of Yucatan until 1526. This is years after many other parts of New Spain were put into the orbit of Mexico City. 
Like I said, the Yucatan is not a very wealthy place in gold or silver. Now, Francisco de Montejo isn't someone we've talked about much, but he was the quintessential soldier of fortune in early Spanish Mexico. Montejo came over with the fleet of Pedrarius in 1515. Later, he went to Havana, where he served as a captain under Velazquez. In 1519, he switched to Cortes for the salary of 2,000 pesos, according to Bernal Diaz. That earned him a spot as the first magistrate of Veracruz. Later, he took charge of the ship bringing the treasures of Mexico back to Spain, what one of Montejo's servants called, quote, an infinite amount of gold so much so that there was no ballast in the ship except for gold, unquote. I think that's probably an exaggeration, but as we know, it was an awful lot. And that shows the confidence in which uh, Montejo was regarded, both in Spain and Mexico, just FYI. After delivering this magnificent loot to King Charles, Montejo returned to New Spain, where he obtained from Cortes several lucrative encomiendas, and Montejo used these to fund a second trip to Spain. He brought presents to Charles again, and this time asked for a contract to conquer the Yucatan. Montejo obtained, obtained the contract in December of 1526 and set off with 250 followers. Now, what's really uh, unexplainable, though, is that Montejo did not bring an interpreter. This is... I, I don't understand it. Because, for one, there were interpreters available who spoke Maya. Two, Montejo knew a lot about the Yucatan from... I, mean, I know he conversed multiple times with Geronimo de Aguilar, one of the two shipwrecked Spaniards who ended up living for years in the Yucatan. Maybe these conversations with Aguilar were a big reason why Montejo wanted to conquer the Yucatan, which, to be clear wasn't because it was a place where gold could be mined, or at least it wasn't believed that gold mines would be found by most people. But Montejo was confident he could develop the Yucatan economically. The climate was great for agriculture, and the Maya people were skilled artisans and weavers. So Montejo uh, contract to the Yucatan and the nearby island of Cozumel in hand disembarked with his men and promptly started the construction of a settlement which he called Salamanca de Zelha. Zelha was a nearby Maya town. Montejo apparently spent just as much time thinking about where to plan his city as he did about whether or not he should bring an interpreter because Salamanca was reportedly, quote, near a swamp in the worst place of all the province, unquote. Well, despite the fact that several Spaniards promptly set about trying to learn Maya, uh, difficulties with the colony arose in only a few weeks. Perhaps the biggest problem was the food. Montejo's supplies were gone quickly. Apparently, some of the colonists refused to eat anything made from maize, and so that wasn't good. And uh, the expedition also even began to run short on clothing. And so Montejo sent one of his ships to Veracruz to buy clothing. The captain of that ship died, though, and the crew afterwards decided oh, they were just going to stay in Cuba rather than return to the, quote, swamp in the worst place of all of the province, unquote, of Yucatan. Montejo reacted to this sort of issue uh, by seizing food from local Indians by force, and he destroyed his boats to prevent any further desertion, a la Cortez. Uh, none of this improved his popularity very much, mind you. 
Montejo at least realized that Salamanca de Zelha was unsuitable for a proper capital and port to the sea, and early in 1528 he set out to find a better site, perhaps made necessary by the grumblings of his men. Over 50 of them had died in the first two months of the venture. Montejo led forth a campaign from Salamanca de Zelha, and he visited a number of cities. Montejo and the Maya had generally decent relations at this point, um, though at one point on this campaign, just so you know, while Montejo was looking for a new point, he was in the home of uh, the Indian lord of Chicaca and, quote, a man of great strength, unquote, who was in that home, uh, grabbed a steel cutlass from a young African boy whom Montejo owned as a slave and promptly tried to kill Montejo, who barely was able to defend himself with his own sword, though uh, ultimately his men came, quote, and the disturbance was quieted, unquote. At any rate, Montejo found largely peaceful receptions, uh, possible assassination attempt aside, until he entered the land of the uh, Chicken Chell. Uh, this is another Maya polity centered at the city of Chaca. The ruler of that city received Montejo in a friendly fashion, and the Spaniards let down their guard. The next morning, when they woke up, they found the town abandoned, and they were surrounded by, quote, bowmen who aimed well, unquote. Battle began at dawn. Montejo apparently showed a lot of courage in that battle, turning the Maya army back and moved on to the rival town of Chaca, called uh, Ake. These were traditional enemies of Chaca, and who likewise prepared for war when the Spaniards arrived, engaging in the same strategy of abandoning their city to Montejo's army before assaulting it once the Spaniards entered. Again, the Spaniards fought well, and after that unsuccessful attack, the rulers of Ake surrendered. Montejo and his army moved on. He split his army into two in order to better explore the Yucatan after that. Montejo followed a coastal route and visited more Maya cities, while the other half of his force cut through the middle of the Yucatan back in the direction they had originally come from. Looking for golden cities, they were surprised to find little wealth and smaller cities in the interior of the Yucatan. There was almost zero gold, neither was there much silver or emeralds or even large markets. Montejo started to understand that, although in some ways the Yucatan had a lot in common with the lands which Alvarado was conquering in Guatemala to become very wealthy, that centuries of warfare in the Yucatan had torn Maya society apart. The once grand civilization of the Maya was now led by a upper class who, while they could still read the Maya language, no longer wrote in the Maya language. No new records were made in the Maya cities, no new contracts written down. Much of Mayan science and learning was long forgotten by the 16th century. Now, what Mondejo did find was evidence of Gonzalo Guerrero, the long-lost Spaniard, who was one of the two shipwrecked Spaniards who were living amongst the Maya when Cortez arrived at the coast. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, this was not the first time that someone tried to get Gonzalo Guerrero to return to the Spaniards in 1519. Cortez attempted the same. But anytime anyone tried to get Gonzalo Guerrero to return to Spanish life, he told them that he was married with three children. The Indians treated him well, like a chief and a war captain. And with his tattooed hands and face and his ears pierced, 
Well, he didn't think he'd get a very good reception back amongst the Spaniards. Guerrero probably advised Maya even to attack the original expedition to Yucatan by Hernandez de Cordoba in 1517. And now, after hearing from Montejo, he remained an enemy of Spain. Guerrero knew that Montejo's force was split in two. He took that opportunity to spread misinformation. He told Montejo that the captain of the other half of the expedition, one Alonso de Avila, was dead. And vice versa, he told Avila that Montejo was dead. Regardless, at one point, when the two sides of Montejo's army did finally uh, get to get back together and learn that most everybody was still alive, well, there was a very happy meeting between those two sides. But that reunion aside, Montejo was not very happy. He wrote back to the king that there were no good ports in his territory and asked if he could be given rights to the river Grijalva as part of his grant. He tried to put his good spin on his report. You know, he'd seen signs of gold, for example, but he was forced to admit that the Yucatan was going to be a difficult conquest, or as Montejo put it to the king, quote, a little rough on our horses, unquote. Montejo needed reinforcements. He delivered his report to the king in person. Montejo got those reinforcements, which included his son, who was also named Francisco de Montejo, just so you know, and that makes things very complicated. I'm going to always do my best, uh, always to, uh, you know, Hopefully I call Montejo the Younger by his nickname, El Mozo, just so nobody's confused. But just so you know, Francisco de Montejo is also the name of Montejo's uncle, um, who is amongst the reinforcements. There are three Francisco de Montejos conquering the Yucatan at the same time. Yes, that's correct. Um, Or at least an attempted conquest, because after two years of warfare, Montejo hadn't really exactly made a whole lot of headway. Montejo and the other Spaniards still didn't really even understand Maya society very well. They had difficulty with the fact that each Maya town, quote, treated with the Spaniards with an independence so developed as to appear capricious, unquote, in the words of Inga Clendenin, author of Ambivalent Conquests. A town might welcome the Spaniards in friendship, or in the next visit greet them instead with arrows. Even more bewildering is that sometimes that happened in reverse. An attack might be followed with friendship. In that regard, perhaps the Maya regarded treaties and agreements in a similar way that Europeans viewed them, which is to say that they were forgotten when it was, whenever it was convenient to do so. Quote, it seemed that for the Maya, oaths were wit- written on water, unquote. Montejo and the Spaniards really didn't seem to grasp the less visible social structures that existed in the Yucatan. All the Maya spoke the same language, and in some ways they thought of themselves all as Maya. But the Spaniards had difficulty discerning that how certain towns were allied in certain ways, which was that certain lineages tied people to certain pieces of land. So, for example, all the Maya towns of the Campeche region were inhabited by people who called themselves the Peck. Around Champontun, the Ku ruled. In Mani, it was the Zui. In Sokuta, the Konkom. In Akantchel, the Chel, and well, like I've said, there are sixteen such lineages or provinces, as the Spaniards referred to him, them. And it wasn't until Montejo returned from Spain and his son El Mozo led an expedition of two hundred men into the interior did they really start to grasp the concept of how Maya lineages worked. But with that said, when the Montejos returned to the Yucatan, like I said, uh, El Mozo set off for Chichen Itza the remains of an ancient temple 
which could be made into an excellent fortress, the uh, Spaniards thought. When the Requimienta was read, the Spaniards received a haughty reply, however, from the Itza, quote, We already have kings, O noble lords. Foreign warriors, we are the Itza, unquote. These proud Indians, the Itza, were for a, from a, the tribe of Kupal, and they were determined to expel, if not destroy outright, the Spaniards from their lands. El Mozo himself nearly died when Nakam Kapol, the ruler of the tribe, attempted to kill the Spanish commander at a parley. Nakam Kapol, though, was soon killed, and that left the couple people leaderless, but they mounted a new attack, which killed a dozen Spaniards, ten horses, and all the Indians who had been serving the Spaniards. El Mozo ordered an onslaught to break through the Indian lines, but this failed, and ultimately... Only via a determined uh, escape in the darkness of night, a la Cortez in Mexico, was the only way that El Mozo and his army got free. Luckily for the conquistadors, this escape was more successful, in fact, than Cortez's, because they actually got away sneakily. The retreat of the year 15 was in the year 1532, and things were looking pretty gloomy at this point in the Yucatan from a Spanish perspective. Two years after that retreat, and seven years after basically continuous failure in the Yucatan, Montejo wrote a letter to the king. Quote, There is not a single river. The entire land is covered by thick brush, and so stony that there is not a single foot of soil. No gold has been discovered, nor is there anything else from which advantage can be gained. The people are the most abandoned and treacherous, in all the lands discovered until this time. With the news from Peru, the soldiers will not remain here any longer. Unquote. Well, it's going to be two episodes before we get to the story of Peru, but by 1534, to sum things up, Montejo had a base in Campeche and little more. No Spanish power base on the eastern seaboard on the peninsula was yet established. Montejo had only 30 men at his disposal. Avila, after a long and difficult second entrada through the middle of the country, retired from the Yucatan to Honduras in 1532, gone to try his hand there. In Yucatan, there were many governments, not one. The defeat of a city often left their neighbors untouched. Mayan armies also used all of the weapons of the Mexica, but they also used longbows with powerful bowstrings made from hemp, and this was more powerful missile weapon than what the Spaniards encountered elsewhere in central Mexico. The Yucatan has no rivers. Towns in the interior were therefore smaller than the Maya towns on the coast, and if Montejo wasn't getting much wealth from the coastal Yucatan, well, he was getting even less from the center, where most towns numbered fewer than 4,000 individuals. Without much overarching political structure, like in the Valley of Mexico, there was less for Montejo to build upon. There was no one who Montejo could control or overthrow or install and just make himself the head of a tribute system like Cortez had done to make matters worse. Despite the Maya being poor and politically unsophisticated, it was like they weren't as afraid of the Spaniards as some other American peoples. And don't get me wrong. Horses, gunpowder, and dogs, all of these things were terrifying to the natives, and there were very brave people all over the place. But the Yucatan had experienced by this point endemic warfare, which had lasted for centuries. 
The Spaniards didn't arrive in the Yucatan in shining metal armor. They came in quilted cotton armor and cod pieces. They looked like the Mexica. So that meant to the Maya, the Spaniards were just another example of more uncouth barbarians who'd come from northern Mexico to try and conquer them. And boy, they'd be just like the Concom themselves today, Maya themselves. Things remained somewhat chaotic in the Yucatan for several years after that. Montejo, who still had a very good name back in Spain, was made governor of Honduras in 1535. Basically, he proceeded to swap that with Alvarado for the Chiapas, the two encomenderos trading land people like baseball cards, I guess. And, and that enabled both men to better consolidate their interests. Incidentally, Alvarado immediately went to Honduras to found a town, conquer some people, and then return to Spain to talk about his achievements and get grants and whatnot. Montejo gave his grant to conquer the Yucatan to his son. The elder Montejo was in his 60s. Montejo El Mozo gathered a new army in 1540, along with his cousin, also named Francisco de Montejo, El Sobrino. The two younger Montejos went back to Campeche with 300 men and 1,000 Indian auxiliaries, including some Mexicans from Montejo's encomienda in Azcapotzalco. El Mozo learned a lot from his previous failures. His new strategy, in fact, was described as Roman, in its efficiency. His plan included well-ordered supply columns. He focused extensive attention on logistics, and on January 6, 1542, he succeeded in founding the town of Merida on the north of Yucatan. By the late 1540s, there were four Spanish towns in Yucatan. Merida was the largest, Valladolid and Campeche followed, and Salamanca de Balacar was the smallest. Though, now with that said, all four towns, this meant that about 200 Spanish families lived in the Yucatan by that point. Uh, but their lands and lifestyle were largely made possible by the conquests uh, of El Mozo. A great Maya re uh, revolt occurred, though, against this new system in 1546. The biggest attack took place in Valladolid, where conquistadors, along with their wives and children, were slaughtered. Some were roasted over fires, some were crucified, some shot to death by arrows, some had their hearts torn out in Mexica-style sacrifice. Bernardino de Villagomez, the chief magistrate of Valladolid, was dragged by a rope through the streets, which so recently he had presided before, uh, and, and then his arms, legs, and head were cut off. Villagomas, in fact, was so unpopular amongst the Maya that his dismembered body was then carried across the peninsula specifically to excite other Indians to more rebellion. They killed both Spaniards as well as Maya who would not join the rebellion. Horses, cattle, and dogs were all killed. Indian plants and trees were uprooted. Everything European, it had to go. Much of the killed livestock was smoked, and so were a few encomenderos. Imagine being smoked to death and literally barbecued like beef jerky. Oh, yes. Beef jerky. Nothing feeds the army of a rebellion quite like the flesh of your oppressors, if you ask me. Anyway, luckily for the Montejos, they escaped. They met in Champontan to discuss how to crush the rebellion. But they didn't succeed in doing this until March of 1547. Quelling the rebellion, in fact, required burning hundreds of Indians at the stake, especially caciques and priests. The final campaigns against the most recalcitrant Indians were especially brutal. 
They ate, uh, uh, the Montejos fed people to dogs. There was a slaughter of women. Uh, by the end of the crisis, in fact, uh, Montejo was forced to take legal action against some of his own captains for, again, for some of the worst excesses. Ultimately, the big difference uh, between the easy conquest of Mexico or Michoacan, if you want to call it that, compared to the difficult conquest of the Yucatan, is that Montejo wasn't able, like Cortez, to successfully manipulate pre-existing tribal divisions. Uh, when asked after the rebellion was over why, the Indians invariably replied, well, the priests made us do it. Which I suppose brings us to one of our final topics, the spiritual conquest of Mexico, which is in large part how the conquest of the Yucatan ultimately proceeded. Uh, but before we do that, we have one last conquistador to discuss. Nuno de Guzman, the conquistador who would prove perhaps to be probably, I suppose, the greatest of Cortez's rivals. At least, he was the most successful. Guzman was the Spanish crown's instrumental tool in trimming Cortez's sails. Guzman received appointment for the governorship of Panuco in 1525, the territory on the eastern coast of Mexico, which earlier Cortez and Francisco de Garay sparred over leading quite possibly to Garay's death by poison. The crown left Panuco in Cortes' hands for a while, but Cortes' stunning achievements after his victory of Tenochtitlan, those logistical achievements like setting up a cannon foundry and gunpowder mill and shipyards in the Pacific, it was all really making the Spanish king very paranoid about what Cortes might be able to do if he got uh, left alone for too much longer. Charles used Guzman to cut Cortez's legs out from under him. The big insurmountable obstacle which Cortez had going against him, basically, as far as becoming viceroy, was that he was just a lowly Hidalgo. On the one hand, this meant he was nobility. But on the other hand, Hidalgos were the lowest level of nobility in Spain. They came from families that simply did not have the social capital with the inner circles of power to obtain something so prestigious as, say, a viceroyship. Nuno de Guzman, on the other hand, came from one of the oldest and most illustrious houses in all of Spain. Now, according to genealogists, Guzman derives from the Gothic words good and man. The Guzmans, from which Nuno descended, come, descended came from Germany. They settled in Spain around the year 950. And that means that Nuno de Guzman was distantly, distantly descended from the Gothic king, Gundamaro. Uh, and his ancestors were amongst the very first noble families in Christendom to participate in the early stages of the Reconquista. Nuno de Guzman had something that Hernán Cortés could never achieve. Descent from a long line of knights in the service of the Spanish kings. Regardless, Guzman arrived in Hispaniola in 1526. He promptly became ill, and so he did not arrive in Panuco until 1527. He arrived with another royal official, the licenciado Louis, Louis Ponce de Leon who was dispatched to Mexico to hold a residencia of Cortes to judge his actions up to that point. Leon began dictating royal policy in New Spain from his position of judicial authority, and Guzman, who had governorship of Panuco as an autonomous political unit from Mexico, 
was specifically ordered to aid Ponce de Leon if the licenciado required assistance. Now, besides giving assistance to de Leon, Guzman's chief concern was the redistribution of encomiendas. Charles was suspicious that far too many encomiendas went to Cortez's friends and servants, while others who served his majesty in Spain went without reward. Guzman was ordered to make a thorough inspection of all the encomienda grants and to determine the physical extent of the Panuco region. Because it wasn't even really clear where the border with Panuco and New Spain was. These were just made-up divisions of geography that Spain was just kind of making up on the spot, essentially. And finally, once this border was established, Guzman was to sever the region from New Spain. Now, if you're wondering where Guzman got any support for any of this, well, for starters, he was able to build a base of support from the conquistadors who had arrived with Francisco de Garay, but who did not receive the rewards that they thought they were entitled to in Panuco. And there were also royal officials who'd come to Panuco in the brief period of time that the king had uh, given Grenet the governorship, and, well, they wanted their power back. With that said, according to historian Donald Chipman, Guzman is, quote, almost universally regarded as the personification of the black legend, unquote. He's like Pedrarius in Panama or Ovando in his time as the viceroy of Hispaniola. He's a real son of a bitch, and in some ways he deserves every ounce of this bad reputation. And I don't even want to say it's a bad rap, because, I mean, he literally, he deserves it. It's just that I think some conquistadors get a worse reputation than others, and the only reason for that is such and such as conquistadors' reputation later. In particular, when Bartolomé de las Casas is collecting evidence about all the nasty things that happen in the New World, well, there's a, a lot of people who are willing to turn evidence over about Guzmán over de las Casas. Ultimately, Guzmán becomes basically a scapegoat, which Spain uses to justify, I think, the wealth it gets from America by means of enslavement, rape, torture, and murder. You know, we got that guy. You know, he was a bad guy, and we got him. I mean, even the best or the greatest of the conquistadors, I mean, your Columbus, your Baboa, your Cortes, all of these guys, they do all the same stuff, pretty much. They kill, enslave, torture, rape, all of these horrible things. It's just that their achievements meant that enough wealth was generated back in Spain that those accomplishments overshadowed all the bad stuff. That stuff got swept under the rug. I don't know where I'm going to really going with this. I, I don't want to get off too off base here. I, I just want to state that Nuno de Guzman is a bad guy, a really, really bad guy. He's part of a bad bunch. I hope this episode illustrates that. Immediately upon his arrival, Guzman ordered all the vicinos in Panuco to appear in the church of St. Esteban. There he read his instructions. And he proceeded to do something very unpopular with the audience, which was that he ordered all of the service uh, of Indians on encomiendas suspended for 20 to 30 days so he could re-examine the encomiendas and summon the caciques and principal Indians of Panuco to appear before him. Ooh. Well, this set off very angry protests from the followers of Cortes who held encomiendas and saw, quote, the agent of their destruction, unquote, in Guzman. The implication of Guzman's command was clear. Cortes did not necessarily have the right to divvy out encomiendas in Panuco. Many of the encomenderos, in fact, didn't actually own a legal document from Cortes that gave them their encomienda. Some people told Guzman their papers were in New Spain, or back in Spain across the Atlantic. 
a mass exodus took place. Many of Cortez's supporters simply packed up and went to Mexico. Some said they would return with their paperwork. Others fled in the night, never to return. Few stopped until they felt safe in New Spain. One of the few who did remain in Cortez's faction was Diego de Villa Padierna. He found himself in court to defend himself five days after Guzman's arrival. The charges against Padierna were, quote, certain words that he had said, unquote. Padierna told other Spaniards not to comply with Guzman, not to give him gifts as a welcome, and not to recognize his governorship, because within a short time, Cortes was going to come with Mexico with probably 20 or 30 mounted soldiers. They was going to claim the province from Guzman, and just like he had done from Garay. Well, Padierna was ultimately found guilty of those certain words, I guess, after a short trial, his sentence included a fine of 50 pesos. He was banished from Panuco. He was also to forfeit his encomienda holdings and endured public ridicule at the pillory. Shame! Juan Castaño was another Cortes supporter who stayed. Likewise, he was also soon in court after Guzman's arrival. Castaño broke out of jail. While awaiting his trial, though, he ran to a church so he couldn't be arrested again, claiming ecclesiastical immunity for several days. Now, during this time, Castaño used the church as a literal pulpit to insult Guzman. And really, as a result, Juan Castaño has left us with a few quotes which are, in my esteemed opinion, real historical gems, like, quote, Nuno de Guzman is a piece of horseshit, unquote. Ultimately, Guzman ordered the local constable to forcibly remove Castaño from the church, where he continued to taunt Guzman, so in response, the new viceroy of Panuco, quote, cruelly beat Juan Castaño until his teeth broke in his mouth and he was left for dead, unquote. Now, ultimately, I don't know what happened to Juan Castaño, like if he died from that, but except to tell you that his property was very much confiscated after the trial. Upon his arrival, Nuno de Guzman also sent a messenger to Mexico City to present his commission before the temporary governors of New Spain. That messenger, however, found the road blocked by a sizable armed force under the command of Juan del Salcido, and uh, the messenger was forced back. Guzman sent soldiers to find Salcido, but he, Salcido, had withdrawn back to Mexico City by the time they found his uh, force. Instead, Guzman, uh, Guzman's soldiers arrested Salcido's two lieutenants, Alonso Ramos and Gil Gonzalez Trujillo. Guzman had them hanged for committing robbery and violence, as well as obstructing a passage. Their possessions were condemned and reassigned at auction, their encomiendas reassigned by Guzman. Nevertheless, an uneasy truce developed between Panuco and New Spain after that. Guzman uh, then focused some of his energies on conquests. He sponsored explorations of the lands north of San Esteban in order basically to examine the Rio de las Palmas for rumors of fabulous wealth. Guzman was quick to do so because he wasn't, just so you know, the only conquistador who was eager and willing to help the crown contain Cortes, especially if that, that meant they got to conquer parts of Mexico. Panfilo de Narvaez, who lost an eye last episode battling with Cortes, was still alive, had a grudge, and obtained a royal license to colonize the lands from Florida all the way to the Rio de las Palmas. It's an extraordinary 
pretty extraordinary grant, frankly, and more on that next episode. But with that said, even if no precious metals were to be found at the Rio de las Palmas, wealth could, of course, still be obtained in human chattel. Guzman forcibly pressed a number of Spaniards living in Panuco into service. Some actually ran away as a result. A lot complained they were too poor. And several encomiendas literally fell into ruin because Guzman impressed the encomenderos into the army, which went off to see the Rio de las Casas. Well, excuse me, Rio de las Palmas, excuse me, I wrote that wrong. But with that said, not going on the Entrada really wasn't a good option. Guzman took horses and weapons from folks by force if they refused to go, uh, or if they fled. And the governor supplied himself with, quote, a generous amount of horses, accoutrements, and provisions in this way. Guzman did not personally lead the expedition. He stayed to govern from Sant Esteban. In command was his captain, Sancho de Caniego, who all witnesses later testifying about the campaign agreed was a, quote, cruel and heartless commander, unquote. Undoubtedly, his task of commanding men was, with that said, made immeasurably more difficult by the fact that many of them were forced to be there by Guzman. But with that said, Sancho de Caniego was one of probably the most brutal conquistadors in all of Mexico. He reportedly would beat Indians to death for the slightest provocation. He once ordered two Indian nobles shot to death with arrows for no reason which any other Spanish witness could explain. He regularly fed Indians to his mastiffs. Uh, his Spanish companions reported that he would often hurl profanity and insults at them, sin causa, uh, until he was literally without a breath. Um, Diego took no precautions to, tear, to care for the sick or wounded men while he was in command. They were just left to die. On one occasion, he became so angry with a conquistador named Alonso de Navarrete that he stabbed Navarrete with a sword. Navarrete, luckily for him, he survived. Another man named Pedro de Vallejo, was, who was a supporter of Cortes, threatened to desert from Caniego to the forces of Penfilo de Narvaez should they be contacted by chance. When he did that, uh, Caniego, in response, put Vallejo in chains. He declared that no one should speak to or feed his prisoner under pain of heavy fine. Then at night, Caniego kicked and beat Vallejo for his own perverse amusement. Despite the secret efforts of uh, another conquistador uh, to feed Vallejo, he was found dead one morning, by which point he'd taken so many beatings from Caniego that the body was, quote, black as a lead pencil, unquote. So the fact that when Caniego and the Entrada got to the Rio de las Palmas and found it was practically deserted, well, everyone was really disappointed by that point, to say the least. Oh, and yes, there was no gold. Caniego nevertheless spent four or five months in the region, sending out raiding parties to capture slaves. He would brand them in the pueblo of uh, Tantunchen, where he encamped his army. Uh, finally, after uh, those few months, Caniego doled out encomiendas under the direction of Guzman. Uh, they ordered the local Indians to support Guzman, and in addition to normal vassalage talk, Caniego informed the locals that Guzman intended to go to war against the Chichimecs, and it, they were going to be helping with that, too. One of Guzman's successes, if you want to call it that, was the institution of the Panuco to West Indies slave trade. His stay at Hispaniola, made lengthy by his uh, illness, um, 
uh, upon arriving, enabled him to build contacts with men like the governor of Velasquez, and so Nuno de Guzman can be credited with providing a source of labor for the Spanish Caribbean. Donald Chipman wrote, quote, the relatively high culture Huastecs were ideal, unquote, to replace the virtually extinct Taino population. Huastecs, of course, impressed into unsanitary concentration camps in the Caribbean. Of course, they fared no better than the Taino. Enslavement in the Caribbean was virtually a death sentence. Slaves in Panuco who were sold to the West Indies were branded on the face, the minimum age for such treatment being about six or seven years old. Generally, slaves were, you know, they didn't usually get enslaved till they were 12, though, so, you know, there's that, I guess. Guzman also succeeded in using Panuco to create an iron curtain where he kind of blocked information in and out of New Spain. He started confiscating and reading mail in and out of Spain so he could choose what information got reported. Even Bishop Zumarraga of Mexico City felt it necessary to smuggle letters out of New Spain with the help of discreet and religious sailors. Basically, Guzman did this so he could propagate the idea back in Spain that he alone was keeping New Spain safe from the very treacherous Indian enemies that existed just outside the borders of both Panuco and New Spain. Yet, to be clear, I don't want you to get the idea that just because the Spanish crown used Nuno de Guzman to trim Cortez's sails, that they were at all interested in him accruing a bunch of power either, a la Cortez. An official investigation, in fact, even began into Guzman's activities in 1529. Guzman's tenure as governor couldn't exactly be described as a vision of tremendous success. But with that said, even with the investigation, he was still viewed more favorably by Cort as Cortez, who wanted to rule, who returned to rule as the Marquis of the, Var uh, of the Oaxaca Valley in 1530. And despite the investigation of his activities in Panuco, the Spanish crown installed Nuno de Guzman as the president of the Real Audiencia de Mexico in, um, around the same time Cortes returned. Now, basically, this was done, I'm sure, to keep Cortes from reinstalling himself as, as, uh, as the ruler. And it also made Guzman the most powerful man in all of Spain as a result. But there was no viceroy yet. Uh, Guzman found himself in the same kind of situation that Cortez was, and the most powerful man uh, in New Spain, but not the viceroy. Uh, without the viceroy, the president of the Audiencia ruled, Guzman's authority was largely unchallenged in Mexico as a result, even though uh, his star was beginning to fade in Spanish court. Guzman believed and knew, perhaps, that the best way to get back in the good graces of the crown was new conquests. So he planned to conquer, or reconquer, I should say, Michoacan, which had earlier pledged allegiance to Cortes. Guzman didn't like the fact that they had pledged allegiance to Cortes, but he needed to raise another army. To accomplish that, Guzman engaged in the same forcible seizures he engaged in before the entrada to the Rio de las Palmas. He confiscated a bunch of horses and supplies and headed west. Guzman's plan was to conquer Michoacan and beyond. He considered the Purapucha to be insolently free. The Caxonsi, who the Spanish referred to by this time as Don Francisco, was a Christian convert and had made a political pact, basically, with Cortes. And in the end, it was probably the end of Cortez's fortunes in New Spain 
that turned the Purapucha into a tempting target for an ambitious Spaniard like Guzman. Guzman essentially ordered the kidnapping of Don Francisco, who attempted to buy his freedom, but Guzman and his agents were insistent. The Kazansi of the Purapucha went to Mexico City for the fifth time since Cortes first conquered Tenochtitlan. This would be his last. Don Francisco's final months consisted of imprisonment, a life of chains, and occasional torture about reports of hidden gold. Ultimately, it led to his execution as well. That execution took place on February 5th, 1530, under a flimsy pretense that the Purapucha were about to commit rebellion under the Kazansi's leadership. Of course, no threat materialized in Michoacan. However, Guzman executed the Kazansi anyway and took his army of about three to 400 Spaniards and five to 8,000 indigenous conquistadors to look for gold and to punish, quote, the Chicamex of the North. Now, the campaign that followed was literally as brutal as anything else that took place in Mexico. Perhaps as a coincidence to uh, his serving as president of the Audiencia, Guzman convinced the aforementioned Audiencia to let him borrow 10,000 pesos in May 1529 for the expedition to the West. Guzman later wrote of his preparations that he then, quote, got together, unquote, 400 soldiers of foot and cavalry by quote-unquote, got together, he meant a mixture of honest recruiting and the impressment of military service, which Guzman earlier had done in Panuco. And before he resorted to the impressment of soldiers, he started impressing material goods like horses. Many Spaniards and Indians actually literally fled Mexico City to avoid this conscription. And boy, you thought you didn't like solicitors. Well, one Pedro de Carranza, in fact, later sued Guzman over this. He alleged that Guzman arrested him in Mexico City, held him in chains as the army marched west to Michoacan, and when they arrived there, the suit alleged, Guzman promised to hang Garanza if he did not participate in the conquest. Many other conquistadors came along with Guzman under similar, if slightly less dire, circumstances. Guzman threatened a lot of people with the forfeiture of, the encom of their encomiendas if they did not go along with him. Now, with that said, Guzman was not just completely surrounded with enemies. He had his supporters, and I want to be clear. Guzman has a horrifying reputation through the lens of history, and deservedly so. But that wasn't entirely true amongst his contemporaries. I mean, yeah, Cortez's supporters specifically hated him. But a lot of the conquistadors went to bat for Guzman, like Cristobal de Oñate. He would later become the most important official and encomendero in New Galicia as a result of this conquest. Francisco Verdugo, Lope de Samaniego, Diego Proaño, Diego Vasquez, Cristobal de Barrios, these were all captains in Guzman's army and close allies. Besides his captains, Guzman had a personal entourage, apparently, of 40 men who, quote, ate at his table and were continuously by his side, unquote. These were probably men, I assume, who'd been with him since he arrived at Panuco. Guzman also had a relative with him, Pedro de Guzman. And, of course, he had several thousand native warriors from Tlaxcala, Huichotzinco, and Mexico City. Later... Uh, Cortez, um, since Cortez had awarded himself the encomienda of Huitzotzinco, he also sued Guzman later for forcibly impressing Indians which were supposed to be his. But with that said, Cortez, while Guzman was building his army, was still in Spain. 
Guzman also conscripted more than 10,000 Purapucha warriors when his army arrived there. There were also thousands of Indian slaves or other servants who acted as porters and cooks and made the logistical capabilities of such a large army possible. Guzman brought the kidnapped Kazonsi with him back from Mexico City. He used Don Francisco as a pawn in the same way Cortez had done with Montezuma to get all this additional support, as well as to steal supplies from the Purapucha people. Food and supplies were a problem that would continue for the expedition as it went north, though. The indigenous allies, of course, bore the brunt of the lack of food, not to mention the brunt of carrying the supplies. Now, Garcia, uh, excuse me, Guzman had three conquistadors on his entrada, Garcia del Pilar, uh, Juan Pascual, and Rodrigo de Simon, and they all knew the Purapucha language, so uh, no one knew the languages north of Michoacan, however. Now, Besides this logistical, these logistical issues, another issue from the Spanish perspective was the fact that north of Michoacan, basically uh, every male by the time he was 13 or 14 was basically a complete expert with the bow and arrow. Uh, north of central Mexico was less urbanized, and that meant more hunting, and that meant lots of archery practice for young men. Regardless, after beginning the entrada to the north with a, quote, act of judicial murder, unquote, in the execution of Kazansi Don Francisco for treason, Guzman then set off from the no to the north from Michoacan in February. He crossed the Lerma River into what he termed enemy territory and promptly erected three crosses. He and his captains carried these crosses on their shoulders, and by this solemn act of religiosity, I'm sure they convinced themselves of a what they were doing was a, just a great thing. Now, afterwards, the army approached the town of Coina, which was deserted, and the indigenous conquistadors there promptly burnt it. The burning of native pueblos, in fact, was a practice that basically continued for the length of this expedition. Now, with that said, far worse crimes were committed a few days later, after the first battle between Guzman's army and the locals near Lake Chapala, the fighting there lasted about two hours, as said locals fought with such effort and spirit as if they were Spaniards. One of the warriors who fought extremely well against the Spaniards did so in women's clothing, and after the battle, apparently Guzman needed to uh, order him burnt at the stake for such a mortal sin. Uh, the people around, like Chapala, meanwhile, were fleeing in terror. Men, women, and children uh, crowded along the riverbanks to escape. According to the Spaniards, uh, many of these were captured and enslaved by their enemies uh, and added that a number of them were cannibalized, although I'm not quite sure if the conquistadors were saying that because they felt sorry for them or because they were jealous that they didn't get to enslave the escaping townsfolk, but at any rate. About a week after the battle, locals from Coina asked for peace. According to the conquistador interpreter Garcia del Pilar, peace wasn't what Guzman had in mind, however. At least not peace without a price. Quoting Pilar, quote, we had, a no, we had a war with the natives, and after seven or eight days that we were there, a fat man said to be a lord came peacefully, and because he didn't bring tamims or gold or silver, which was said to be, which it was said that he, Guzman, asked for, a dog was set on him and he was thus mauled and bitten all over. We departed and left him there at the door to his house, setting fire to it and to the entire Pueblo, unquote. Guzman continued north to the community of Tonala, which is southeast of present-day Guadalajara. 
And another fierce battle took place. The people of Tonala were extremely skillful and brave in combat. Men from Tonala confronted mounted Spaniards in single combat. Guzman himself was injured when one such brave warrior grabbed his lance and beat the captain with it. Um, after the battle, Tonala was burned. To Guzman claimed he tried to prevent the Allies uh, from burning it, but uh, at any rate, he continued north to Nochistlan, which, according to Pilar, was likewise left destroyed and laid waste. Guzman fanned his forces out after that. He sent captains to various settlements. He put others in charge of exploring the riverbanks for gold mining potential. Now, the most vicious of Guzman's captains was Cristobal de Oñate. Uh, his company was reported to have massacred, for example, 130 people in, when they went to one town for some reason. After burning the first four towns he encountered, Guzman continued raiding and burning pueblos. No shortage of captured and tortured locals uh, uh, you know, were, were to be found. They all basically invariably promised Guzman the same thing. Oh, yes, of course, the pueblo down the road is very large. They have lots of gold, and you should go there immediately. Please leave me alone. And one of the towns on the coast, Aguacatlan, described as a large pueblo in a well-populated valley somewhere near, near the Pacific coast, the people attempted to give Guzman a friendly reception. But that friendly reception did not include gold or silver. So Guzman ended up setting a dog on one of the lords of the town, a favored tactic of Guzman's, if you hadn't noticed, feeding people the dogs because they wouldn't give him gold. The surviving nobles of Aguacatlan were taken as hostages. Guzman kept noble hostages from almost all the towns he sacked, and the army marched along. Three days after leaving Aguacatlan, Guzman's army approached Jalisco, the army, the leaders of which brought food out to Guzman, but yeah, food isn't silver and gold. Guzman unleashed war in, quote, fire and blood, unquote, upon Jalisco for the crime of being too poor to appease his green, greed. He left the town burnt, along with many other settlements, and in the aftermath, two particularly unfortunate Indians from Jalisco found themselves mutilated by Guzman, their crime being that they had no gold, of course. Both men ended up having their hands cut up, cut off and hung around their necks. One of the two men also had his nose cut off so that when other Indians found the mutilated men, they would know, quote, that this is what they would do to the others if they would not submit, unquote. Guzman moved to another nearby Pueblo called Tepic, encamping in the region for about a month. There he received the acceptance of a vassalage, of the, a vassalage from Jalisco, as well as several other towns in the region, and after that, he crossed the river into what uh, a river what is now the river uh, the Rio Grande de Santiago, del, del Santiago, excuse me. Um, shortly afterwards, Guzman's army was attacked by several thousand warriors. What Ida Altman says was probably the result of multiple communities of Tepics engaged in a temporary alliance to halt the invaders. Guzman was impressed by his enemies. Quote, "They came at me before I could attack." with so much force and audacity, and with such skill as if they were Spaniards, all their lives accustomed to war, knowing so well how to protect themselves from horse or lance, as if they were soldiers used to that army, unquote. The warriors of Tepic used bows and arrows, clubs, lances, and large uh, shields, which they covered with the skins of caimans, to defend their territory against Guzman's army. 
The a fierce battle took place for several hours, and that's when another squadron of about a thousand more warriors, uh, uh, Tepic warriors, flanked Guzman. They got into the army's supplies. They killed. Uh, 10 horses and wounded 50 more. Several Spaniards were seriously wounded by the end of the battle, and a dozen Indian allies were killed before the uh, tide was turned back into the conquistador's favor. Now, at this point, Guzman was still very hopeful. From his perspective, he had pacified Jalisco and Tepic, and much of the region of the Rio Grande and the Pacific coast was basically now under his rule. He had no reason to suspect he wouldn't obtain even greater achievements as he continued north. However, Ida Altman writes, quote, From this point on, the Entrada began to assume a very different character, becoming nearly as harrowing for the participants as it was for the residents of the West whom they overwhelmed. Brutalized and exploited, disaster was about to engulf the expeditionary force itself, unquote. A hurricane struck Mexico in mid-September, the year 1530, which transformed the fortunes of Guzman's expedition for the worse. At the time, the army had spent two months resting at Atzatlan. A great quantity of provisions were to be had there. The army was a, had already built their winter housing, and then one night that hurricane knocked all of that down. The only home that remained was Guzman's. Overnight, the river swelled, overflowed, and by dawn, the whole camp was underwater. It took two days for the river to recede. By that time, most of the livestock was lost or drowned. The flood killed scores of animals. Most of their surviving horses were lost and scared in swamps. Hundreds of Indian conquistadors and slaves were drowned. In the aftermath of the storm, a sickness then swept through the native army. 8,000 uh, Indian allies of the 8,000, only two of them, uh, excuse me, 200 of them could walk for a time. By the time Guzman and the army began to recover, most of the livestock was dead. Perhaps 3,000 of Guzman's Indios Amigos were dead. Many of the survivors said fuck this and tried to flee, and Guzman started ordering would-be deserters hung. Pilar claimed there were 50, success, 50 executions. When the Indian lords pleaded with Guzman after that to let them take their followers home, many of, their lo of those lords ended up hanged as well. Guzman e executed two Spaniards and ordered the torture of others just for the crime of wanting to leave, for the words they had said again, I guess. Imagine just saying, yeah, I want to leave a little too loudly, and then you get hanged. And anyway, Guzman sent some of his remaining horsemen back to Michoacan, to obtain Indians, cattle, Spaniards, by force or whatever means possible, unquote. So Gonzalo Lopez was thus sent south with some men to accomplish that goal. Guzman led the rest of his battered forces to Chiametla. That voyage took three weeks in the horrible condition the army was in. More of the Indians died along the road. Many even hanged themselves to escape the misery of their situation. Regardless, 40 days after having sent uh, Lopez south, Guzman sent Garcia del Pilar with 10 horsemen to locate Gonzalo Lopez. 
Pilar found Lopez in Aguacatlan. With 1,000 Indian conquistadors from Michoacan, he had obtained these by kidnapping many of the principals of Michoacan and keeping them with him too, in chains. And with the horsemen he'd left with originally, and the 1,000-man Purapacha army he now had, Lopez was patrolling the province, burning various pueblos. He'd constructed a large coral where he'd kept all these prisoners, the men, women, and children of Aguacatlan, uh, the men with chains around their necks, the women and children tied in, with ropes in groups of ten. Wh whatever crime the people of Aguacatlan committed is unknown. The city had peacefully submitted to Guzman earlier, so in the words of Ida Altman, what had the people done to merit this severe punishment? No native accounts let us into their perspective, so I don't know. But perhaps the communities of North Mexico discovered that the obligations placed upon them by the Spaniards were more severe than they realized. Though, according to the Spaniards, for what that's worth, the people of Jalisco beat and robbed some Spaniards whom Guzman had sent to retrieve cattle, the Spaniards also alleged that similar attacks occurred in Zapualca and the Aguacatlan, and so that is why Gonzalo Lopez was, quote, waging war by fire and blood, unquote, against them. On the other hand, maybe Lopez just wanted to obtain slaves, or Guzman ordered him to obtain slaves, and whatever the case, in a campaign that stands out for atrocities, this atrocity kind of stands out. Guzman and the army continued moving north, along a coastal plain, and there they started having real communication problems. They reached the uh, Pueblo of Pochotla and found that none of the interpreters could speak the local language. Pochotla was settled by people who lived in palisaded houses, which is an indication of frequent warfare, and just so you know. And because I find it neat, they were people who kept parrots and falcons as pets, and they kept snakes for eating. Snakes in a pit, literally. Like a big fucking pit of snakes in your kitchen. Anyway. The people of the region also made alcohol from plums and maguey. They enjoyed fishing. It all seemed very nice except for the frequent warfare. Guzman and his army burned Pachotla and the other pueblos nearby. They then continued north to what is today known as the San Lorenzo River, quote, still passing through very good pueblos, which we left destroyed, unquote, until they reached the province of Culiacan. Guzman had several lords there tortured so that they could help provide the best local route. This didn't really work, which I don't know why you'd think that torturing someone would be a great way of an effective way of getting directions, but anyway, the army remained in Culiacan for about four months until June 1531. Guzman, in this time, established a town named San Miguel on the river and left behind a number of Spanish settlers and also many of the allies, who didn't really expect this. They couldn't do anything about it because Guzman had put his, quote, Indios Amigos, unquote, in chains first. Guzman then divvied out the Indian conquistadors who had been brave enough to go on his entrada um, amongst the encomenderos he named to the town of San Miguel. According to one conquistador, Cristobal Flores, the scene played out thusly, quote, free men made slaves chained by the neck or in stocks so that they would not follow us, shouting and weeping when they saw us leave because of the great wrong that was done to them in repayment for their work, unquote. Now, it wasn't uncommon for Indian allies who participated in Spanish expeditions to not return home in some instances 
colonists were given specific privileges. In other cases, they were just clearly abandoned by some entrada, wherever it just fizzled out somewhere far from Mexico. But with that said, Guzman's treatment of his allies was on the extreme end. Forcibly imprisoning them and leaving them behind to serve Spanish masters in the exact same way that the people uh, who they just enslaved uh, to be at war with and enslaved, I mean, that's just something. Some of these people were even Tlaxcalans. This in particular is what drew criticism when Guzman returned. Cristobal Flores stated that of the Tlaxcalans who went, he thought only two escaped the fate of uh, being enslaved. These were the two Tlaxcalan nobles, incidentally, whose job in the army it was to guard Nuno de Guzman's pigs, FYI. Considering what a piece of, you know, hey, I'm not enslaving the Tlaxcalans, I have two Tlaxcalan friends. Anyway, considering what a piece of shit Nuno de Guzman was, you might be happy to learn that if he did not return to New Spain like he thought he would, um, well, when he did that, rather than having strengthened and consolidated his authority, his political position had eroded considerably since he'd left. A new audiencia had replaced the first. Nuno de Guzman was no longer the president, and apparently it took a little bit of time for him to come to grips with this, apparently, but on the other hand, he was still the governor of Panuco, and uh, basically, after that conquest was made, the governor of New Galicia, Nuevo de, Nuevo de Galicia, Nuno de Guzman also had completed within the legal eyes of the Spanish crown, and therefore Spanish law, a separate conquest of basically all of North Mexico. He cut off Cortes from the north. Now, this did not stop one of Cortes' relatives, Don Luis de Castilla, from trying to establish his own settlement near Jalisco under the express auspices of the second audiencia, mind you, to essentially steal the territory from Guzman. Guzman foiled this by sending his captain, Cristobal de Oñate, to arrest Castilla. Oñate succeeded, and Guzman treated Castilla well, brought him back to Mexico City, and this incident pretty much ensured the borders of New Galicia. On the other hand, things did not work out for Núñez de Guzman, because while the audiencia's plan to colonize and steal Jalisco failed, they did get Guzman thrown in jail. He spent a year and a half in Mexico City, in his words, quote, amongst blacks and thieves, unquote, uh, which, though that might sound like a good time, he meant it disparagingly, I assure you. And after his stint in the clinker, Guzman was recalled to Spain. He spent the last 20 years of his life unhappy, under a situation not a whole lot different than house arrest. The king forbid... Uh, Guzman from traveling, let alone attempt conquest or governance, Guzman would never be satisfied. Well, sucks for him. As far as New Galicia was concerned, Guzman's leadership was only successful in one real regard. He oversaw the construction of four Spanish towns, Compostola, Guadalajara, Purificacion, and San Miguel de Culiacan. On the other hand, Guzman's leadership, if in fact you do want to call it that, contributed greatly to the biggest revolt of them all in response to Spanish rule, at least so far in our story. It's called the Mixton War. It's in our last topic. But before we do that, we've got to zoom out from New Galicia to examine the Spanish Empire in Mexico from one last perspective. We're going to refocus on the so-called spiritual conquest of Mexico. 
Now, it's been argued that the real conquest of Mexico wasn't one via military achievements. It was a spiritual conquest. And the spiritual conquest was conducted by mainly not conquistadors, but by the mendicant orders of Spain. Two Franciscans served as chaplains to Cortes' force, and three Flemish Franciscans arrived in Mexico in 1523, though two of those three Flemish Franciscans ended up dying in a shipwreck. The other, Fray Peter of Ghent, founded the first Christian school in Mexico, a school for boys in Texcoco in 1523. The spiritual conquest really began, though, in 1524 under the leadership of Fray Martin de Valencia. He arrived amongst 12 Spanish Franciscan friars in Veracruz that year, and the Franciscan influence in Spain was basically alone until 1533. That's when eight Augustinians arrived, and in 1536, 12 Dominicans uh, followed them. And anyway, the reason that the Franciscan order was first specifically basically was that the order had undergone internal reforms in Spain in the late 1400s and early 1500s. Uh, the result of those, to make a long story short, is that well-educated friars who followed a stricter discipline than most other clergy were amongst the Franciscans, and basically the order was just the best prepared. Um, although Dominicans and Augustinians also arrived soon uh, later, after, uh, soon after, like I said. With that said, much of the early missionary activity centered on the Valley of Mexico and the Puebla region. Now, there's also a case to be made that it, there wasn't really a spiritual conquest at all. I should uh, let you in on that. And uh, James Lockhart, the author of Nahuas After the Conquest, argues just that. He says that the term missionary is a bit anachronistic, or he notes that, I should say. And I apologize, I do use the term missionary a few times in this, uh, if you're angry that I'm using anachronistic terminology. The layman instead, though, who went to Mexico from Spain uh, did not call themselves missionaries. They didn't even speak specifically of conversion. They spoke of indoctrination and instruction. There is a tradition in Mesoamerica which predated Spanish conquest as well, wherein the victors of a conquest instructed the losers about their gods. The Mexica did this with Huitzilopochtli. Many indigenous beliefs also survived into at least the 17th century. And in practice, for the vast majority of Mesoamericans living after the conquest, Christianity became a big part of their belief structure, but it didn't replace everything. Religious syncretism uh, basically meant that wherever a niche was left unfilled by Christianity, pre-conquest beliefs and practices persisted. So with that aside, if there was not a spiritual conquest, if you don't like that word, well, there was certainly a spiritual invasion. Perhaps the largest challenge facing missionaries who sought to convert Mexicans to uh, Christianity was the language barrier. It might be better to speak, in fact, also of language barriers, because Nahuatl, the language of the Aztec Empire, wasn't, uh, wasn't spoken by millions of people in Mesoamerica. The Yucatan, basically only Maya was spoken. On the East Coast, Huastec and Totonac were flourishing languages. So, too, was the Tarascan language in the West. Polapoca was spoken in Puebla and Oaxaca. In the North, things get really diverse. Uh, but besides that... Another major and obvious problem you might be thinking of is the extraordinarily rich polytheism practiced in Mesoamerica. Uh, 
This includes some beliefs that didn't really jive well with Christianity. You know, like cutting out someone's beating heart out of their chest. On the other hand, Aztecs did believe in the eternal soul. After death, Aztecs believed they continued to live forever, either in heaven or hell. It's just that basically the difference is in traditional Mesoamerican religion, what is more important, as far as going to heaven or hell, is how you die, rather than how you lived, um, as far as where you went in the afterlife, if that makes sense. In 1525, the Franciscans began to systematically attack uh, Mexican religion. They started destroying temples, books, images of gods, and doing that, the missionaries caused the disappearance of a lot of American antiquities. It's uh, really quite unfortunate. In 1525, Fray Martin de la Coruña destroyed all temples and idols in Cinsunsan, uh, the capital and holy city of the Purapucha. Excuse me. Pura Pedro de Gante wrote in 1529 that one of the chief preoccupations of his pupils was the destruction of idols and temples. They, this also went along with the destruction of text. It started in the Central Valley of Mexico, the center of Spanish activity in Mexico as a whole. And while everywhere else suffered rebellions, as we've discussed, none really ever materialized in or around Mexico City. Even when the destruction of religious artifacts began to occur, Ross Hassig specifically argues that by 1525, a rebellion would have been impossible in the Central Valley anyway. Um, at any rate, the Spaniards were not completely aided, unaided in the destruction, uh, in this sort of destruction. Uh, the most famous destruction of imperial records was at Texcoco, uh, and that was conducted by Tlaxcalans after Cortes' army took the city uh, before the conquest of Tenochtitlan. And in fact, the Tlaxcalas and other Indian conquistadors, uh, they engaged in a lot of pillaging and destroying of numerous temples during the conquest. Uh, before the conquest, the Aztecs regularly demolished temples in the, of their defeated enemies. Incidentally, since Mesoamerican pyramid temples doubled up as fortresses, it's kind of easy to understand why victorious armies in Mexico would be prone to destroying temples, but at any rate, None of that really compared to the systematic destruction which the mendicant orders went about in engaging themselves in. Uh, now, with that said, like I said, too, the Franciscans had like a, just a completely vacant territory at their disposal uh, in the years of head start they had over the Dominicans and the Augustinians. And so they expanded into the areas of greatest population. The Franciscan order consolidated their position, especially uh, from 1525 to 31, by founding numerous convents before expanding uh, south and northeast of Mexico City mainly during the 1530s. The quick expansion of the Franciscans meant that the Dominicans ended up with less spiritual territory, of course, and a smaller flock, and the Augustinians smaller still. But in no small part, the spiritual conquest of Mexico was able to proceed because, quote, the religious of Mexico understood that they had to prevail by their unselfishness, their poverty, and their austerity of their habits, unquote. Frays Martin de Valencia, Antonio de Maldonado, and Antonio de Ciudad Rodrigo all made it a habit, for example, to make sure that they prayed in places where they could be seen in public. The appearance of the friars helped them move as well. Monks' garments were made of coarse cloth, 
and combined with their poverty, well, the friars did stand out as very different from the conquistadors, to be sure. In Nahuatl, the friars were called Motolinia, the poor one. Motolinia, the poor one, has come to evangelize the poor of Mexico. It does have a, got a, a little bit of good press uh, with it. Now, Fray Antonio de Roa, uh, for example, he saw barefoot and sleeping Indians sleeping on the ground in New Spain, and so he joined them. I mean, he still wore his coarse robe, don't get me wrong, but he slept on a board at night. Sometimes, Indians were so desperate that they were eating nothing but roots and had become very malnourished. And so Roa, when he was in Mexico, he ate no bread, he ate no meat, and he drank no wine. By identifying himself specifically with the trials and tribulations of the Indians he lived with, de Roa made many converts. But I have to tell you my favorite thing about him is how he tried to teach the Indians about hell on at least one occasion. He did so by standing on hot coals until he could no longer do so. His feet all just burnt the fuck up and... Then he would call attention to the fact if, well, if I can only stand on the hot coals for a few moments, how bad would the turtle hellfire be? Robert Ricard, at any rate, wrote that, quote, self-abnegation, <laughs> self poverty, and asceticism were not only necessary for the missionary, they were the only possible means of identifying himself with his flock, unquote. Now, since there were so few friars in New Spain, they were just constantly traveling, which is pretty rough going. Mexico is a mountainous country. Uh, privations and fatigue caused a heavy mortality, especially among the Dominicans, who literally had more territory per friar than the other orders. And so the members of the Dominican order literally covered more ground. Explaining the situation, the viceroy of New Spain, Mendoza, wrote that, quote, Since the religious eat no meat and on travel on foot, their suffering is intolerable, and this is why they live such a short time, unquote. Fray Rodrigo de, Las, de la Cruz wrote that on a journey of more, uh, that he went on a journey of more than 80 leagues, uh, and often, and he did so on nothing but water taking that journey. Now, the clergy did go out in groups of twos and threes to the Indian settlements. Once there, they set about the business of destroying the temples, the idols, the books, driving out indigenous priests, building a church complex that would include a church proper, a wall patio or atrium, and quarters for the resident friars. This was one big effort, mind you, and the friars basically did all of this at once. And when I say they did all of that at once, I mean that just like conquistadors, the friars were absolutely dependent upon allied Indians for help. For example, baptized Indians built the churches and often provided the architectural and engineering knowledge to do so. Uh, I mean, the friars themselves were learned, but they generally had absolutely zero construction training. Uh, and you might wonder why the indigenous people of Mexico would be interested in providing that sort of labor to help a bunch of jerk faces who earlier just destroyed their temple and burned their books. Well, a lot of Indians did complain about the burden of this labor, just so you know. But in addition, a lot of communities took pride in building a large and impressive church. Many of the churches were built in a style that has become known as Franciscan militant. They served as a fortress, and uh, hundreds of those churches still uh, stand today if you ever have a chance to visit Mexico. You know, if you're in the if you're in Mexico and listen to this, hola. Anyway, 
Incidentally, living in a fortress church with Indians providing much of the labor for you, well, you might be thinking, isn't that enough to tempt even the most pious of Spanish monks, right? Well, obviously, many Spanish friars were pious people, and others, of course, were just as rotten as the average encomendero. All were people, after all, so some friars in New Spain developed, quote, a taste for and a habit of domination, unquote. Now, this uh, was kind of helped along, too, by a concept of Indian tutelage that a lot of the, the religious essentially had, which basically meant that the friars believed that the Indians needed the Christian friars to show them how to live, and you know it's kind of easy to slip from that sort of thinking into uh, the thinking that a perpetual tutelage is basically in order. Uh, when are the Indians able to live as they will? Well, I don't, not yet. They're going to need a little more tutelage. They better keep working for me. At any rate, the Christian orders, you know, they've got this big task in front of them, converting an indigenous population, stamping out ancient rituals, destroying temples and religious texts, driving the indigenous priesthood into hiding. All of that's a lot of work. They did have a few advantages, most prominently the fact that the clergy enjoyed legal protections known as the fuero ecclesiastico. All clerics were judged before canonical courts, no matter what the offense. So there's never like an audiencia that's going to follow around some successful cleric like they might follow around a successful conquistador. The clergy also had previous experience uh, expanding the church in southern Spain with the conquest of Granada. And with that said, despite that experience, I personally find some of the early attempts by the clergy to preach across a language barrier to be a little bit hilarious. Uh, Munoz Carmargo stated that the religious could only preach via the use of signs at first. So to talk about hell, the father would point to the ground or at a fire or at some toads or some snakes. To speak about heaven, they would look up at the sky point up while they spoke about one single god. I imagine that most of the Indians who took in these early sermons didn't really obviously learn a whole lot about Christianity. So perhaps the chief concern above all concerns for clerics in New Spain was learning Nahuatl, but perhaps the second most important concern being trying to figure out how to teach the monotheistic nature of Christianity to people who were much more familiar with polytheism. So the different orders set themselves up in these different parts of Mexico, and, and that made the learning of many languages a little easier. Besides Nahuatl, it was important to learn Tarascan, but Dominicans uh, did not study Tarascan because no Dominicans were headquartered in Michoacan. Similarly, no Franciscans were uh, in Zapotec. With that said, just because the initial attempts at preaching were comical, as a story I can tell you that pointing at things and speaking in a foreign language to your audience in an attempt to impart metaphorical concepts upon them is tricky, to say the least. But it doesn't mean they didn't try their best to do a good job. Some of the missionaries who came over to New Spain were downright brilliant. Fray Andres de Olmos, in particular, wrote catechisms and preached in more than ten different languages. A number of skilled friars apparently were eventually able to preach in three languages, and that's very impressive, unless you compare them to Andres de Olmos, I suppose. Um, Fray Francisco de Toral preached in two languages every Sunday. Now, obviously, not everyone can build a skilled polyglot, 
the friars I've mentioned were particularly dedicated to study, and this obviously wasn't something everyone could do, but I mean, almost all of them learned Nahuatl, I should say, almost all of the friars who came to Mexico. And at any rate, these religious who could learn multiple languages, a lot of them took it upon themselves to then translate the books of the Bible into those languages so that other phrase could use them to preach as well by reading phonetically in order to get across the message of Christianity. Robert Ricard uh, found that the orders wrote at a minimum 109 books in Mesoamerican languages, 66 in Nahuatl, 66 in Tarascan, 13 Otomi, 6 Perindas, 5 Mixtec, 5 Zapotec, 5 Huaxtec, 4 Totonac, 2 Zoque, and 1 Chilapa. I should note that Ricard did not write about the Yucatan in his book, too, so however many more were in the Mayan language, I could not tell you. Uh, thanks to the spread and the success of the Aztecs, though, a lot of people in Mesoamerica did speak Nahuatl, even if it was their second language. And this is before the arrival of the Spaniards. But So if you're thinking that the missionaries in Mexico went about trying to teach Indians how to speak Spanish, uh, absolutely not. The Spanish friars instead tried to speak the Nahuatl language. The Fray Rodrigo de la Cruz wrote to Charles V in 1550, quote, it seems to me that your majesty should order all the Indians to learn the Mexican language, for in every village today there are many Indians who know it and can learn it easily, unquote. The mendicants made enormous efforts to teach Nahuatl in the years both prior to and after 1550. In New Galicia, a college at Guadalajara was set up by Franciscans, which taught Nahuatl to all Indian students. Uh, the Augustinians similarly taught Nahuatl to Indians. As a result, by 1584, there were substantially more Indians, from the Zacatecas to Nicaragua, who knew the language of the Valley of Mexico. Just a few years earlier, uh, in 1580, King Philip II spoke of Nahuatl as, quote, the universal language of the Indians, unquote. Um, now, in contrast, Spanish friars weren't interested in teaching Spanish to Indians at all. And I want to be clear, what with the factionalism in the Spanish Empire between the encomenderos and the friars, you pretty much got to side with the friars, unless you're, I guess, a complete asshole. I mean, the friars fought against some of the most brutal aspects of the conquest and the actions of the conquistadors. Chattel slavery, torture, pillaging towns, rape, murder. The colonization, though, is by its nature paternalistic. And you can't think that it's your destiny to engage in a spiritual conquest to convert a faraway continent full of people to your religion without, I mean, coming across as a dick. I mean, you got to think in, I, I think you've got to quote unquote know, to know something that those other people, they need to know what you know, you know. And while many of the friars were genuinely good people who just really did want to help people, I think, from an objective standpoint, I, I'm thinking, you know, from their objective cultural lenses, as, you know, fray people, you know, you know, lay people in the, in the mendicant orders, it prevents them, I think, from seeing America largely as anything other than a place that required conversion to Christianity. Um... The conquistador might see America as an object, object to be exploited, now people included, and besides those people could have, 
you know, in the Conquistadors' lines, a lot of people made it, they were like, well, they might be, even be demons. But the Conquistador also might see his success in conquest as a proof of God's pleasure. In contrast, the Spanish holy man, I think, saw it as his duty to transform the childlike pagans of America into proper civilized men. From that perspective, Indian uh, knowledge of Questilian would have been the first step probably towards a dangerous freedom. That, that the... the that the mendicant orders weren't, you know, you know, to go along with that paternalism. Oh, they're not ready to speak Castilian yet. That's for people more advanced on the social scale or what have you. So in the first few, anyway, in the first few decades of the conquest, almost zero Castilian was taught to any Indians. In 1550, this did start to change. The crown added instructions in a letter to teach the Indians Spanish. This instruction, frankly, seemed harmful to most Spaniards in New Spain as a potential way to upend the social structure that kept Indians in servitude. At any rate, the alliance, uh, let's move to Mishawakan just for a moment. The alliance between Mishawakan and Cortes meant that the Purapucha people were fairly quick to become baptized. In 1525, uh, 15 young Purapucha nobles were sent off to that new religious school in Texcoco, and in addition, the Kazansi went to Mexico City. He received baptism. He took the name Don Francisco. This is the same Don Francisco who Nuno de Guzman executed for treason. Two or three friars went back to Michoacan along with Don Francisco when he was baptized, and they received an enthusiastic reception. The first church in Tinsuzan, with that said, was for some reason not built in a convenient location. One Spaniard stated, often in times the reason he did not intend church was because, quote, it is very much uphill and the road is bad, unquote. Another claimed that, quote, the said church is on such a bad site that they cannot go there on horseback because of the ravines and slopes and bridges and pools, unquote. I mean, for fuck's sake, who is responsible for this? At any rate, the church was moved in 1530. It was moved again in 1538, um, and that is why it, where it probably stood, at the same spot as the current Franciscan church in Sinsunsan today. The work of the friars was greatly aided by the fact that the Spanish colonists, though, routinely seized and destroyed religious idols. Um, I'm mean, just talking about, you know, the conquistadors themselves would do that. And over time, with along with social societal fraying, uh, the great changes wrought from slavery, disease, warfare, there were openings that were made for the growth of Christianity in Mishawakan and, and elsewhere. Certain beliefs, though, in Mishawakan were hard to get rid of. Polygamy amongst the Purapusha nobility, or the persistence of blood sacrifice. These were practices that the friars had difficulty eradicating. Um, it wasn't difficult for any Purapucha man or woman to see the hypocrisy in a friar's insistence that blood sacrifice was the work of the devil when practiced by Indians. But when the Son of God sacrificed his own life, all his blood, for the benefit of the world, that's the good stuff. Hmm. I mean, that was just to them. That was exactly how a Mesoamerican police justified their human sacrifices. So anyway, by 1530, uh, churches were, a few churches had sprung up within the Tarascan state. And the efforts of the friars of the police, uh, and the efforts of the friars um, 
and with the efforts of the friars, excuse me, the beliefs of Mexico and the beliefs of Christianity began to merge. In contrast, the Waxaca, uh, the process of proselytization went more slowly. Bartolome de Olmedo was the first representative of the church in the area there. Olmedo was on the entrada of Pedro de Alvarado and then the conquest of the Mixtec kingdom of Tutupec on the Pacific coast in 1522. Afterwards, he presided over the baptism of the ruler of Tehuantepec. Uh, Olmedo also participated in the entrada of Rodrigo Rangel. He baptized 500 individuals, and then he died in 1524. Fray Gonzalo Lucero was next appointed as vicar of the first Dominican convent in Villa Alta. Lucero managed to learn enough Nahuatl to communicate his message with some of the local nobility. He used pictures to get his message across, and after two years, he was replaced by two other clergy, what they recorded. Whatever they did wasn't, been, wasn't preserved in the historical record, really, other than building a quote-unquote crude church. They remained in the area until 1548. Uh, frankly, it wasn't until 1556 when the Dominicans gave Via Alta, uh, the district, a grant of 1,000 pesos per year to defray expenses that the pace of missionization there increased. More friars uh, uh, arrived. They learned more of the languages of Oaxaca, that, that very diverse region. Fray Jordan de Santa Catalina became fluent in Zapotec. Fray Pedro Guerrero learned Mixe. Um, now, the most unseemly aspect of the spiritual concept uh, conquest is the use of children essentially as the shock troops of Christianity. Friars focused their efforts specifically on children because that was, and I probably still do this today, because it is the easiest way to pit families against themselves. Diego de Landa, the Archbishop of Yucatan, is best remembered for destroying a vast number of Mayan religious texts. Well, he also described the friars' use of children. Quote, Landa, or quote, Landa, uh, quoting Landa, quote, the method for indoctrinating the Indians was by collecting the small children of the lords and leading men, establishing them around the monasteries and houses with each town built for that purpose. The children then, after being taught, could inform the friars of the idolatries and orgies. They would break up the idols, even those belonging to their own fathers. They urged the divorced women and any orphans that were enslaved to appeal to the friars. At first, the lords gave up their children with ill grace, fearing that they wished to make little slaves of them, as the Spaniards has done. But when they understood, they sent them with good grace, unquote. Uh, essentially, the uh, orders would kind of try and turn kids into bullies, <laughs> to bully other generations into becoming Christians. Missionary activity in the Yucatan was a key part of the conquest of that region. And as bad as any individual friar could be, the mendicant orders uh, offered that stark contrast as an institution in comparison to the gold-hungry and murderous conquistadors. When you combine that with Mesoamerican beliefs and the cyclical nature of time, you really start to understand how many Indians in the Yucatan kind of came to a dualistic belief about their present as well. That, one, they could re completely repudiate the Spaniards, those fucking sons of bitches, on the other hand, they could completely accept that the time had come for the Christian god to rule the land. One episode in 1544, I think, really illustrates this effect. 
That year, eight veteran missionaries, four from Guatemala and four from Mexico, went to the Yucatan to convert the Maya. The first Franciscan house and school in Yucatan was operational three years later in the province of Zui. One key to the spiritual conquest in Zui was when a Maya boy informed one of the friars that there was a plot to burn the monastery down and kill the friars. As a result, more than two dozen Indian nobles ended up in Merida, about to be hanged by Montejo for the attempted plot, and that's when a certain follower, Villalpando, dramatically interceded on their behalf. He got Montejo to spare the life of the traitors, an action which got quite a few converts as a result. With that said, the attempted plot also did convince a lot of the missionaries in the Yucatan that they should stick to the coast and not the interior. At any rate, what I'm saying is the, the, the Spanish missionaries would often help Indians for basically kind of selfish means and attempt to convert them to Christianity, but that didn't mean they didn't also save people from some truly horrible situations. One of the original conquistadors of the Yucatan was Francisco Hernandez. He had held two villages in Encomienda, Tepich and Chiquindizalt. I, I surely massacred that who got into a, quite a feud, anyway, with the low Franciscans. At one point, he traveled all the way to Guatemala, in fact, to speak to an audiencia to try to obtain some sort of legal protection against the friars from taking his Indians. Um, presumably, they were being taken uh, on Sundays for Christian instruction. He got angry again later when he discovered that no Indian workers were accepting his low wages anymore that he was offering. He was, Hernandez was certain the Franciscans were behind it, and he started going on long diatribes about how lazy the Franciscans were, that they weren't real priests, they were liars who wanted, only wanted to get their hands on women. One day, Hernandez saw one of the boys who would not work for him for his low wages go into the church. So Hernandez uh, beat and chased the boy out of the church. Uh, and for that incident or something else like that, Hernandez was in jail in 1556 for this sort of scandalous behavior. He escaped that jail, though, and over the next five years, developed an increasingly paranoid and antagonistic relationship against the church in New Spain. Ultimately, Hernandez was recaptured. He died in jail. Uh, and in fact, later, enemies of Diego Landa, when he becomes unpopular, he's a very powerful layperson, uh, missionary uh, father in uh, Bishop, I should say, goodness, Bishop in the Yucatan, uh, his enemies would kind of resurrect the ghost of Hernandez as a martyr. Uh, but Hernandez's fate, above all, in the words of Inga Clendenin, is evidence, quote, that the Yucatan was indeed a frontier society. Institutionalized authority was too weak or too remote, and where power, therefore, would lie with those most relentless in its pursuit, most ruthless in its exercise, and most jealous of its possession. Those are traits that Landa had in spades, and just because these fray people sometimes presented a better option, I guess, for the Indians, uh, they could be sometimes just as ruthless as the conquistadors. Another with ambitions in New Spain was Bishop Zumarraga, appointed to Mexico City in 1535, and who promptly began an inquisition in Mexico to attempt to eradicate native beliefs. Numerous Indians were tried and convicted of heresy and burnt at the stake, with the immediate effect that almost every conversion to Christianity immediately stopped. It was pretty easy for the Indians to understand that if they did not ever convert to Christianity, then they could never be accused of backsliding into heresy and paganism. So 
Bishop Londa also brought the Inquisition to Yucatan. He was like, oh, what a great idea. It was just the same disaster there. In three months of an Inquisition, 4,500 Indians were put to torture. 158 died during that torture. 13 people committed suicide to escape torture. 18 others simply disappear from the record. They are presumed to have been, probably they committed suicide as well, uh, to be honest. This was, uh, this is a monumental failure. Um, and as a result, it was quickly decreed that, uh, oh, yeah, what do you know, Indians aren't subject to the Inquisition after all. It's just for Europeans living in the Spanish Empire um, and Africans. Torture and execution under the direction of the Spanish church caused a lot of resistance to Spanish rule. And we've been talking a lot about that all episode. And, you know, all the re rebellions, and the, as the conquistadors like to term them, Frey, Bernardo, uh, Cosin, Pablo de Acevino, Juan de Herrera, and Juan de Tapia, these were four mendicants who were murdered individually, either for some crime they committed or as a reaction, an angry reaction to someone angry about Spanish rule, whatever, whatever the case might have been. In the Yucatan, abuse by the Spanish church was one of the key reasons why rebellions continued throughout the 16th century. Which that brings us to our last topic. Because if I'm going to talk about rebellion, I'm going to talk about the big one. A conflict that inflamed New Galicia in 1541 and is known to history as the Mixtan War. Spain's biggest colonial fear was obviously rebellion. I mean, they were terrified. The, the, the Spaniards in New Spain were terrified of a potential Indian rebellion, especially in central Mexico, I should say. But obviously no, no widespread rebellions began in central Mexico, however. And there's a good argument to be made that uh, Cortes was right when he placed the new capital, Mexico City, smack dab in the middle of Central Amer uh, Mexico, where uh, Tenochtitlan stood, uh, that this would help prevent rebellion. Uh, there was always many, many, many more Spaniards in and around the capital than there were in, say, uh, Guatemala or the Yucatan or in North Mexico. But perhaps the true key to understanding why the people of Central America, uh, excuse me, Central America, Central Mexico did not rebel, basically was that disease and slavery and warfare, if you ask me, had reduced their population such that uh, from 1520 to within 80 years later, uh, maybe 95% of the people died. Um, Maybe 25 million people, as many as 25 million people might have lived from the desert north of central Mexico to the isthmus of Tehuantepec to the south. Um, and in less than a century, almost all of them were gone. Uh, paradoxically, in the short term, though, the demographic collapse was a boon to the Spanish in taxation terms. Many of the people who died uh, in the first smallpox plague that hit in 1520, which killed off probably 40% of central Mexico's population, were older people, infants, and children. Dependents in terms of taxation. Uh, whereas in pre-conquest times, a married man might have been supporting a large family, 
after smallpox, a man had far fewer mouths to feed. As a result, much of what said married man might produce could instead be siphoned off as surplus for the Spaniards. So over the next 20 years after that first uh, smallpox plague, from 1520 to 1540, um, many, many more children were born, though. Uh, so this initial boom did not last long. By the 1540s, in fact, the indigenous population of Mexico was growing. Uh, that population included, included a lot of children. And this sapped resources from the Spanish perspective, from uh, what they might steal and take as tribute, essentially, as the century progressed. Now, with that said, sometimes Spain caused its own problems with rebellion and authority in Mexico. One big problem in that regard is that the Spaniards refused to use words like Tlatoani or Kazonsi, generally speaking. They instead imported the term cacique from the Caribbean to Mexico. This might not seem like a big deal, but the traditional term for king in Nahuatl, like I said, is Tlatoani. In uh, Parapucha, it is Kazonsi. And if the Spaniards had continued using terms like that, perhaps more stability would have remained in New Spain. But as it was, cacique was a term that meant nothing to anybody in Mexico. It was just a word, a foreign word that meant ruler, leader, boss. It's akin to if you replaced the king with a dictator. In that a king has specific meaning. A king has a son who will be king. And a dictator might have all the exact same powers as a king, but, well, anyone who has the power to be the dictator is the dictator, right? Well, no shortage of illegitimate pretenders in Mesoamerica just started popping up calling themselves caciques. Some, some because the Spaniards wanted them. Others, which the Spaniards sure didn't like. But anyway, if we return specifically to New Galicia, where all of this is happening, it's also in a situation where Nuno de Guzman had undertaken this vicious conquest. And while Guzman was going shortly after, off to jail, Guzman is like the shooting star of Spanish conquistadors in Mexico, but many of his most vicious captains remained as the chief encomenderos of New Galicia. And while Spanish officials assumed the region would calm down, with Guzman's departure, that sure as shit did not occur. The vicinos of Compostolia um, might have been partly responsible. By 1533, they were uh, complaining that what was keeping them from being wealthy was that they could not enslave Indians. If, quote, with slaves, quote, we could improve ourselves and look for mines of gold and silver, unquote. In 1534, the next year, the crown rescinded the prohibition against the capture and taking of Indians. And uh, by the next year in 1535, slave-taking raids were taking place in the Valley of Vanderas and north of Guadalajara. Both of these places became hotbeds of rebellion during the Mixtan War. So things weren't necessarily going well once uh, Guzman left. Dozens of Spaniards were killed in uh, the region during the 1530s in what the Spaniards termed quote-unquote rebellion. It's still not quite the same as a full-fledged war. And if there were numerous murders and small-scale rebellions in the Northwest in the 1530s, what really changed in 1540? 
Well, what changed specifically was the expedition of Francisco Vasquez Coronado took hundreds of vicinos from their lands uh, out of the region to go in search of the great northern mystery. And this meant that a lot of the very angry indigenous groups who were angry the whole time suddenly had a big advantage in numbers. With the departure of Coronado's expedition, Indians across the Northwest suddenly started feeling like, well, maybe I could just tell the Spaniards it's time for them to leave. And in fact, some Spaniards, when this started happening, did leave out of fear. Others left not so much because of a a warning like that, but because uh, if a Spaniard failed to hear that sort of warning, the common people started shooting arrows and throwing rocks at them. Uh, now, the main opponents of the Spaniards were a people called the Caxcanes. They formed the heart and center of this rebellion. But with that said, the Caxcanes clearly had help from Zapotecas, uh, because the rebelling Caxcanes proceeded to build a fortified stronghold in the mountains of Zapoteca, um, in, in, in where Z the Zapoteca land. Uh, these are called peñoles. Uh, and in fact, numerous peñoles were built. It's not clear if this is the first one or if it's just the first that the Spaniards discovered. But regardless, it was called Tepesticate. It was north of the Juchipala Valley, where the Zacatecas lived, although it was principally um, inhabited by Caxcane people. What particularly galled the Spaniards was that they'd been betrayed, from their perspective, by an Indian leader named Don Francisco Tenamatzle. He'd been baptized at a Franciscan church and monastery at Nochistlan. He had been the brother of the ruler of that city. When Don Francisco baptized the Spaniards, um, the Spaniards instead recognized him as cacique instead of his brother when the land was divided in, into encomiendas. And so when the trusted Spanish ally, Don Francisco Tenemastle, later led his people away from the Spaniards, off the encomienda, and to the peñol of Temesticate, well, that really got the Spaniards goat. In fact, it wasn't until Spaniards went to investigate the disappearance of Don Francisco and his people is when they discovered the fortified Tenamatzle. At that point, thousands of Caxcanes were hiding from numerous encomiendas in the uh, Peñol. They were fully provisioned. And in addition, there were reportedly another three or 4,000 Zacateca warriors there who sympathetic to the cause, or at least if not sympathetic to the Caxcanes, then at least with the realization like, you know, it's going to be us next, right? Well, the encomendero of Nochislan was Miguel de Ibarra. It was he who led that initial investigating force, essentially, to the Peñol. Ibarra's situation, though, was not unique. Many encomenderos in the region found that their Indians had simply left. Reinforcements were called in, and before long, Ibarra was leading a force of over 20 Spaniards and 4,500 Indian allies against Tepestic Ibarra's Indian allies consisted of Caxcanes from the immediate area who were not rebelling, and Tequexques from the encomienda of Tonala. This meant, though, uh, that Ibarra's force could be compromised. And it was. Embedded rebels within the loyalist Caxcane force managed to scare away 
almost all of the Tequexques before the battle even began. Essentially, all that was left was some chiefs, um, and then the Caxcane rebels apparently were in the process of leading the Spaniards into a gully so that they could the army would be slaughtered. Uh, that's when Ibarra caught on before that last part was accomplished. Ibarra instead hanged a bunch of Cascane leaders. He sent the rest of his Indian army home. And regardless, he then, with his remaining Spaniards, approached the Pale and attacked the next day. After several hours of fighting, Ibarra and the several Spaniards under him were wounded. He was forced to retreat. In retaliation, he ordered more executions of some, you know, of some Cascanes. But word of the success of the rebellion was spreading as well. Shortly after Ibarra's loss, more encomenderos were forced to flee. Like Pedro de Bobadilla, he fled his encomienda at Tul because, quote, his Indians wanted to kill him, unquote. Simple enough. Ibarra spent the next 20 days after that, quote, amid constant skirmishes and clamor, unquote, at Segovia. Fray Antonio de Segovia, the guardian of the monastery there, begged him, quote, for the love of God to go help them because they were in danger, unquote. Juchipala, where the, uh, where the monastery was, saw continued resistance. Corals were born, burned one night. Several uh, hundred pigs were inside the corals. They were killed. You smell the bacon. After another uh, night, uh, the burning, the granary was, bo- was burned. Uh, 2,000 fanegas of maize were lost. So Ibarra and the Franciscans then decided to abandon the monastery. The next night, it was burned. Four days after abandoning Juchipilla, an encomendero named Andres de Salinas was murdered when he tried to go back near there uh, to a pueblo south of Juchipilla to recover some cattle. This was investigated, and it was discovered that muchos indios de Guara, many warriors, were filling the countryside. The Spaniards at this point discovered a second, even larger Peñol, Mixtan. That's from where the war gets its name. Ibarra ordered a general retreat of the region. Since there were so few Spaniards, all of them went to Nochistan. Spain had at this point lost control of the entire countryside north of Guadalajara. Ida Altman writes of the situation, quote, At this point, the violence was still mainly confined to that region. The pattern of attacks... Uh, on Spaniards and their property revealed, however, a substantial degree of organization. The indigenous rebellion was by no means spontaneous. Planning had been underway for months, very possibly years. By the time the conquistadors even had an inkling as to what was happening, it was far too late. Ibarra had years of military experience, however, Altman continues, in summation of the early part of the conflict. Quote, the Spaniards were outnumbered, outmaneuvered, and handicapped by their notions of what the local people could and would do, unquote. In charge at this time is Antonio de Mendoza. He is the first viceroy of New Spain, and while this might sound a little odd to you, we're going to save much discussion on him, uh, the first viceroy of Mexico, uh, Antonio de Mendoza, that is, for a couple of episodes because he's also going to be the third viceroy of Peru, and we'll get to him later in his career. I think that would be better. 
Regardless, he is the Viceroy of New Spain as of November 1535. In part, he gets the whole shebang. He gets Mexico, New Galicia, Yucatan, all of it. Um, it isn't until five years later, though, in 1540, that he starts paying attention to the growing rebellion in the north. And at the end of 1540, that's when Miguel de Ibarra arrives in Mexico City with really bad news for Christmas. Not only has he failed to stop the rebellion, but it was growing, and oh yeah, there's Mixton too, it's, it's twice as big. Mendoza sent a number of horsemen back with, with, uh, with Ibarra, and in March of 1541, they offered peace to the Indians. And of course, by peace, what Mendoza meant was that the rebels were free to stop rebelling and go back to the encomiendas as slaves. Now, since the rebels were rebelling, Principally, in response to the encomienda system, this was a non-starter, of course. In response to Mendoza's overture, the rebels replied that Ibarra and the Spaniards with him were free to enter if they dared, because Mixton was found full of men of women, uh, excuse me, was full of men with heart, not women, excuse me, uh, implying, of course, that the Spaniards were women. Mendoza formed a council to deliberate the best course of action. It was decided that Cristobal de Oñate should lead the force to mix the nut Mendoza. The viceroy had important uh, matters uh, at the capital, you know, lots of responsibility. Mendoza received report that Oñate and his forces had surrounded Mixton, and he basically returned to Mexico City and said, well, that's that. Oñate quickly judged it would be impossible for him to storm Mixton. He decided to start out the inhabitants. But despite his siege, the natives uh, rather fearlessly skirmished with the besiegers uh, on several occasions, and they managed to send word to another penul, the penul of Tuol, which is a third and until now completely unknown penul to the Spaniards also full of thousands of rebels. The rebels at Tool, upon getting that message, attacked uh, Oñate's siege. Uh, as soon as the Spaniards' best fighting men turned to face that rear attack, the defenders of Mixton attacked as well, perfectly pincering Oñate's army. After four hours of combat, the rebels succeeded in burning and robbing the Spanish camp. They killed 13 of the 50 Spaniards in Oñate's army. Six black slaves died. 300 Indian allies did as well. Oñate and the other survivors made a dangerous retreat to Guadalajara. The victory at Mixton was in April 1541. That triggered a new round of revolts. Cascane communities who had not revolted earlier now did so. So, too, did all the pueblos of, of Tequexe people. Oñate was forced to request urgent aid from Mendoza in Mexico City. Mendoza, in turn, asked for immediate aid from a group of conquistadors who were currently in Colima and who were about to embark on a voyage on the Pacific to uh, Peru. Instead, please come to New Galicia. Oñate also directly asked for their help, and amongst that conquistadoring crew was none other than Pedro de Alvarado, 
Cortez, most audacious captain himself, the conqueror of Guatemala, the man responsible for the massacre at the temple of Tenochtitlan, the man called El Tonataya by the Navas, the sun. Alvarado was about to embark on a conquest in South America. We are talking about a man completely unwilling to settle down despite being the viceroy of Guatemala. He is in some ways more successful even than Cortes. Alvarado had at his command at that point 30 horsemen, 6,000 Indian allies, and he was gathering his forces at Michoacan to New Galicia. Uh, in addition, so instead he goes to New Galicia. Mendoza, in addition, dispatches from Mexico City Inigo, Lo Inigo Lopez de Anuncibe with another 100 horsemen to the beleaguered province. Now, there are very few sources that give insight into exactly what was going on amongst the indigenous people of the north. But luckily for us, the historian Ida Altman has great insight into how the war was waged by the indigenous people of northwest Mexico. It's hard to see exactly what was happening, but new alliances were forming and communicating clandestinely. The rebels weren't just rebelling. They were instigating an offensive war against the Spaniards. One key seems to have been quote-unquote outsider religious figures, that is at least labeled as outsiders by the Indians who were later questioned by the Spaniards. These religious figures, outsiders or not, promised essentially that the rebellion would enable Indians to free themselves from Spanish rule and Christianity. Further, the Cascanes and Zacateca people both spoke, spoke languages close to Nahuatl, these were mutually intelligible languages, probably. The Spaniards called these rabble-rousing religious figures uh, messengers of the devil. But with that said, the basic message was simple and sounded great to most folks stuck in the system. By rebelling, natives would end up to, with the land because it was theirs. Hmm, sounds good. Beyond that, the religious figures promised that fields would flourish. Firewood would magically appear in homes. Food would appear in kitchens. Men could have all the women they wanted, and superior arms and regalia for battle would magically appear. The rebellion would finally end with wild beasts attacking and eating all of the believers in the Christian God, real millenarianism-type stuff. And The message of the rebellion was spread via a tratatl. That's from the Nahuatl word for statement though this statement took the form of a chant or a song. The rebellion spread from the region around purification first via messengers who all knew that chant. They carried arrows and drums, which they used to summon people to hear the message. Now, modern people like you and me were prone to doubt the power of such magic. But maybe we shouldn't be so prone to doubt the power of a magical message because the indigenous people of New Galicia took it to heart. Indigenous people in New Galicia believed that message, uh, and the Spaniards didn't doubt the power of uh, that religious magic. Cristobal de Oñate stated that once the people of Mexico heard the tratatl, the tratatl, quote, they could not fail to rise, unquote. Now, a lot of anger 
was specifically directed at Christianity. There was a systematic burning and destruction of monasteries, churches, and associated sacred objects that took place. A ceremonial washing of heads in black dye was undertaken to remove all vestiges of baptism. Now, earlier, I discussed how Ibarra and the friars at the monastery of Juchipla were chased away and the monastery was burned. Well, they got off easy in comparison to Fray Juan de Esperanza and Fray Antonio de Cuellar. They lived in the monastery of Itzatlan and were killed by rebels. The latter, Fray Antonio, was found by other Spaniards on the road. He had been beaten until his teeth fell out. He was told when that happened, well, now you can't say the words of God and St. Mary. He died of his wounds two days later. At any rate, this is the situation into which Pedro de Alvarado arrived. And of course, the impetuous Alvarado quickly became impatient with the slow siege, pace of siege conflict. The deliberations of Mendoza and his other captains, he didn't like that either, and he basically just went all Rambo. Alvarado promptly set off in the rainy season with 100 horsemen, 100 Spaniards on foot, and thousands of indigenous allies from Mishawakan. Despite Cristobal de Oñate specifically telling him that it was a very bad idea to attack in the rainy season. Well, fuck all that, said Alvarado. El Tonatiah simply assaulted Mixdon directly. His attack failed. The natives counterattacked with a, quote, dauntingly large number of rebels, unquote, and Alvarado's army panicked. Spaniards and Indians alike fled down the mountain, which was muddy, rainy season and all. During the panicked retreat, a conquistador's horse slipped, and it fell on Alvarado and his horse. That knocked Alvarado over. He fell down into a ravine where his own horse then fell on top of him. Oñate was a witness to this event, apparently. He was helping survivors escape after earlier having warned Alvarado, hey, don't go up that mountain in the rainy season. He apparently even helped recover Alvarado. He brought him back to Guadalajara, where Alvarado died a few days later from his wounds. Amongst Alvarado's last words, apparently, was the idea that he should have listened to Oñate and not gone up that mountain in the rainy season. Wide's words to live by, I say. Well, as for Alvarado, I suppose even the sun must set. I guess he would never be satisfied. In central Mexico, news of Alvarado's death was a huge shock. In Mexico City, Spaniards finally started taking the revolt seriously, as serious as it should have been taken, which, to be clear at this point, it was a potential threat to all of New Spain, if not thoroughly suppressed immediately. To the Indians, in contrast, the news was exhilarating. The revolt spread quickly in the aftermath of El Tunataya's departure from the mortal coil. Indians as far south as Michoacan began to hear the Tatal and to leave their encomiendas. Officials in New Spain began to beg Mendoza to lead an expedition. Now, well, rather than arguing that the Viceroy had more important uh, matters, as they had just been arguing uh, shortly before, well, only the Viceroy could, quote, extinguish the fire, unquote, now. Mendoza marched to Michoacan. When he arrived, he received a message from Cristobal de Oñate. 
the rebels were now surrounding Guadalajara. They had burned the church already, several Spanish buildings as well. Oñate's force was in two fortified homes, and the rebels were starting to assault those. It was late September of the year 1541. 15,000 rebel warriors surrounded the city of Guadalajara. But the Spaniards got a little luck. Oñate's captain, Andres de Villanueva, led a company of 37 horsemen. This was perhaps half the Spaniards left alive at Guadalajara, which that included the survivors of the 100 reinforcements sent by Mendoza under Inigo Lopez de Anunzenbe, by the way, just so you know. Villanueva's horsemen were able to face the rebels on open ground, and of course there they had the advantage. Villanueva was able to even target an elite unit. Perhaps 1,000 rebels died, which isn't that many, but that 1,000 included many of the leaders of the movement. The siege broke apart, and Guadalajara was saved. Now, had Guadalajara fallen, I don't, couldn't tell you what would have happened after that. Guadalajara was the last outpost in the north that would have kept the Tlatel from spreading to central Mexico and possibly beyond. At any rate, at this point, all of New Galicia was up in arms. The remaining Spanish forces alive in the region had trouble communicating or traveling, but unfortunately for the independence of the natives, things were, uh, the, the, the momentum had swung. Mendoza arrived from New Spain with another group of conquistadors and thousands more indigenous allies. So too did Pedro de Alvarado's relative, Juan de Alvarado, combined the substantial influx of military power the two brought began to shift the demographics in the region substantially. One Indian conquistador was Don Francisco de Sandoval Asatitli. He wrote about the campaign that followed, and he lets us know basically how many Indian conquistadors were there to accompany this army. Quote, The artillery was put in the middle, and on one side of the road went the Tlaxcalas, Tlaxcaltecas, Huitzotzincas, Quaquel Cultecas, followed by Mexicanos and Zilotepancas, then Aquahuacas, and on the other side of the road, the men of Mexoacan, Mestitlan, and the Chalcos. Unquote. Mendoza arrived with this massive force perhaps a month after the successful defense of Guadalajara, and first engaged with the Peñal of Coina, north of Lake Chapala. A fierce battle took place, wherein the Spaniards were victorious. Though the Indians did much of the fighting, I should say. And according to Mendoza, 1,500 men were in Coina, along with women and children, the survivors of that battle, enslaved. The Audiencia had authorized conduct, uh, uh, the, had uh, authorized uh, war, quote, of blood and fi of fire and blood in New Galicia in spring of that year. Uh, so, you know, it was free for all for getting slaves. Mendoza and his captains reportedly made a fortune from the captured slaves during this campaign. It was said that some Spaniards charged the Indian conquistadors as many as 30 or 40 slaves for a single horse. The defeat of Coina and the conflict inflicted on, and the punishment inflicted on the survivors, excuse me, which of course included a hot iron being used to brand people's faces, helped Mendoza persuade a couple other Peñoles to surrender. The hardliners, though, who survived Konya and the other rebels who did not want to surrender, began to congregate at the Peñolet Nochistlan, and another large battle took place there, quote, and there were the deaths of many Spaniards, unquote. 
However, the final army included, at this point, 15 to 20,000 Indian allies, 600 Spaniards, and Nochislan fell as well. The rebellion was basically in serious trouble, though it wasn't done yet. Another rebel army, quote, singing the song of the devil, unquote, attacked Mendoza's army at Juchipilla. They managed to free a captured commander named Tenamatsle, who'd been captured after the defeat of Nochistlan. But Mendoza was not dislodged from his location. Despite the defeat, he continued massing his forces at Juchipitla, which was three leagues distance from Mixton, by the way, and a final large battle took place there. After Mixton, Mendoza reportedly took 200 slaves for himself, and a few attacks by rebels continued sporadically, but the revolt essentially collapsed in the spring of 1542. Mendoza was particularly cruel against the rebels. Later, he was charged with cruel executions during the conflict, including blowing captives up with cannons, feeding people to dogs, ordering uh, his African slaves to surround rebels and stab them to death, you know, Julius Caesar-type execution. Mendoza did not really deny any of those charges. Uh, instead, he literally claimed that it would not have been possible to control blacks and Indians otherwise and that using cannons and dogs to kill Indians was necessary, quote, as a warning and to put fear in the Indians, unquote. Further, Mendoza argued his actions were commonplace in Granada when the Moors rebelled. Mendoza's previous post before New Spain had been to govern Granada. Now, like I said, I, I know I haven't spoken about Mendoza very much. We will eventually get to our episode in Peru. We'll talk about him more um, for now, essentially, he was made the governor to kind of stop all of the infighting between the, uh, and given specifically lots of control so that he could uh, try and stamp out some of the corruption regarding the silver and, uh, and the infighting. Uh, anyway, we'll get to him in our episode in Peru. One day long in the future, we will also return to New Spain. Hopefully not too long in the future, but uh, I've got quite a few episodes, uh, several series lined up before we'll even have a chance. I will probably talk about Mendoza's rule in more detail then uh, as well. But for now, I think it's time to finally start wrapping things up. Now, to be clear, indigenous resistance did not end after the Mixed-On War, but it became increasingly localized. No longer would any rebellion in Mexico threaten Spanish rule in quite the same way. For New Galicia, the war's impact was devastating. Hardly anyone was left alive in the region. So many had died or fled uh, or ended up dying on some encomienda afterwards that for years after the Mixed-On War, there was a lot of uncertainty for the Spaniards who had won the land. Uh, their future security in life was uncertain. Indigenous society was in far greater disarray devastated by war, disease, and migration. But the Mixed-On War had come so close to success. It's, looking at it, it's quite possible, in my opinion, that if Guadalajara had fallen, the Tlatoa would have spread to central Mexico, and then I don't know that Mendoza would have been gathering an army of fifteen to 20,000 allies. But in the end, the rebellion changed little for the Indians of Central America. Central Mexico, excuse me. The encomiendas still functioned. Indian slavery not only continued, but grew 
as a series of spectacular silver discoveries made the Zacatecas and other parts of New Galicia in, uh, were made in the Zacatecas and other parts of New Galicia in the late 1540s. Some conquistadors like Cristobal de Oñate and Miguel de Ibarra became very wealthy as a result. Very likely, though, it was the local Indians, of course, quite possibly slaves of Oñate and Ibarra, who were responsible for these so-called discoveries. Of course, the Indians of New Galicia benefited not at all from that. Now, if Oñate and Ibarra did end up uh, happy with uh, what they got, they would have been pretty uncommon for conquistadors to do that. And if we can briefly return to El Capitan, Hernán Cortés, well, as we found in the end, Cortés was excluded from the explorations of the northern mystery, which Coronado and so many others set off in search of. And in 1540, when he returned to Spain again to lay his grievances at the feet of the king, Unfortunately for the Marquis, the king was abroad. His representatives at court were not very happy to see Cortes, and nor did anyone want see the need to humor Cortes with any even a hint that he might be a viceroy. Cortes spent his last years in frustration. He fell ill and died in Spain in 1547, never to be satisfied. The empire he created, however, New Spain, was alive and well. I suppose, before we end this episode, we should return briefly to the question of historiography so I can give my opinion on whether or not the Spanish conquest was mainly a military conquest, mainly a spiritual conquest, or when was the conquest completed anyway? Maybe it was a biological, a disease, a conquest of disease. What date was a conquest? Was it 1521 with the fall of Tenochtitlan, 1542 at the end of the Mixtan War? Was the conquest complete when a majority of indigenous people were baptized? Well, in my opinion, sure. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Yeah, I mean, the truth about the conquest of Mexico it's, and the conquest of the Americas, it's all of those things rolled up into the conquest. You, you're free. Anyone is, you can free to make whatever case you want about, the, I guess, the percentages. Oh, boy, there's so many Indians in the conquest. Uh, Maybe it was the Indians who enacted the conquest, mainly. Was it mostly disease, mostly Spanish, mostly spiritual, mostly the thousands and thousands of Indian conquistadors, warfare, religion? I keep thinking about, though, the fact that the conquest was and remains to this very day an ongoing process. What was once the conquest of Mexico became the conquests of New Spain. Of course, all of that is folded into the broader conquest of the Americas, and if you rewind, you know, you can go back to the conquest of Hispaniola, before that to the conquest of the Canary Islands. You can go back before that to the Reconquista of Spain. Before that, you can go to the conquest of Spain by Islam, before that to the conquest of Spain by Rome. We can take the conquest forward, can't we? Not only will the conquest of the Americas still be going on far and years from now, hopefully, when I'm still babbling on by then about the 19th century, and Americans are talking about manifest destiny, the conquest of the Americas is still going on today when we talk about uh, pipelines, a world inhabited by mega global corporations, and forever wars, and we're fighting for voting rights stopping pipelines. 
Thinking of all that, I'm reminded of the last chapter in Danielle Skihan's book, The Fabric of Empire. It's a great book. Check out the interview I did with her if you haven't. But if I don't remember if we spoke about this specifically, I don't think we did. The last chapter of her book is about decolonization efforts made by indigenous women, like the Jolom Mayatek Cooperative. That's Mayan for women who weave. Link to the website in the show notes. You can get some great stuff like bags, jewelry, homewares. Fuck Amazon. Really. Get some stuff from, I mean, if not from Dula Mayatek Cooperative, from people, real artisans. Real people. Go to the fucking farmer's market, because I got news for you. If the conquest isn't over, that means you can fight against the conquest. Beyond that, you can fight against the conquest without engaging in violence. You just got to spend money in a way that helps out people when you can Instead of spending money that helps big corporations, what we all do for the sake of convenience. I mean, it's really that simple. But I don't mean to preach. And besides, I know it wouldn't help if I preached anyway. I could preach all day long. I'd never think of something as good as the immortal words of Captain John Paul Jones. I have not yet begun to fight. And I got news for you. If you can fight, well, that means you can win. And I know maybe you're saying, what is that? You know, Jesse, come on, what do we got up? A million to one odds that we could help win. Maybe we could help decolonize the earth. Well, if you feel that way, I'll be your Lloyd Christmas. So you're telling me there's a chance. So buck up, cowboy. It's late in the game. But there's work to do, and with teamwork, we can decolonize this world. And remember, even though it looks like we're losing now, even though we've been losing this war against colonization for centuries, even though we can barely even get some people to agree that the consequences of colonization like climate change are real and, well, bad, I will remind you of the immortal words of Randy Marsh, a bat dad. I didn't hear no bell. Folks, next episode will cover Spanish activity in California, Florida, Texas, and beyond. In the meantime, as always, look out for some great interviews coming up soon. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Listen what I say The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command So let's drop him on an island And leave him in the sand Cause it's a mutiny It's a mutiny It's a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship It's a mutiny It's a mutiny It's a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship What's happening here? You're no longer in control And we're drinking up your beer This is now a democratic Egalitarian pirate ship So enjoy your trip Cause it's a mutiny